tell you what I think about it. I think that is very, very bad for that man to make an accusation like that. That is terrible. I have never, ever, since I've managed, ever told a pitcher to throw at anybody, nor will I ever. And if I ever did, I certainly wouldn't make him throw at a fucking 130 hitter like LeFay or fucking Bavacqua who couldn't hit water if he fell out of a fucking boat. And I guarantee you this, when I pitched, and I was going to pitch against a fucking team that had guys on it like Babakwa, I sent a fucking limousine to get the cocksucker to make sure he was in the motherfucking lineup because I kicked that cocksucker's ass any fucking day in a week. He's a fucking motherfucking big mouth, I'll tell you that. Yes, Tommy Lasorda, a baseball legend, is no longer with us. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wattell, this is being broadcast live and recorded live on January 9th, 2021. Right now, the time, 10, 12 p.m. Tommy Lasorda passed away on January 7th, two days ago. He was 93 years old. Lived a lot longer than anybody expected, including me. I mean, the guy was obese most of his life. You were not expecting him to be someone living to a ripe old age. Nonetheless, he did, and he remained employed with the Dodgers until his final day. He was the manager of the Dodgers from 1977 to 1996. Given my age, my childhood memories of the Dodgers pretty much all include Lasorda as manager all the way through when I was 24 years old. So really the early portion of my life and the early middle portion of my life, I remembered Lasorda as the one in charge. And then a parade of managers have been there in the years since. But that was a long run he had. And he became so associated with the Dodgers. He became such a beloved figure among Dodger fans. He he pretty much revolved his entire identity around the Dodgers, around being associated with the Dodgers. And this was a failed major league pitcher. He was once a pitcher, and it didn't work out. He mentioned that in the little clip I played, which was from when he was a manager, and he was accused of uh, ordering a pitcher to throw at Kirk Bavacqua, who wasn't a very good hitter, and you heard what he had to say about that. And uh, Bavacqua called him a fat little Italian, which is what made him go off like that. He he had a lot of famous profanity-laced tirades, which couldn't be played in those days on TV. We can hear them now on YouTube. But back in those days, they would censor them, and they would print a censored version in the newspaper. So this was already a famous rant back in the day. He became manager after uh, working with the organization for, I think, like 25 years or so. Even by the time he took over in 1977, he was already very well known for his association with the Dodgers. So he pretty much went right into the back end of baseball, the managerial end of baseball, uh, very quickly when his career did not work out. This was not a guy who was like a 20-year pitcher. This is a guy who tried to be a pitcher and failed. He pitched a little bit in the major leagues with the Dodgers, and uh, it didn't work out. He was like 0-4 or something in high ERA. He he wasn't good enough to make uh, the major leagues even back then. So he really parlayed that into something very good, very special. Obviously a flawed person in some ways, but he was uh, a very beloved figure among Dodger fans. And we all knew this day would come. 
In fact, I thought it would come much earlier. It seemed like the end for him was going to occur about a month ago because he was in critical condition in a coma in early December, and he was 93 and obese. I mean, of course, the prognosis was not good, and it was assumed that he was probably going to pass away in early December, only to recover and get better and better to the point to where on January 5th, they released him. And at that point, it really looked like uh, Tommy was going to live forever because he got through that and, in fact, was sent home and seemed to be in relatively good condition after a month earlier looking like he was going to die and he was in a coma. So very, very good news on January 5th, which was extremely short-lived because he had a massive heart attack at home on the same day he was released. So he got rushed back to the hospital. He didn't die right away, but two days later he was gone. So rest in peace, Tommy Lasorda, definitely a Dodgers legend. Even in his final years, I, I probably not last year because of uh, everything going on with COVID, but in 2019, I'd go to Dodger games and I'd see him right there in the seat that he had for many, many years. And he, he watched a lot of home games. He was at most home games. And even in his early 90s, he went. He fell asleep sometimes, but yeah, the guy was over 90. I mean, of course that's going to happen. So Dodgers have had uh, two losses in the past week. Tommy Lee was the big one, and then also uh, Vin Scully's wife passed away. who has been with him for almost 50 years. And Vin Scully's the same age as Tommy. His wife is actually 17 years younger than him, but she died of ALS. And you know what they say about very old people who lose their longtime spouse, what usually happens. And it's because a combination of depression and actually kind of like a lack of will to live that seems to kill very elderly people when their longtime spouse dies. It doesn't happen every time, but there is definitely an elevated chance that you're going to pass away if you've been married a very long time and your spouse dies and you're very old. Like if your spouse dies and you're 60, then no, that doesn't apply. But if you're like over 80, especially over 90, then yes, your chance of uh, going pretty soon is very high. So hopefully that won't be the case for Vince Scully, but at 93, obviously he doesn't have that much time left. Anyway, we have a free roll tonight. Uh, I apologize for the, to the people who were already in the free roll because I knew I was forgetting something. And it turned out what I was forgetting was to reset the free roll time, which was the Right date, but the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. So it started at 9.45, and I said, oops, by the time I start this show, it's going to be past the close of registration. So 18 minutes into it, I shut it down, which I'm sure pissed off at least a few people. The good news is if you busted, then you will be able to play again. And if you were one of the chip leaders, you're probably really angry at me. That's the way it goes. You know, if uh, if I have not posted the radio agenda yet and the free roll has already started, you can assume it's going to be shut down. I'm just telling you that in advance so you know in the future. So anyway, it is going now. And the good news is uh, if you got kicked out of the other one, which you did if you were in it, you can get in now. You can get in all the way until 1035 Pacific time. Right now it's only 1019. So you've got 16 more minutes to get in. And the prize pool is $50 this week. $30 came from Duke Kaboom, a radio listener. I appreciate that from him. We have more money to use from him in future weeks, but we're using 30 this week. And uh, $20 came from Fake M-Dog again. Remember Fake M-Dog? Not real M-Dog, but Fake M-Dog has donated to the free roll. So uh, that is who 
donated this week. It is $50, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third is the way that is all playing out. So um, I'm going to go through the agenda, then we're going to make a phone call. I'm going to have to take a short break because I noticed I forgot something in this room that I need. But uh, when that break is over, then we will make a phone call to someone we haven't heard from in a little bit. But uh, let me complete the agenda, and then we will get going with that phone call after my very short break. It'll be like a minute. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you want to text that number, you can do the same during the show. I do read the texts. I will read them on air unless you ask me not to. But if you text me after the show or before the show, I probably won't read it on the air. I have no guarantees. But you can text me really anytime, and I probably will respond to you. 775-372-8355. It's also our main call-in number. The alternate call number is the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone on the top of Mount Charleston near Las Vegas, which is in a cabin. And you can call up, and it will forward to me wherever I go. You can't text it, but you can call it. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. The Mount Charleston line. That has been up since the beginning of this show. It briefly went down, but I put it back up. It's something I'm not going to get rid of. If you want to listen to the show, but you don't have a computer, you don't have a smartphone, you don't have a data plan, maybe your data plan doesn't have much data, maybe you're driving and your connection just isn't very good and the thought of trying to stream something seems like it's just not going to work because you don't have a very good connection, maybe you have like one bar in the mountains, use the call to listen line. It does not require any data. It does not need a smartphone or the internet or a computer. It will not cost you any data if you have data. It's just very simple. You just call it and listen. The phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or you can call the alternate one, 641-741-1095, 641-741-1095. The alternate call to listen line, they work the same way, but there's there's two of them, just in case you need it, because once in a while, one doesn't work. If you want to go into the chat room, you need a forum account in good standing, but the good news is it works with any device. The chat room was replaced last month, and now it works with any device, so go ahead and check it out. The radio tab is where you can see all the phone numbers for the show. You can see other information, including uh, ways you can listen in the archives, which include iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Tune in, which you can also use for the live show, by the way. And uh, the Bullhorn app, which actually has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. And uh, Spotify and iHeartMedia. So we have a lot of different ways to listen. You can click on the MB3 button there if you'd like to be directed to the forum that has every show in MP3 format that you can either play directly without any external player, just click on it, it'll work, or you can download the MP3 and save it for later. So, a lot of different ways to listen. If you want any other way to listen, please let me know. I've gotten some suggestions for YouTube. The one problem with YouTube is that it's a separate upload for me. These other methods I'm talking about automatically upload. There's no way for me to do that with YouTube, so I would have to manually upload each show, which is a bit of a pain in the ass, especially because I can't just send the MP3 there because I have to put some kind of video, even if it's like a still video of the, of the Poker Fraud Alert logo, uh, still, I have to insert it there, which takes some time. It's just like 
time-consuming. I might do it anyway as an experiment and see how well it's used. The other thing, and you're going to laugh at this, but if I put up a YouTube method of listening, I imagine not many people are going to use it, and it might make the show look bad if people go over there and see it has like 30 views. (laughs) And you may say, why do I care? Because a lot of people will judge a show by its YouTube views, and this isn't a YouTube show, and you guys know that, but the average listener doesn't. It's going to look very bad like nobody listens. So that would be the one, also one of the reasons I don't want to put it on there. I'm not trying to hide our listenership. We actually have a decent listenership. It's just not going to be on YouTube, and I know it. So I don't know. I, I might put it there anyway and not care what anybody thinks, but I, I just... Don't want to even get into that whole discussion. People go, ah, people only listen to your show. Like, you have like 30 people a week. And I go, no, 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 that's not the way people usually listen. Oh, yeah, sure. You're just making that up. You talk to nobody. Like, I, I, I don't, it's not that I can't take the insult. It's just like, that'll be put out there and I've got to answer it every time. And if I don't answer it, it'll look like it, I'm acknowledging it's true. I, I just thought of that too. I'm not saying I won't do it for that reason, but that's just like another irritant I don't really want. Anyway, um, that's right now the version, the, the list of platforms where you can listen to the show. And one other, you can use Amazon Alexa. You can just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Make sure you say the word podcast at the end. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. And it will play on there. Just say it clearly. Say Poker Fraud Alert Radio slowly so it understands. Uh, listen to this. My Alexa in the background is talking. I don't even know where it is. I, I don't even know where the Alexa is in this room. It's been moved around. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it talk in the background. What is it doing? It's like whispering to me. <laughs> it thinks I, it thinks I whispered to it. This is really strange. Uh, I want to talk about the sound card I have with this new computer because I had some people who were complaining, and I asked for feedback, so I'm not complaining about the complaints. I'm actually happy about the complaints because these are people who are giving me feedback rather than just uh, not saying anything and not liking it. So I had to get an external sound card for this new computer, and I had to switch computers because the other one's screen was barely working anymore. So I got this new laptop, and unfortunately it did not have a stereo mix feature, nor was there any way to enable one. I tried very, very hard. I put many hours into it. I could not figure it out. I just don't think it's possible. So I bought an $80 external sound card, which you plug into USB, and it can stereo mix. Stereo mix is necessary so I can hear the co-host, so I can play you sound effects, so I can take calls, things like that. Without stereo mix, I can't do that. I can only just talk to you with nothing else, and you guys don't want that. So it was essential to have stereo mix. The sound card, I got some people telling me it didn't sound that good. I had some others saying it sounds fine. But I had some people saying that it didn't sound that sharp. I had some people saying that it sounded okay, but not quite as good as the other one. I had somebody saying they couldn't even listen because it was so bad. Not that they couldn't hear, but that it was bothersome that I didn't sound that good. So they just they quit listening after 25 minutes. So I don't know what to say here. When I went back and listened, because when I edit the show, I listened to the show too. It sounded fine to me. But I didn't, maybe because I didn't have headphones in. I listened through a computer speaker where it's not as crisp anyway. So through that, it sounded fine. Now, there was a volume complaint, which is a valid complaint because the volume was changing on the show where it would go from loud to soft, loud to soft, loud to soft, which I'm sure was bothersome. Now, I fixed some of that in the archives. So if you didn't hear that much of it, that's why. But 
I believe I have taken care of that. That turned out it was not the fault of the sound card. I think that was the fault of Skype trying to adjust my microphone when I didn't want it to. So I turned that feature off, and I think that's going to stop. If you still hear the volume change this week, let me know, but I think that's been fixed. But uh, let me know also this week if it sounds any better in general, because I did make one other adjustment to the sound settings themselves to where maybe I will sound better. So I hope I do. I hope I sound at least very close to as good as I did before. The listener who was most bothered by how I sounded was asking me, how much money is it going to take? Why can't you just get sound quality like Joe Rogan has? How much money is it going to take? Maybe you can raise the money. I said, it's not really about money. Here's the problem. Joe Rogan has a professional studio that he sets up just for his show. His show does bring in a ton of money, as you might guess. And he has uh, professionals editing it and, and setting up the sound system and all that. I am using a space here, which is used for other things as a, quote, radio studio. So I, I can't set up like a permanent studio here. That's the first problem. Second, I'm doing it through a laptop that I need to uh, bring up things to discuss during the show. Because I, I read things on the laptop that are notes or articles or anything else that's uh, pertinent to what I'm talking about. Also, I use the laptop to play sound effects. If I had a sound effects guy in the other room, then yeah, he could use the laptop, it could be connected, and he could play the sound effects for me. I don't have that. I do it all myself. So there's a lot of things that it's not about money. It's about the fact that I run the whole thing myself and the fact that I can't set up a, a, a big radio setup here that's not movable like Joe Rogan has in his studio. So there's a lot of reasons why I can't have equivalent sound quality to him. Also, I don't believe he takes calls. I, I've never seen him take a call. I'm not a regular listener of his, but I've I've watched his show occasionally. It, it just looks like either he's talking himself or he has guests, and he talks to the guests through a microphone. You don't need stereo mix for that. At, at that point, I could sound very good. I could sound much better than I do because I could use the internal sound card. And uh, there wouldn't be Skype involved. It would just be very simple, just me talking to a microphone. But this show needs to get phone calls, and I need to connect to co-hosts remotely, so I need that too. So it's not that it's impossible to sound better. It's just uh, it's not really practical. And so as long as I sound good, and believe me, sound quality is very important to me, and it bothers me when someone says to me that I don't sound good enough for them to continue listening, that the sound is bothering them. So... If enough of you say that, I will definitely make a change because I don't want that. I don't want you to say, oh, you know, I used to like the show, but the sound quality is such crap now, I just can't stand it. Because I've heard podcasts like that where the sound quality sucks and it drives me away even if their content is good. I don't need it to sound perfect, but I have had it where it's it's kind of garbled, it's kind of distant, it's too soft, it's too echoey. Uh, there's a lot of sound issues I've heard with other shows that kind of drive me away. I don't want to listen anymore. And, and keep in mind, I don't expect perfection. I mean, I listen to Ben Shapiro, just hearing his voice is, is nowhere near perfection, as you guys know. So I don't have super high standards for that, but it's got to at least sound clean. And if it doesn't sound clean and sound easily listenable, then that's a problem. So I want to make sure it does. And I'm kind of testing out the sound card. So give me further feedback how this sounds compared to last week, especially if you're listening live, because then nothing's going to be edited. But in the archives, too, let me know how it sounds compared to last week and compared to two weeks ago when I was using the old computer, which probably sounds a little bit better, but tell me how much different it sounds. Okay, that's the end of my rant about the sound quality. I don't want to take up too much time with all of that. So we're going to connect Trader Ruski on right now. 
and then we're going to make our phone call. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Risky, hello. You sound a little bit garbled like your internet connection is not good. Okay, so we're going to make a phone call here, see if this person will answer. Yeah. Master Scaler, hello. Hey, what's happening? You sound very uh, tired, is that true? Um, moderately, I don't know. Well, what time did you wake up today? 1047. You know exactly 10, how do you know 1047? That's like very exact. Because I looked at the, the, the alarm, even though it wasn't on, but 1047. Your digital watch? I don't have that digital watch. I was on Love Connection. Yeah, Ken, Ken talked about his digital watch when he was on Love Connection. Just uh, If you want to see him on Love Connection, you can actually go on YouTube and type in Ken Scaler, S-C-A-L-I-R, Love Connection. You can see his appearances. In fact, I was in the audience for one of them. But, uh, yeah. Master Scaler, I want to talk to you about the COVID you had. So you got COVID at the end of uh, October, and uh, you had the experience where the COVID itself was kind of moderate, but you couldn't get the negative test. So, uh, can you describe yeah, for the people here? Sleep. Describe for the people here how you felt when you had COVID at the worst point. What did it feel like? I didn't want to get out of bed. I was tired. I was lethargic. I was coughing. I had no appetite. And you, you didn't lose uh, smell was, or taste, right? No, that's weird. And well, not everybody loses it. Had no trouble breathing. You know, uh, that's the two big things there. You didn't lose the smell or taste, and you didn't have trouble breathing, and. How bad was the cough at the worst point? It was pretty bad. I would cough, like, constantly. But you never had trouble taking your breath. It's just, like, everything brought on a cough, basically. Yeah, it was just, it was awful. How fatigued were you? Like, some people reported they had a hard time even getting up to go to the bathroom because they were that fatigued. Were you ever like that? I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to get out of bed. Okay. Uh, And so how long did those symptoms last? It was really bad for about a week and a half, two weeks. I was sick for about three three to four weeks. Then I was felt like 100% for it a couple weeks, but I still kept testing positive. Yeah. And you... In fact, I kept sending my test results to Todd because he kept booking the appointment because they had a terrible website, the city of LA, to do free COVID tests. I did the one where you didn't drive through. You had to walk up and... Yeah, and I was I was actually uh, what I was doing with Ken was I would uh, get the results and then I would send them to him. So I would get them first, but I'd immediately forward them over to him. And every time he kept getting the bad news, it kept saying positive, positive, positive. And finally, he got negative after uh, well over a month from when he uh, first it's got still COVID. The news that that company that the city of LA used has a lot of false false and negatives, but I mean, oh well, too late now. So. Well, I, I, it, it is true that in general there's a lot of false negatives with COVID tests, but I, I have a feeling you're really negative now, especially because they. And, and this was the one. And this is the one that was. I just did a swab. It wasn't the thing that goes up your nose. Yeah. Well, the, the one way up your nose is technically the best, but it still gets a lot of false negatives. So th- there's yeah. no COVID test that exists that has a low false negative rate. So that's that's one mm-hmm. thing people don't understand. Now, uh, Master yeah. Scaler, a lot of people asked me this, and I, I couldn't answer for you. Um, oh, by the way, former L.A. City Councilman Tom LaBonge died. He was 67. I did, I did not know that, but I, that doesn't have to do with my question. Yeah. My question is... Uh, I know, I know. I just, I just wanted to say the word he, he Tom died, he died on COVID, the air. Though, did, did he die of COVID? Wait, what? He died of, he died of COVID. 
he had cardiac arrest. But what, so it wasn't related to COVID at all, or not? No, no, no. He was totally healthy, and he had cardiac arrest. Well, I guess when he was asleep, and when his wife found him on the couch asleep, they couldn't revive him. They think his heart just stopped beating. Oh, so he just died in his sleep at age sixty-seven. Hmm. So okay, yeah. uh, Master Scaler. A lot of people have asked during those uh, two weeks, maybe three weeks there. Uh, how did it affect uh, something that you've been doing in, in Starbucks? I, I know you weren't going to Starbucks. That. You, you're not answering. You not, did you do it at all? Not for a few weeks. That's, okay, so you really? So, so there was actually no uh, no touching yourself there in any way for a week. Is that what you're telling us? Well, I mean, I had I had to urinate, but you know. No, but I mean, in, in, in a in a sexual way. You're telling me that just didn't happen no, no, at all. No, 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 no. I, wow. I, I hope your son isn't hearing this. No, no, he's not. I wouldn't say this in front of him. This is an adult show, oh, so I okay. can say it. But, uh, but no, we, you, you're famous for this here with, the, with visiting the Starbucks and their bathroom. I mean, the, people want to know the that update was with a that. One-time thing. That, that, that was a one-time thing, and you know that. Okay, I mean, it's, it's a different time. I, I would think three weeks is a long time not to do that. I mean, back back when I did the Starbucks thing, Lyndon Larouche was still alive. You know? <laughs> I, I'm just saying, three weeks seems like a lot, though. I can picture. That if you're feeling yeah, very sick, Lyndon Larouche on this show. But I'm not talking about Lyndon Larouche. Lyndon Larouche before Wayne Allen Root, who's a libertarian and a poker guy. Well, you know what? Master Scaler once ordered me a Lyndon Larouche newsletter. I started getting these newsletters from him that I didn't want, but uh, Ken ordered them for me anyway. Oh really? You're not. I thought you're not mixing it up with the Hillsdale College. No, the Hillsdale, Hillsdale College, College thing was fine. That 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 was okay. I was actually happy you signed me up for that. But the the uh, did you still get it, or did it finally disappear? Uh, it Hillsdale actually finally College disappeared. Thing. Strangely enough, it was. I, I got that for so many years, like over two decades, and then it just kind of vanished. Why don't you call them and get it back again? Do they still publish it? <laughs> I, I don't even know. But uh, uh, what was the name of that publication? It was, it, it was called. It was called Imprimis. Oh, in Primus. Yeah, I remember it was a right-wing college in Michigan, and yes. Christian college, but I think the head of it had like a sex scandal. Yeah, this is this is Hillsdale College, which is in Michigan, and it they say they will not take any federal funding, so they refuse to listen to the federal government about anything about what should be taught, and they, uh, they, they're very uh, Western civilization-focused. It, it is... Uh, Mostly a Christian college, though I don't think they push that really hard there. But that is mostly what it is. And uh, like Bob Jones in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah and and they have a uh, a newsletter, and this is what they use to fundraise. It's a free newsletter they've been sending out for a long time called Imprimis, which is a a fairly right wing uh, newsletter that they send for free, and uh, then they they ask for donations. But uh, Ken signed me up for this. Because you you used to be conservative back then. I figured, oh, it's free. You know, get a conservative publication. You know, I send it to your P.O. box. Yeah, so then they started getting all the address forward, so then they were just automatically going wherever I was. So it followed me for a long time. And what Ken's talking about with the sex scandal was that uh, they had a really weird scandal there with, like, the president of the college that uh, he had sex with the daughter of his – like, not the daughter. He had sex with the wife of his son. His son's wife, he had sex with a wife, which is really strange. Yeah. So so when that happened, of course, he once that came out, then uh, 
he had to resign. I think th- I think the girl killed herself too because she was like so confused over the whole thing. Oh yeah, it was, it was like worse than the Jerry Falwell thing with Liberty University. Yeah, so it was a, but that's a really weird thing because you know even if you are attracted to your son's wife and even if she is attracted to you, you would think you would have enough loyalty to your son where you would never do yeah. that to him, but. Uh, for yeah, some reason, materials, you know, it's an in-law, you know, material. Yeah, I mean, I can understand him having an attraction, but you just keep it to yourself. You yeah. don't say anything. You don't do anything. Uh, it's your son. You don't. You don't screw over your son like that. I mean, that's dead, not her. You know. Yeah, that's, that's pretty horrible. So, so he, of course, resigned. Yeah after that and someone else took over now it was interesting because they they didn't even mention it they just mentioned there's a new uh, president of the university and they didn't say why but we knew why yeah well, they never mentioned the scandal and imp- 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 what's it called it, it's called imprimis i-m-p-r i-m-p-r-i-m-i-s imprimis i think and, it's latin they, they push latin there at that school so it's yeah i think it is a latin word. word yeah i forgot what it means but anyway i haven't gotten it in many years but yeah i guess i could start it up again but Ken signed me up for you that. Really he should. Says, you he, really, really should. I'm not. I'm not signing up for Lyndon LaRusse's newsletter, though, especially because he's not alive anymore. Yeah, I, I didn't enjoy that one. It, it was. It, it was. It was very crazy that newsletter. I, I didn't agree with the the stuff written there. So is it is, is it is, is it as crazy as the guy dressed up as a Viking that stormed the Capitol? Well, we'll talk about that later in the show. We, we will talk about the Viking guy uh, storming the Capitol. That yeah, was, and the other guy put his, his, his feet on the Nancy Pelosi desk wall. Another guy stole a laptop, from what I understand. Yeah, it, it was a very strange scene that, of course, shouldn't have happened. So, Yeah, well, it makes the conservative movement look very, very bad. It did. I mean, you're right. It did make the conservatives look bad. Uh, even, an indie, even an indie rock singer was part of the crowd. Uh, that Ariel Pink guy was, was there, and, and so was the lead singer of that death metal band, Ice Earth. He actually... Storm the Capitol. I think he's wanted by the FBI now. I forgot his name. He's the lead singer of Iced Earth, which is not the Iced Earth guy was. Oh my God! Hey Ken, let me just say, you know what was tripping me out when I was watching it the other day? Half the people were like, looked like my grandma or something. That were rubbing. I know. (laughs) Was that crazy? And then three of them had attacks, right? Yeah, I know, and it would trip me out. Is like when people storm the Capitol, it's like what do they do? They just sat in random chairs and walk in random offices. Like they had no plan. No, they had no plan. I th- it was a very spur of the moment thing. Anyone who says this was Chihuahua. Yeah, anyone who says this was organized. A couple people wanted to like execute Michael Pence, but other than that, like what were they just walking around? They they didn't they didn't have a plan. They just did it, and then like okay, we're here now. What do we do? That's pretty much what happened. Yeah, they literally didn't know what to do. Is you know. They had no direction, you know, not like the band, but little, no no one was guiding them. They're inside. Now what? You know? Yeah. Well, if okay. They were, well, if they were like black people, like Black Lives Matter. They would have all just been massacred instead of being white trash, you know? So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Ma- Master Scaler, uh, thank you for coming on the show. I just wanted to get a little uh, update from you before we begin here. And we, I happen to talk to you. By, by the way, is there, are they ever going to open the Drew? Eventually, yeah. There's no point to open right now, though. It's the Drew's going to open. There's a lot of debate whether that's ever going to happen or have to have new ownership. Like the Drew's a big screw right now. It's just it's just a white elephant sitting there. It it is, especially because of COVID, and uh, they'll see what happens. Like they'll see if if it's worth. Vegas world, but Vegas world is plowing along. Resorts world has a lot more money behind it. It's a giant company behind Resorts world. Vegas world is gone. Vegas world is the old stratosphere. You're talking about Resorts oh, I World. Say, oh, I say Start Vegas World. In. I meant Resorts World. I keep saying Resorts World. Yeah, which I think is Hilton branding part of it. But yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I think it'll open in some way. It could be a different company at some point, uh, but it, I don't think they're going to rush to open during the pandemic. I just really hate voids. They really got to open the Drew, you know, and have like a buffet because, you know, the Venetian <laughs> Plaza never had a buffet. Buffets are not going to be big for a while. That's going to be something that well, they, well, retracts. Get vaccinated, people. Don't, don't listen to the hey, hey, they type. came back. They came back. They came back after anthrax. So you know, your buffets have hope. Oh. Well, know, let's. They, 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 and I think there's still one buffet open in Las Vegas. I forgot what it's called, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not. They won't be gone, but it's gonna. There's gonna be a lot less desire to go to them than before for the general it's in a public. Locals hotel. It's in a local hotel. So I don't know if it's Boyd or one of those other locals. I think a number of things are going to change, especially if COVID never completely goes away. There's going to be a number of things that change regarding what people want to do compared to before. Are they still going to have the nightclubs and all those pool parties? I, I, think that will dec- I think that will also decline, but I think that may at least have a chance to come back because uh, it's mostly young people into that stuff. Oh, yeah, they still want a party. They want to, like, you know, go see BTS or whatever. Well, young people just aren't that afraid of it because they're not that vulnerable. So those have a better no, chance of coming back than things that are, like, have a lot of crowds that have older people. That it may be harder for older people to get back into a thing where there's, like, a lot of crowds and a lot of people close together. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. You still got to continue spanking at the Heart Attack Cafe if you don't finish your meal. You know, Ken, whenever I hear you talking about uh, spanking, I think of something else. I read that. I've never been there. But. <laughs> well, what does she look like? It, it depends what she looks like, whether I'd want that. I, I've, never, I've never been there. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I drop. Before I've been, you get rid of Ken, let me just ask you a quick question. You know, when, when Tony Shea died, is there... Like any of that at Container City, downtown Vegas, has anything changed in the status of that? I'm assuming it was like owned through his company or something, but have you heard anything about that? I haven't heard anything. Well, I didn't, I didn't. He's talking about the Zappos uh, I know owner. Open, I, know, I know they opened that new hotel in downtown Vegas. What's it called? He's talking about Circa. Now, Ken doesn't know anything. He's he's still stuck on Circa. No, which I, is, heard Circa I heard Circa is really like... A real, it's, you have to be 21 to go in there, except for like one little part. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's kind of old news already. Okay, well, thank you, Ken, for coming on here. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, I'm, I'm alive. Okay, everybody knows he's alive and he's healthy. Good and night. I'm negative from from coronavirus. Yeah, I don't like Co- the word COVID 19. I prefer the old term. Okay, coronavirus. it's the coronavirus. Though, though some colds are coronaviruses too, so that's why they say COVID 19. Oh yeah, I know coronavirus is an umbrella term that includes COVID 19 and other stuff. That's yeah, why including the common. Some common colds are coronaviruses. But everybody listening to this show has had a coronavirus before, just not this coronavirus. Oh, okay. So coronavirus is broad, and COVID nineteen yeah. is a specific one. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've had a lot of coronaviruses in my life, just nothing like this. Because I never heard the term coronavirus until COVID-19. Yeah. They used to just call it a coronavirus, and then it kind of switched to, to COVID-19. Yeah, well, this is the worst one, so that's why it's getting oh, all the attention. Nightmare. i got, I got to get that vaccine, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer, Oxford, you know, Aztec, Zeneca, whatever it's called. The AstraZeneca, but yes, okay. Thank you, Master Scaler. We will talk to you later. Okay, I am the master. You are. No, no argument about that one. I am. Okay. So I just wanted to give you guys a Master Scaler update. I know some people aren't a fan of his. Some people just uh, don't like that segment. But I have people who love it, uh, some people who can't get enough of him. So I think some people would want him on for like five hours. But I just wanted to get an update from him. 
and I talked to him right before the show began. So I said, Ken, leave your phone on, and I'm going to call you. Let's move on and talk about the first topic we have. The first topic this week, and we, we again, we don't have any huge topic similar to last week as far as anything in poker and gambling. So I'm just going to go with Vanessa Cade. Now, you may remember Vanessa Cade. She is the one that Dan Bilzerian called a hoe. This was a few weeks ago, and the poker world overwhelmingly took her side. She wasn't that well-known at the time. She's a female poker pro from Canada. At the time when we did our last segment, I was very baffled about her age because she looks fairly young, not really young, but she looks substantially younger than me. And then it seemed like she had a job in 1999, and I figured out she'd have to be like 42, 43. And I go, she looks so much younger than that. Well, it turned out she talked to me after that because she heard the segment and told me, no, 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 I'm not 42 or 43. She didn't tell me her exact age, but she said she's much younger. I kind of got the idea she's around 35. But anyway, she's attractive. She's a poker pro. She's been around for at least a few years, but she's not a big name. She's not that well known. And then she said something about uh, not liking that Dan Bilzerian was signed as a GG poker pro because she felt he was misogynistic and wasn't respectful towards women. He wrote back, shut up, ho, H-O-E, not H-O, shut up, ho, nobody knows who you are. So this ignited a shitstorm where people just went off on Dan Bilzerian for talking to her this way. Now, it is true she kind of started with him by saying that he's a bad choice, that he's a misogynist. She did start off making accusations against him and making uh, uh, levying criticism against Gigi Poker for signing him, but he's the very big name. She was the one who's not very well known, and for him to just attack some woman who's much lesser known than him and call her a hoe, that pretty much validated everything she was saying about him, about being a misogynist and not treating women well. So, Poker overwhelmingly took his side on Twitter. Or not his side, her side on Twitter. And, and bashed him, bashed Gigi Poker for signing him. And she came off looking very good. She also handled it pretty well. But like Initially, instead of acting outraged and acting pissed and acting like this was super offensive to her, she made a joke out of the whole thing. She changed her background picture on Twitter to the picture of a hoe, because he misspelled hoe in the way he was trying to say it. He wrote H-O-E, like the gardening tool. So she changed her background picture to a picture of a hoe and kept talking about this hoe, that hoe about herself. So she took it in good humor, too. So everybody liked that in poker, too. So here was someone who wasn't sanctimoniously lecturing him uh, you know, from like a, an angry feminist point of view. She was kind of joking about it, but at the same time saying, hey, yeah, this pretty much validates everything I've been saying, and she was right. So she was reacted to very well from this whole thing. She got a lot more followers, and I, I don't believe she did this for followers, by the way. Some people say, oh, she's trying to get followers. I don't believe that. But it did increase poker's knowledge of her. The poker world knew of her a lot more after that incident than before that incident. And, again, that's just the way it happened. It was actually Dan Bilzerian's fault. What Dan should have done is ignored her. That's what you do. If you're the big name and you have some troll or someone you think is a troll. She wasn't even really being a troll. She was just being critical. But you have someone saying something negative about you who's, like, uh, compared to you a small name, you don't punch down. That's the term is punching down, like uh, like trying to attack someone much lesser known than you are. You just take it. That it comes to the territory of being famous or semi-famous. So... Dan should have just ignored it. He shouldn't have written Shut Up Ho. 
she not only was better known after this, but her reputation was very good. And it helped that she didn't have any scandals in the past. There was nothing really objectionable about her. She was well-liked by those that did know her already. People said that she's very nice in person, that she's not arrogant at all. She's she's just very pleasant to be around, and she's attractive. So like, there are a lot of things about her. And she even seemed like she's pretty smart. She has a background in computer science. like So everything about her looked good, and the poker world liked her. Those that didn't know her before, those that didn't know her before had great things to say. She was flying high. Then things started to change a little bit because she milked it too much. She went on with it too much. And she started to push away from kind of doing good-natured jokes about it and putting pictures of a hoe on her page and started more to transition into pressuring Gigi Poker to fire him. So every time Gigi Poker would announce something, she would respond, when are you firing? She'd respond, when are you firing Dan? Or if they mention anything about Dan, she's especially responding. She just went on and on and on with, when are you getting rid of Dan? Now, it's fine for her to say after this incident, get rid of Dan. That's totally fine. But when they don't, which they did not do, at that point, you drop it. You don't hassle them over and over and over again when you're getting rid of Dan, or you kind of come off like a whiner. You kind of come off like uh, someone who is dragging this along. Because it was offensive what he wrote, for sure. He should not have written it. It was disrespectful. It was misogynistic. There, there's uh, uh, All those criticisms of him were true. I'm not defending any of it, and I'm not minimizing what happened here. But at the same time, it wasn't a major incident. It was something he shouldn't have done, especially being like a public figure. But, okay, he got his bad reaction. Everyone kind of spanked him forward on Twitter. And that should have been it. But she went on with it for a little bit too long, and people started to get some distaste for this. Some people started thinking that maybe she is exploiting this for attention, which I don't think she was from what I can tell of her personality. I just kind of think that she was encouraged by the positive response she got and the negative response he got, and she kind of felt like a little bit too empowered. She kind of felt like, okay, I can just keep hassling Gigi Poker, and they're going to give him his comeuppance because they already looked bad for this after, you know, because of what he did. So uh, if we hassle them enough, uh, they'll get rid of him, which, which wasn't really the right approach because when they're not doing it, you just kind of drop it. It wasn't a big enough incident to harp on them forever about this. And nobody else was interested in this enough to go on with this for weeks and weeks. So it's not that she looked bad at that point, but she already lost some people that had thought nothing but great things about her initially. I'm not talking about the people who knew her in person or knew her prior to this. I'm talking about people who just got to be aware of her when this happened. They went from a very positive impression of her to some of them thinking, okay, you know what? I wish she just kind of dropped this. She's milking it for too long and pressing this for too long. Now, I wasn't really in that category. I totally understood why those were saying that why they were and why it was kind of getting bothersome to constantly see popping up on Twitter, Dan Bilzerian this, Dan Bilzerian that. Like, enough is enough. I did notice that uh, there were starting to be some cracks in the way people were perceiving her, and there were some people who were starting to come back with negative comments. She wasn't really responding to them, but... I saw them, they were there, and that wasn't there before. Well, something else happened in the past week that also turned off some people to her. 
And this this really is an example of how quickly things can change for you on Poker Twitter. Poker Twitter is a very fickle place. I'm going to say before I do this here that I still have no problem with Vanessa Kate. I think she's she seems like generally a good person. She seems you know, everything I've heard from people that have met her has been positive, and everything positive that I've said about her in the past on that other show. I still stand by. So I, I haven't really changed my mind about her, but it's just interesting how this can change. But I will agree that the criticism people were bringing in her direction as a result of what she said on uh, January 3rd was valid. I, I think she screwed up and it had nothing to do with Bilzerian. So here's what happened. She had a boyfriend for quite some time. I don't know much about him. If he was in poker, I just saw pictures of him on her page. She was traveling with him and taking beach pictures, whatever. So... That must have ended, and she posted on January 3rd, No several recently single poker players when discussing prospects. Lists are short. Name a successful single pro poker player who wants a relationship, is kind, smart, fun, cute, not sleazy, good person, no drug and alcohol problems. Who would you date if you were us? So I saw this, like, oh, wait, is she talking about herself, or is she trying to get her friends' dates? But, yeah, it turned out she was trying to get dates for herself and her friends. She was trying. She was basically saying, uh, we're trying to find guys in poker to date, but most of you guys suck. I mean, that's clearly what that's saying. She said, lists are short. She said, when discussing prospects, lists are short. So it's definitely not from a lack of guys in poker. There's far, far more men in poker than women in poker. I mean, just by a very wide margin. So one thing you don't have to complain about if you're a female is I can't find single men in poker. You can find tons of single men. So she was basically saying here, yeah, there's a ton of single men, but we're looking for ones that are successful single pro poker players, that they want a relationship, not just sex, that they're kind, smart, fun, cute, not sleazy, a good person with no drug or alcohol problems. Now, it's, it's fine to have these standards, but the way the tweet came off was that she's saying she actually said lists are short. The prospect list is short based upon this, that this encompasses very few people in poker. Very few guys in poker meet these standards. Uh, everybody else kind of sucks is what she's saying. And Hey, can you suggest who should we be dating? She didn't talk about who these other friends are. She just she was including herself, apparently, according to future tweets. But it, it's basically her and these unnamed friends want to date guys in poker but think everybody pretty much sucks and they need suggestions, which doesn't come off very well. Then she went on to write, Since it's asked a lot why it has to be a poker pro, it doesn't necessarily have to be, not for me at least, I can't speak for others, but it's probably ideal. Lots of available women with an interest in poker probably reading this thread, so go nuts if you want to put yourself out there. Now, I will admit when she put this out here, it wasn't with a nasty tone. It wasn't with a malicious tone. She wasn't trying to make fun of the men in poker or say, hey, you guys are all losers. Are there any non-losers out there? Like, she's not trying to say it that way. She thought she was putting out, like, here's my requirements. So if you are single and male and and want to date some women in poker, here's a thread where you can put yourself out there. Hey, I'm single and male and I I meet these requirements. Uh, Consider me. That's what she was hoping for in this thread. That's not what she got in this thread. What she got in this thread were a number of different types of responses, and all of them were pretty embarrassing. And also, the whole thread was embarrassing. The fact that she started this was embarrassing and put it the way she did. So she got some cringy, predictable responses from guys 
We're like, oh, pick me. Come on. I, I, I think I meet uh, those criteria. I think I, I meet uh, most of the criteria. What about me? What about me? So there are a few idiots who responded like that, which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, Alan Kessler responded asking if she would consider him. I'm, I'm going to guess that he was joking, but who knows? <laughs> Kessler, by the way, is like way okay, older than her. Why does it got to be all that? Kessler, you never know. Well, but he's way older than her. He could be like her father. She, he's like 57 or something. Like, like he's, he, he can be a sugar daddy. He can <laughs> yeah. be a sugar daddy. <laughs> so he, at least Kessler kind of did it in a self-effacing way, I think. So I, I'm not going to bash him for responding there. But now, he wouldn't turn it down. If she said, yeah, Kessler, I'll go out with you, he would have jumped at it. But uh, I... I don't think he was expecting to be taken seriously in that one. But anyway, she got a lot of responses from guys who did want to be taken seriously. And, uh, and then someone said, well, I don't quite meet all of that, but I meet most of that. So you had that in there. Then you had people saying, hey, why does it have to be poker players? You shouldn't date poker players. That's not very good. It's not very healthy. Uh, you should try to date outside of poker. And so there are people saying that she shouldn't even be looking for poker pros. But then she got a lot of people responding negatively because they felt that this was insulting to the men in poker. That it was, it was It looked arrogant. It looked like she's calling all men in poker losers. And that uh, she's having such a hard time finding anyone who seems like a good dating prospect, despite the very large number of men in poker. And I have to admit, like rereading these tweets, even though it doesn't look like she meant it that way, it's kind of hard to understand what she did mean if she didn't like mean this at least in a nice way, like as nice as it could be. Like I don't think she came out there thinking, "Hey, these guys are all losers, and I'm going to let them know that." But it was kind of like, "Hey, I'm looking for." these guys with these good qualities and we're thinking of poker players we just can't think of guys with all these qualities so if you're one of them let me know but she doesn't hold on hold on a lot of it was about the relationship stuff too so i can see how you know so i I don't i mean i just didn't take it that way and i think people can do what they want well so i'll tell i'll show you i'll play you i'll play you a comment for someone who did take it that way will jaffe who got some uh, he got a lot of props for something he recorded for uh, Bill Perkins a few weeks ago, where uh, he did what he called uh, a tough convo, and it was Bill Perkins was saying something kind of weird or, or strange or stupid, whatever, whatever it was. So I forgot the whole story why he made his tough convo with Bill Perkins, but he said, "All right, Bill, time for a tough convo," and then he he would kind of put out this blunt, like two minute commentary, which is kind of mixed with humor but say it all very seriously, and people loved it. It got a very good reaction. So upon seeing this, he decided it's time for another tough convo, since the first one got such a good reaction. And here was his tough convo with Vanessa Cade, same day, January 3rd. All right, guys. Uh, It's been a minute, but it's time for another tough convo. Um, And uh, it's time to have a tough convo with uh, Vanessa Cade, because uh, apparently she's looking for... uh, some good single successful poker players out there to hook her friends up with. Um, and let me just break this down for you real simple, Vanessa. Don't date other poker players. It's just a terrible idea. I'll set the scene for you. You're even playing for three days straight at the Rio. You, you bubble a final table in 10th place. You drive home to your Airbnb, expecting your partner to open you with open arms, hug you, maybe even give you some sex. And they just look at you and say, baby, you know that's a fold with ace three suited, right? So obviously he's trying to be funny here, but it's actually a good point that 
sometimes it is better as a poker pro to not be with another poker pro because there, there can be a lot of issues that will come up that would only come up with two poker pros together. So, uh, like the one he brought up, that what if uh, if you just want some sympathy when you busted and they want to hear what was your bust out hand, what was their stack size, what was this? Like sometimes you just want, to, oh, that's too bad, that really sucks. Like you don't want to go through a whole replay with them. I, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but you also have other things. What you'll maybe both of you are never going to be happy at the same time because one of you is always running bad, or. Uh, or, or maybe one person's losing and wants the other one's bankroll. Like, there, there's a lot of stuff that can happen when you're dating another poker pro to where you go, you know, I kind of wish I wasn't. And and I've never dated another poker pro, and I've never wanted to. So I, I can understand what he's getting at here. But then he goes on to talk about uh, some of the other things she mentioned. You're way too low in your range. And that's how murders happen. So just don't do it. I mean, in, in the history of the poker world, there's been one relationship that's worked out. And that's uh, Kristen Bicknell and Alex Foxen, because they're both just robots, just really good-looking, smart, athletic people who just, you know, hit it off. Um, but everything else has failed. I mean, and, you know, if you're really hell-bent on, uh, you know, finding finding someone in the poker world, finding finding a good partner, you know, maybe don't go to run it up Reno, you know. Maybe improve your game selection. <laughs> that was the funniest line in the whole thing. Because she she went to run it up Reno and posted it on her Twitter. And he's basically saying, if you, if you want to find good guys, that's the wrong place to go. And I hate to say it, but he's probably right. You know, maybe go abroad. You know, maybe go to Playa del Carmen. Lots of studs out there. Um, you know, currently, uh, I know a little birdie told me Athanasios Polychronopoulos is single and Athanasios Polychronopoulos is one of the best people in the poker world. He's also just one of the best people in humanity. So there, there are plenty of options out there, you know, and I, I really just feel like, you know, not to be uh, the male social justice warrior here, but like you're basically just calling out like the entire poker community for being scumbag, degenerate drug users. Like what if I what if I made a post saying why why are there no women to date in poker? They're all weirdos. That wouldn't go over well. A little bit of a double standard there. Don't appreciate it. Um, yeah. Okay, so that was the end of the video. Strangely enough, he did this holding his baby. He has a, a pretty young baby. He was holding the baby the entire time he did this speech. The baby's too young to understand any of this stuff, but it's, it's kind of funny he's holding a baby while doing it. But anyway, th- that got uh, 741 likes. So that got a good reaction. And people thought it was funny and appropriate. But that kicked off some other criticism directed at her. Another Jaffe. This is Jared Jaffe, but not related because it's spelled differently. Jared, J-A-F-F-E-E. Will Jaffe only has one E at the end. So Jared Jaffe tweeted this. He tweeted a parody of her original tweet. Hi, some of my male poker friends and I are looking for love in poker. We're basically perfect on and off the felt. Are there any girls in poker out there that aren't completely awful in every way? Obviously, it's a lot to ask, but being totally self-aware is making it tough to find true love. So you see that he wasn't very happy with her tweet. Aaron Massey, who's known as Never Miss Massey on Twitter, he wrote, If you were an undesirable person, would you publicly insinuate that a community you're new to is beneath you? Suggest that you deserve a top-level partner in the community? Ask said community that you insulted to assist you in your search for someone way out of your league? So, obviously that's directed at her. He didn't say it was about her, but I think we 
know what he's saying. Same day he wrote this. So he was coming at her pretty hard, basically saying that she's new, that she's acting like everybody is beneath her, and that additionally that she thinks she needs one of the very, very best people in the poker community, and everybody else is not good enough for her. Now, I'm not going to say she's an undesirable person. I I don't agree with that at all. Uh, There's many positive qualities she has, for sure. If you take a look at her Twitter, you'll see. But I'm not saying she's perfect. I'm not saying that this tweet was good. I know Trader Ruski wasn't bothered. I wasn't bothered. Like, I didn't get offended by this at all. I didn't go, oh my god, she's insulting the men in poker. I'm a man in poker. How dare she say this about me? No, I wasn't thinking that. I, I thought when I read this, I go, okay, I know what I'm going to see. Like, I, I knew before I even read it. I'm going to see people who are going to try to apply for the job very awkwardly, and then I'm going to see people criticizing this because she's basically saying, you all suck. And, and sure enough, that's what she got. It just wasn't phrased very well. It, it was it was ill-conceived. Which, now, uh, Trader Risky did point out something I agree with, and that is that if she just stuck to talking about how she wants guys who are looking for a relationship and that are serious about it aren't just looking to get laid, and that, like, are there any decent guys out there in poker that are actually looking for a relationship, and that's what they really want, not just a uh, one-night stand, and, and they're nice and good-hearted, and they don't have a drug or alcohol problem, uh, let her know if this is you. There's no, there's no problem putting that out. It was that she had this big laundry list of things, and, and one thing that people kind of jumped on, and I, I only half agree with this, but some people jumped on the part where she wrote, cute. And, I mean, she has a right to be asking for a guy she's attracted to. She didn't say what cute means. I mean, cute is very subjective. But uh, some people were asking, well, look, you know, you're putting all these qualities and you're demanding they're good-looking, too. And then she came back actually saying, no, actually, I don't care about looks that much. In fact, I even tried for a while dating guys who, who specifically weren't good-looking, thinking that they would actually treat me better and be nicer and not be arrogant, but they were even worse. So I gave up on that. But, but truthfully, I, if I connect with a guy, I don't really care what he looks like. Now, I don't know if that's true. A lot of people like to say that just to sound good, and then reality, they, they have pretty high standards for looks. But I'm not one who believes that uh, you have to have the standards others tell you to have. Whoever you like, you like. Whoever you're attracted to is who you're attracted to. Whether it's uh, you only are attracted to people who are very good looking or if you're attracted to average or better, you're attracted to pretty much everybody you don't care about looks, or if you're attracted to men or women or both, whatever. It's up to you. It's your own attraction. Uh, I will say you have to be realistic. And if you are saying, I'm only going to date the top 3% of women in looks, and you're nowhere near the top 3% in looks as a man, uh, you're not going to do very well attempting that unless it's a matter of money and you have a lot. Then then you can pull it off. Otherwise, it's probably not going to happen for you. So you do have to be realistic in your standards and sometimes lower them to what's acceptable or at least decent rather than ideal. But I can see we're putting that out there and then like all that stuff out there and putting cute in there. It just it does introduce the impression that uh, there's some shallowness involved. Even though I only like kind of half agree with that criticism, I can see why it looks that way. Given that everything well, else is listed. Also drop, you're right. That is subjective. And so for her to like make a statement like if someone's cute or she'll even she even tried dating ugly guys. So that's like her making a criticism about somebody. Not a fact that they are a certain way. 
So I agree that's a little obnoxious. I did like that Will Guy's video. I thought that was yeah. really good. <laughs> so, like, I, I understand this came out badly. I don't want to make it sound like I, I really think this is horrible or she just negated all the goodwill she got from before. But here's the truth. She did negate some of the goodwill she got from before because it went from everybody just really thinking highly of her to losing a little bit of that from overdoing the response for a while to GG Poker, and then after this, people are like, what the hell's her problem? <laughs> Which Now she's looking down on us? What the hell? So th- there was some backlash. So she she's not a confrontational person. The thing she had with Bilzerian was the first confrontation I've ever seen on her Twitter. At first, she was kind of responding in a nice way to all this. Like, she responded to Will Jaffe's video and just... She, she kind of played along with it and didn't act like she was offended. I don't know if she was or not. But finally today, she actually made some tweets about this. In reference to her talking about dating and how she was looking for someone to date on January 3rd, she gave a little update. Think I realized from posting this, referring to her initial post that got all the controversy, that I'm not ready yet anyway, referring to not ready to date. Got flamed a bit, but seems like a reasonable question. Though, when I think, I think when I said successful, some thought rich, when I really just meant someone I don't want to have to support, as I have with several guys I dated. Okay, now, first of all, I agree with her that if you are a female and you're supporting the guy you're dating, you should get rid of him. I don't mean like someone you've been with a while that loses his job and you've got to help out for, for a moment, but I, I mean, if you are dating a new guy and he's totally broke and then he starts sponging off of you, you you should dump him. That's that's very good advice to women out there. And if you ask uh, any professional, if you go to a, a psychologist or any kind of a relationship counselor and ask, uh, should I date guys who are broke and would like me to support them? Uh, they will all tell you, dump him, get rid of him. So I don't blame her for not wanting that anymore. But I I didn't even think about this when I read it. I'll, I'll admit this one got by me. But when she wrote successful, yeah, that that also did kind of look like, hey, I want someone who's doing very well, who's rich, <laughs> and he's cute, and he's single, and he's fun, and he's and he's uh, a good person, and no drug or alcohol. Like so, this I, I can see why that also kind of irritated people. Like oh, it's almost like uh, just outright gold digging. And I I think she didn't mean that. I think she probably did just mean she doesn't want a guy who's broke. That she just wants someone who is going to take care of himself or financially stable, and that's fine to ask for. But that, that can be the problem when you have a long list of traits you want. Like, if I were single, there would be certain traits I'd want, but I, I admit if I were to list them all in a tweet, it would kind of, it would kind of sound shallow. Because it would sound like I've got like this laundry list and a very narrow view of who I'd be willing to date, and uh, it, it would be opening me up to some criticism. So sometimes these things you just don't say out loud, unless it's like a personal ad. But Twitter isn't a personal ad. That's the problem. So uh, if if you can keep these things in your head, but to say them out loud, it, it can start to turn people off, especially if you're talking about like a whole community and and you're saying, well, most people aren't this way here. So if you're if you're one of the few, let me know. So then she went on to write, secondly, people who work to be the best versions of, of themselves are generally hoping to find the same in a partner. So if this pretty basic list triggers you, it might be time for some introspection on why you think you're not a good person or you want to be healthier. Now, I don't like that comment at all. 
I don't like this. I want this, 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 and this, this. And people are like, you know, that sounds kind of shallow and like you're, you're looking down on us for not being that. You're triggered. You're triggered. You're just mad that you're not that. Like, I, I, I hate when people say things like that. I hate when people act like that you are jealous or triggered or can't stand hearing that you're not as good as what they want. Like, no, you, some, you can come off bad when you talk about your standards if it ends up looking too arrogant or, or too uh, overly specific. So I don't think that's a good thing to say. I mean, I, people should want to be the best versions of themselves. That part's fine, but you shouldn't say, well, if, if you didn't like what I wrote there, you're triggered because you're not this. I, I, I didn't like that part of it. Third, tons of people fit this description. Most of the public-facing ones are not single or don't want to be attached. Yeah, but she didn't say public-facing in her original tweets. I don't know why that is even being talked about here. Many good full-time players flying under the radar just chugging along, hence asking for suggestions. Some people just want to find malice where there's none. Now, I actually agree with that last line. I don't think there was malice. I think anyone believing there was malice is wrong. I think anyone believing that she was writing this looking down on everybody is wrong. I think she really was having this discussion with her friends going, you know what, there's a lot of guys in poker, but a lot of them have problems where I wouldn't want to date them. They have some kind of major showstopper, like they're degenerate gamblers and they can't hold on to money, or they've got a bad drug problem, or bad alcohol problem, or uh, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of psycho. Like they, She can have this in mind that a lot of guys she's met in poker, even ones that seem good at first, have some kind of major flaw and it's kind of off-putting. But that's when you just kind of quietly say to yourself, okay, you know what? I'm not going to date guys in poker. I'm just, I'm finding too many guys with major show-stopping problems. So unless I happen to come across one who, who doesn't have these problems, I'm just going to kind of find guys elsewhere. Like, that's what you do. You just say this to yourself, or you can say this among your good friends. It, it, to putting this out there to the male poker community is not a good idea. And she says tons of people fit this description. Well, no, they don't. She said that they don't. <laughs> I mean, she was saying the pickings are very slim. Those weren't her words, but just saying with all these people, we're, we're having a hard time finding any prospects. So, no, she, tons of people apparently don't fit this description, according to her on January 3rd. So this is a lot of backpedaling that I don't think was necessary. She just wrote all this today, by the way. This was four hours ago. So after sitting on this for six days, she decided to come out with it and say, yeah, you know, I'm not really looking to date now anyway. I just kind of thought about it. Like, I, I kind of wanted a little time off. But, yeah, you guys were just kind of triggered over this, and it wasn't fair. And you're just mad at yourself for not being the person I was talking about. And uh, you took me the wrong way. You know, there's tons of guys like this, even though I said there's not tons of guys like this. So uh, this didn't come off very well either. And she didn't get much of a response. It's just... I haven't seen many answers. It's like 10 responses or something. and Most are just, oh, they don't really understand you, blah, blah, blah. So do, do I think she's a bad person or a shitty person? No. I, everything I said about her before stands. I think that she probably is a, a decent person. She probably wouldn't even be a bad person to date. You know, if you, I guess if you fit her requirements. But uh, I, I could see her being the type that a guy would want as a girlfriend. Like, because she does not appear to be degenerate. She does not appear to be really arrogant, despite what her tweets kind of came off in the last week. She does seem like she's nice. People in, in, in person have had very good things to say about her. And she's attractive. So there's a lot of good things about her. And, and you know, she, and she wants a boyfriend. She doesn't want to just mess around. She doesn't want to play games. So these are all very positive traits if you are looking for a girlfriend in poker. 
So I'm not even saying that she wouldn't make a good girlfriend. I, I'm just saying this this all wasn't approached right. And the right thing to write today, the correct thing to have written would have been, I just looked back on my tweet from six days ago, and I'm sorry if it came off that way. I really didn't mean it like this. Uh, I was just listing the, the qualities that I prefer in a guy and saying, hey, if this describes you, let me know. And I'm sorry if it came off any other way. I didn't mean it like that. I'm not looking down on anybody. And I know there's a lot of great guys in poker. That, that, that would have been it. Like That would have been a great way to follow up if she wants to calm everyone down, even though everyone's pretty much gotten past this because it's been almost a week anyway. So this is not a major scandal, but I didn't think this was handled well. And it shows what can happen on social media. You can go from a darling to someone who's being criticized and mocked and parodied, and you even get a, a a tough conversation video from Will Jaffe. If you're getting a tough convo video from Will Jaffe, you know you messed up. Hey, but like they say, any PR is good PR. So, right? <laughs> that's, she probably got some extra followers from that. Hey, good for her for putting it out there if that's what she's looking for. Maybe she didn't do it the right way, but, you know, sure, whatever. I don't think she's looking for that here. That's the other thing. I think I don't really think she's looking for attention. There's There would be people who'd put this out there for no, attention. No, 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 I was saying, no, I was saying looking for a relationship, just oh. the whole thing to begin with. You know, she put it out there that she's looking for a relationship. So yeah, I well, I, I'm sure she got a lot of responses. Like, I, I can see a lot of dudes in poker, despite all this, still really uh, hoping that she picks them. Because, as I said, there's a lot of good things about her, but... This, this just wasn't uh, a great look. So just got to watch out with social media, especially when there's a lot of eyes on you. You got to watch out with what you say because it can go from being everyone's darling to getting a tough convo all within a few weeks. Okay, well, let's talk about somebody else on social media, someone who is male and someone I'm going to criticize a lot more than I did Vanessa, and that is Prahlad Friedman. Prahlad Friedman is back in the news, and there's some pretty serious allegations against him by none other than his ex-wife. I'm talking about the recent one, not the one who uh, he divorced uh, a number of years ago. So I don't know if they actually got married. He referred to her as his wife, so I'm going to refer to her as his ex-wife, even if they never technically got married. They do have a kid together. This is the girl who refers herself as Aida Leal. She is a Brazilian girl. She is much younger than him. She's in her early 20s, or the early to mid-20s. He is, I think, like 42, 43, something like that. They split up. We've talked about that on this show. They had a lot of uh, public relationship issues on Twitter, which is always lovely. <laughs> if you're having problems with your wife, okay, a lot of people do. 50% of people who get married in the U.S. get divorced. So a lot of people have problems with their spouse, but what you don't do is put it on Twitter. I guarantee any relationship problems I ever have are never on Twitter and never will be on Twitter. So that is the wrong place to hash it out. And they were both guilty of this. She would put stuff on Twitter, he would put stuff on Twitter, and, and people would just look at this and laugh or, or shake their heads or cringe. So you don't do it. It's not not a good idea. But they were, and we watched them from fighting and making up, then fighting and making up, and then eventually uh, uh, completely breaking up. And she apparently has a new boyfriend. I don't know if she's still with him, but she has a boyfriend who is much closer to her age and also, to be honest, appears to be much more of her type. She seems to be into young black men. 
I don't exactly know what race she is. She's dark skinned. I don't know if she, she's. I know she's from Brazil, but that doesn't mean much. There's a lot of different races of people in Brazil. But she looks dark skinned. I don't know if she's black or partially black. Doesn't really matter. She's definitely not white. And it seems like she's just not into white guys. And I say this because she bashes white guys all the time on her Twitter. She even bashed white guys when she was with Prahlad. But she not only does she like not like white guys very much, but she doesn't seem very what, attracted to white guys. She think he was black or something? I don't. I don't. I don't understand it either. I, well, I think because she wanted help maybe with her her career. Talked to him on the phone. She thought he was yeah, black. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it was. She talked to him. <laughs> she talked to him first, and she he's like, yeah, I, I, I can help your career. I, I, I can do it for you. It, it, I, I, yeah, you gotta have a tight career. And she's like, oh, sweet, okay, I'm gonna meet. <laughs> I'm going to meet a young black guy who can help me with my career. She's like, wait a minute, you're a middle-aged white guy. What the hell? Well, all right, I'll go with it. I need help with my career. So um, people have looked at this whole thing, and they go, like, this is before they got married or had a kid or whatever happened with this relationship where it got serious. People looked at this, and you're like, you know what, Prahlad, if you want to bang the young girl who clearly doesn't look like she's ready to settle down, uh, fine, but... You don't get married because this is not going to work out. You you, you got to marry someone who's either in the same place in life as you or wants to be in the same place in life as you. You can't say some young per, some young girl who still wants to be wild and and screw around and and then try to wife her up. It doesn't work out. It never works out, especially if you're much older than her. It's it's hard enough to do that if she's your age. If if you're middle aged and she's in her early twenties, it's never going to work. So I, I don't know what he was thinking. But there were some people suspecting that she was using him to because he may have overstated his influence in the music industry, which is basically none. And uh, you, know, you know why he wanted to be with her, because she was uh, a young girl. So anyway, it uh, did not work out. And as I said, he wasn't even her physical type, it seemed like. And she, she talked about this on her Twitter. She didn't say he wasn't, but she was constantly posting what was her physical type, and it was like the opposite of him. It was like like young, muscular black man. So, okay. That's like not Prahlad. <laughs> so I, I don't understand the whole thing. Anyway, uh, she got with another guy. I don't know if it was towards the end of the relationship or when it was over, but she already was with another guy, and she posted videos of it back in October of of this other guy who was a young muscular black guy and like he's holding her and uh and she's kissing him whatever so and, and she she wrote all these sexual tweets about their time together and how wonderful it is and it was pretty embarrassing for Prahlad because this is before their relationship was completely over when she was writing all these sexual tweets about how this guy uh, uh makes her body feel like she's never felt before it just really makes Prahlad look bad like he he can't satisfy her with, like this guy does she didn't directly say that but it was it was pretty clear and you know who wants that out there <laughs> from your ex where all the poker's watching this is why you don't have this stuff on Twitter by the way this is why uh, you keep this stuff off. It's, it's hard to have relationship fights in public without everybody looking bad and everybody having embarrassing stuff come out. So anyway, that's kind of old news. I told you about this new boyfriend back in October. But the newer news is that uh, Aida decided enough is enough today and put out a series of tweets with a lot of serious accusations about Prahlad. Now, I do want to say something. These are just accusations. I have no idea whether these are true or not. She could be completely making this up. She could be exaggerating. She could be telling half-truths. Some of these may be true and some of these may be false. They could all be true. I don't know, because I wasn't there. 
and you weren't there. So the only two people who probably know this for sure are Aida and Prahlad. I have to imagine their kid uh, is too young to know what's going on. So it's probably just the two of them who know whether this stuff is true or not. But nevertheless, these are accusations that were made on public Twitter, which anybody can access who looks at her account, Aida Leal only, which is A-I-D-A-L-E-A-L-O-N-L-Y, Aida Leal only. The reason only is there is because she has an OnlyFans account. You can actually pay like 15 bucks to see naked pictures of her or something. This is what she wrote. You can see them in the thread about Perlot Friedman on the Flying Stupidity Forum on Poker Fraud Alert, and I actually screenshotted it in case she deletes them later. And if you want to read them in order, in the order they were written, you have to read it backwards. That's the way Twitter does it. Twitter, Twitter shows the most current thing first, and you have to scroll down. It's kind of like backwards. So I'm going to read it to you in the proper order in the way the tweets were made. She writes, So these nits are really all up in my Instagram talking shit about me and elevating Prahlad when he's the most abusive man I've ever met? Well, first of all, I like how she's using the term nits. She's like, she's not a poker player. She, just, she must have gotten that from him. Like, nobody talks about nits unless they're in poker. So it's funny that she kind of got that term from him and is bashing the guys who are bashing her on Perlod's behalf. Now, I don't know anything about this. Like, I don't know who's doing this. I don't know why they're doing this. I don't know what they wrote. I, I don't, I didn't look at her Instagram, but apparently she's expressing that guys who like Perlod or are friends with Perlod are writing things on her Instagram that are derogatory and that uh, and saying bad things about her and good things about Perlod. And she's like, you know what? Screw these guys. I'm going to put out the truth now. So that's what she's saying here. So these nits are really all up in my Instagram talking shit about me and elevating Perlod when he's the most abusive man I've ever met? Hmm. So what does she mean? Let's go on here. She writes, what kind of man chokes a pregnant woman twice? Oh, boy. Perlad Friedman, she writes. What kind of man chokes a woman in front of his daughter? Perlad Friedman. By the way, I passed out all of the three times. So she's trying to allege here in this tweet that he choked her to the point of passing out. Uh, She said twice, but then later she said three times. But whatever it was, two or three times, including in front of his daughter. Now, again, this may be all made up. This may be misleading, but this is what she's claiming. Then she writes, what type of man would tell his baby mother to sell her body for diaper money? Perlod Friedman. Wow. Now, that one, by the way, I, I hate to defend Perlod, but I can totally picture the way this happened. Is It's possible that they were to, in like a heat of an argument, and she said something insulting to him. And like she was demanding money out of him to, uh, to take care of the kid or something. And he wasn't liking it or something. They're probably arguing. He said something like, uh, like, yeah, well, why don't you go out and whore yourself like you do on Twitter all the time if you want diaper money? It could have been something like that where he wasn't like serious about it. He was just like, like, well, 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 Drop, no, I think he kept calling himself a pimp, so she just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so then she writes... Then th- this, is, this is a pretty bad one. Uh, what type of man rapes his woman, Perlot Friedman? Oh, boy. That's some serious allegations here. What kind of man tried to <laughs> manipulate people that need money, Perlot Friedman? Were you going to say Trader Ruski? 
Sorry, Jeff. I just I was just gonna say now the Dan Bilzeri intrigue is appropriate though. Not for the last story for this one. Right. <laughs> what kind of man hits on his employees? I didn't know he has employees. What what employees is she talking about? And, and makes them uncomfortable only because he's in a position of power. Perlad Friedman. So she's alleging it seems that he is uh, engaging in sexual harassment. Now she doesn't get specific. It could just mean that by employees it could have been that she was like do, making music on his behalf or for his BS record label, Progress Records, and she called herself an employee and he hit on her. And if she's talking about herself, I don't think that's a very good criticism because she ended up having a kid with him. So obviously she wasn't that offended by it. But maybe she means other people. Maybe there are other quote employees that I don't know about. I don't. She didn't explain what this means, but that's what she wrote. Then she writes. What kind of man has the audacity to call me a liar after literally almost killing me several times, Perlad Friedman? I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about that one. And then the final one, the truth will come out about this man tonight. I am done protecting his image when he doesn't give a fuck about doing the same for me. LOL, these whites really just think they rule the world. See what I mean about the white people? These whites think they rule the world. What does this have to do with the whites? Like, this is one white guy you don't like. Like, all white guys aren't doing this to you. you. You dated one white guy that you alleged didn't treat you well, which you may be right about. It's possible he didn't. It's possible that uh, if he gave his side that this would make more sense and you'd look more at fault. I don't know. I I, I could really see it either way from observing her on Twitter. But uh, these whites really think they rule the world. <laughs> Imagine if he said that about her. What if he said, yeah, these, these blacks, these colors really think they rule the world. I mean, there'd be outrage about that. So you, you can't say these whites really think they rule the world when you had a problem with one white guy. You can say Perlad thinks he rules the world. And I, I would kind of agree with you, but you can't say these whites. But anyway, that's what she wrote. Let me take a look if she's written anything since then. This was earlier tonight. Pretty explosive allegations. I, I looked to see if Perlad responded and as far as I could see, he did not. Now, she hasn't written anything further. So we'll see if he gives any answer to all this. Now, it's very possible that she does not, or that he doesn't want to give an answer to this because maybe some things here are true. Or maybe some things here are semi true and he doesn't want to explain. Like, well, yeah, I choked her before, but, but let me tell you why. Like, you know, there may be things that he doesn't even want to bother explaining, even ones which are reasonable. Like, l- let's say the choking was during sex and she wanted it. Like, does he really want to explain that out there? Like, well, yeah, I choked you, but we were doing it during sex. And the, I can see why you're like, hey, I, I don't want to even answer this. But, but it also may be like, maybe she's really telling the truth of all this stuff and it's just exposing it. I don't know. But these things are out there. I'm, I'm reading her public Twitter as I'm speaking right now at 11.39 p.m. on January 9th, 2021, Pacific Time. These things are up there. They're right there on Aida Leal only. These are allegations from her about Perlot. So, again, I don't know if it's true. I'm not saying it's true. I have no way to know it's true. It may be all made up, maybe partially made up. Could be anything. He has not responded. If he responds, I'll read it on next week's show. I was hoping to read it on this week's show, but he hasn't responded. But if he responds, I will read that too. I'll give it equal time. I, I don't care for Prahlad, but I, I think he should... If I'm going to cover the story, i got to be honest about it. I have to say, this is a pretty serious stuff that's being alleged here. This, this is also a problem when you have your relationship out there on Twitter. This is what it eventually leads to. 
you can think it's kind of funny when you have some kind of uh, fight on there and people are getting entertained by it, which, by the way, it isn't. But eventually when you break up, then they're going to use Twitter or they might use Twitter as a forum to try to make you look really bad. And maybe they'll say things that aren't true. Maybe they'll say things which are true but are embarrassing. In general, there's the usually if you're with someone long enough, there are negative things that can be said about both parties. Because nobody's perfect. If you're with someone for a while, even not like like a super long time, you're with someone a year. In a year's time, it is likely that each partner will have acted shitty to the other partner at some point. Now, some people will have only done minor shitty things, and some people will have done major shitty things. But there, there's going to be some criticisms that are valid or semi-valid that each side will have. And you don't want to put it out there. You just end up looking really bad. But this stuff is not minor, of course. This is some very serious stuff that she is accusing him of. If it's not true, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know what the right play is here. Maybe he doesn't want to give it attention because she doesn't have a huge following. So that, that may be his plan because he has 18,000 followers. She has uh, far less than him, which, which is why she doesn't get that much response when she writes these things. In fact, most people are not even aware this is being written. She has 270 followers. So that's not a lot. So maybe he thinks, okay, I'll let these 270 people see it, of whom some will miss this anyway, and then I just won't respond. I won't give this any kind of airtime. And that's something you actually have to think about on Twitter, that sometimes you do not want to draw attention to those who are criticizing you, because then everyone will see it, where if otherwise not many will see it at all. So maybe that's why he's not answering. But it never stopped him before. Before, he always would bring this drama out there. And then people were going, what the hell? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you hashing out your relationship issues on Twitter for everyone to get a kick out of it and laugh at it? But th- this has been a mistake all around. And the problem is they can't just walk away from each other because there's a kid. There is a kid who's, who's very young. He's a baby, pretty much. And they're going to have to deal with each other for many years to come. So you also have to be careful who you have kids with. You have to make sure it's someone you would want as a parent of your child, someone you think would be a responsible parent, and somebody who would act in a responsible and respectable fashion, and respectful fashion, if you were to split up. Because there's some parents who split up and are awful to each other. Or one of them is awful, and the other one tries to act civil, but uh, it doesn't work. So you hope, when you choose who you're going to have kids with, you try to choose somebody where if you picture, okay, if I break up with this person, are they going to act reasonable? And are we going to do our best to raise the kid being in separate homes? Or are they going to be very vindictive and very difficult and very problematic? And also, might they be a bad parent? who will have the kid at least 50% of the time. And if it seems like they would be in the latter category, you shouldn't have kids with them. And I thought about that as I was dating. And the person I ultimately chose to have Benjamin with, I was very confident that no matter what happened, that she would be a good mom and that she would not be uh, unreasonable or difficult if we did have to split up and and raise him separately, which fortunately didn't happen. We're still together after 11 and a half years. But I did think of that. 
you have to consider that. And to Perlod, he didn't think that at all. Like I, I could, I could see right there, regardless of his fault or non-fault in this relationship, she just didn't look like the type you you, you want to marry right now. May, maybe in in several years she'll change, but she didn't look like she was ready to settle down and have kids and just play mom for the uh, middle-aged white guy. Did not seem like that at all. She looked like she wanted to be young and have fun. We'll see if there's any further update or if he just ignores it. This just happened today. It's all right up there on Twitter. Aida Leal only. A lot of drama. Okay, so the World Series of Poker main event of 2020 is finished. The, the 2020 main event finished in 2021. First of all, it's the second main event that they shouldn't have held in the first place. This is the same tournament I'm talking about where uh, a, on both ends of it, on the, the international version and the domestic version, which went separately, both of them had someone force finished into ninth. In the international version, a Chinese national chose not to travel to the Czech Republic, maybe because of pressure from his own country. So he was force finished in ninth. And then uh, Pesh de Silva, who was probably the best player at the table in the domestic version, was uh, force finished into ninth because he tested positive for COVID. And he was eighth in chips, but he was eighth and within striking distance of second. So that was really a very bad beat for him. And he was force finished in ninth. And we talked about that on uh, the last show. But there is more to do because the winner of the domestic version whose uh, name was uh, started, ended with his last name was Hebert. I forget the first name. I hadn't heard of him before. He was in Louisiana. His name was uh, Joseph Hebert. H-E-B-E-R-T. He went up against the international winner, Damien Salas. Damien Salas was the more accomplished player of the two. He had trouble getting in the U.S. because of he had been in Europe within the past two weeks, and the U.S. had a requirement that you had to quarantine for a certain amount of time if you had been in Europe in the last two weeks due to COVID. So they delayed this heads-up match, which was planned for the World Series, which was basically a million bucks that you'd be playing for in a heads-up free roll. Apparently, this didn't come out of the prize pool. I had wondered if it did or not, but this was a, a million the World Series just threw in. And it was the final heads-up event between the international champion and the domestic champion. So Salas had to come to Vegas to do this. And we mentioned this in the last show. He was trying to get in, and Caesars tried to help him get in with an exemption. But the government gave a big, fat middle finger to Caesars and said, we don't care if you guys want him to come or not. He has been in Europe too recently. He's not going to be eligible to come until January 2nd. So he did get in on January 2nd, and he went ahead and played the tournament as it was rescheduled for January 3rd. So that did happen, and he ended up being the winner. He was the favorite because he had uh, a more impressive tournament resume. It seemed like he had more experience, and uh, he did come away as the winner. Now, what was significant to me here is that Damien Salas is 45 years old. He actually looks older to me, but maybe it's because his hair is gray. I always think like a guy who's like completely gray in his mid-40s should diet because you just look old if your hair is completely gray in your mid-40s. 
and I, I, I think anyone should, a guy or, or a girl. Anyone who's mid-40s and is completely gray, I would suggest dyeing your hair. That would be my suggestion. I don't dye my hair because I have not gone very gray. I have a little bit of gray on my sideburns. Just started getting gray in my beard in April 2020. Prior to that, I was not gray in my beard at all, which is pretty surprising because I was 48. But other than that, I don't really have much gray. So I, I'm not going to get at every gray hair. I'm not trying to make it look like I have no gray. If I was all gray by this point, then I would probably dye it because I wouldn't be ready to be like all gray at age 48, 49. So Damien Salas is just about all gray, so he looks older than he is. But he is 45. So this is significant because if you want to consider him the 2020 World Series winner, which I know there was kind of another one from the previous series that they had, what they called the main event. But if you want to look at him as the main winner, who they're trying, they're kind of trying to imply he is, because this was the 10K event, the other one was 5K. This one he had to play heads up with a domestic champion. This one was, you know, had two segments to it, a domestic and international, where they play each other for this million dollars. So this was probably the harder one to win. But whatever it is, if you want to consider him the champion... What's interesting is that you have two people in a row, if you go back to 2019, who are World Series champions champions of the main event, who are not young. Hossein Insan, who won in 2019, the guy who busted me from the event in 128th, he was 55. And he was the oldest winner in a long time. The World Series of Poker main event had been taken over by the young people. And look, I'll tell you, when I was getting towards the end of the main event. Remember, I got I was 128th out of uh, over 8,000 people. When I got towards the end of this, I was one of the older people in the field. I, I was one of the oldest people in the field. Hossein Ensign was older than me, but the, there were not many people left who were uh, older than I was. Whereas when I started, I was actually the youngest at my first table. So it's not like it's a young event. It's just by the end, the younger people are the ones doing better. So it's not like the old people have taken over again, but who was the eventual winner? It was someone who was 55 years old. And the guy in second wasn't all that young. He was like 38. In this, this Joseph Hebert is 38, and Damien Salas is 45. So I wonder if this is a coincidence, or if the older people, and I don't mean really old, but kind of like middle-aged people, that age group is starting to have a comeback in poker. And if maybe some of that reason is because there are not many young players anymore. Because the young generation of players never really showed up. We had a big young generation of players in the 2000s, but now we're in the early 2020s. So these people are not very young anymore. A 21-year-old in 2003 is now 38. So... Or 37, 38. So that person's not that young. The young people who would have replaced them did not really show up because of online poker being a lot harder to play in the U.S. for the last 10 years. Black Friday was almost 10 years ago. And also poker just kind of lost its place in popular culture to a large degree compared to 10, 15 years ago. So you just don't have the young people in it like you used to have back in the 2000s. So this makes the whole game older. 
And I also think it might negate the advantage that the young people have. Because the advantage someone in their mid-30s has over someone in their 40s probably isn't that high. The advantage someone in their 20s has, that may be higher. Because the the advantage that young people can have is as follows. Number one, they don't have to care as much. They can actually play a more aggressive and carefree style, which actually does help them get farther in tournaments when they're going to run well. Now, they're going to chunk off big stacks a lot of times. They're going to blow big opportunities a lot of times. They're going to bust early a lot of times, but when they're running well and they're very aggressive, then that combination makes it where they get a lot more action and and also they run people off hands who aren't comfortable calling them. So this is a style which can allow you to actually win or get very deep in more tournaments. So the young people who are willing to not care as much, who are willing to not really think of the money as much, ones who are just playing and not really thinking about what will I do with this money, not really thinking about saving money, not really thinking about supporting a family, that can be an advantage in poker. That's one thing. A second thing is stamina. Young people can deal with the long days and keep their minds sharper and feel less tired than people who are older. In fact, this problem really plagues those who are a lot older. That's why at the seniors' events, there's two reasons why these are easier events than ones which are not seniors' events. Number one, there well, there's actually three reasons. Number one, there's more recreational players, because a lot of people just had money from other sources in life by then and can afford to just go play these events, even though they're not very good. Number two, they don't have as quite as sharp as a mind as when they were younger, especially the ones who are a lot older. Not really talking about the 50-year-olds, but you know, the 60-year-olds, 65-year-olds, 70-year-olds, a lot of them have lost some sharpness. Even if they're not senile, they've lost some sharpness over the years. And then a third one, which isn't discussed much but is a big deal, is the days are long. These are long days of poker, and it is hard to physically sit there for that long in one place and to concentrate for that long when you're older. So that makes it tougher also. Whereas if you're 25 years old, then it's much easier. And if you're 45 years old, it's, it's not like being an old person who is going to have a hard time sitting there all day, but it, it isn't quite as easy, and you probably don't have as much energy to play your A-game as much as the younger people. But if there just aren't many young people at all, and if the ones that were there didn't really have much of an opportunity to practice to get good, then if it's really the middle-aged per- people versus those in their 30s, then the difference is much less, and then you can really have it where older people can start to do better again. And that might be what we're seeing. That might be why Hossein Ensan won last year, why this Damien Salas won this year, and we'll see what happens in 2021 if they have a normal World Series main event. Because this one wasn't normal. This one had a lot lower uh, number of people in the event. So we'll see. We'll see if when if in uh, 2021, 2022, if we're going to get a young winner again or we're going to get another older guy. I thought of that this for myself as I was getting deep in the event last year. I guess now it was 
no longer last year. I guess now it's 2019, which is kind of two years ago, more like a year and a half ago. But when I was in my last World Series main event in, in 19 and I was getting deep there, I was thinking, oh, wow, you know, if I win this, I will be the oldest main event winner in a long time. So what they said about Hossein Ensan, they would have said about me, too. I was seven years younger. Actually, I was more than seven. I was, I was eight years younger because I was 47 then. But they would have said 47-year-old Todd Wittellis is the oldest World Series main event winner since whatever. I'm not sure when the last one was that was older than 47. Now it wouldn't be a big thing because we had uh, Hossein win in 2019, who was 55. But I, I would have been the oldest one in a long time, just as he was. So I thought about that. I thought that would that would have been an additional cool thing about winning, aside from being the main event champion and getting all that money. Another cool thing would have been I would have been kind of like representing the older guys and and won it when people thought that wasn't going to happen again. Because there, there was a time it was just believed it's going to be guys in their twenties every time, and for a while it was. Not the last two years. So interesting to think about. It could just be a coincidence. It could just be that these older guys ran better. But maybe not. Maybe it's something else. Maybe we will see more main event champions who are middle-aged. By the way, that is good for poker when that happens, because what you want is middle-aged and older recreational players to show up to the event and basically be dead money there. So you want more players there who are wealthy enough to play but don't really have a chance because it increases your expectation in the event. And the way you get those players is if they identify with the winners. If they look at the winners and go, hey, that guy kind of reminds me of me. He's around my age. You know, he just, it, it seems less threatening to them than some young hotshot that they can't really relate to. They see some 22-year-old winning and they go, oh, okay, you, you, I got to be like young to succeed in this thing. They see a guy who reminds them of themselves. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, I could be like him. So that's what you want. You, you want people to win who remind a demographic that you want there of themselves. That's why Chris Moneymaker was so huge for poker. He he wasn't older, but he reminded people who were just very average, very average everyman, that they can be successful in poker too. You don't need to be a long-time poker hotshot to win the main event, is what he proved. So that really helped the poker boom. And it helped he had a great name. It helped that poker was just appearing on TV with the whole cards. A lot of stuff came together to be a perfect storm of poker exploding. But the fact that Chris Moneymaker was such an everyman type, and he, he really came off as one too. Just the, His whole demeanor was like just such an average guy. Such a, just a regular guy you could totally relate to and not feel intimidated by. That was why people could identify with him so easily even though he was on the younger side. And he kind of looked old for his age then, too. He was 27, but looked older than 27. So really, like, the guys around 40 could identify with him anyway. You know, he was exactly what poker needed then. And that's what poker got. Way better for poker than he won compared to Sam Farha, even though Farha was older. Because Farha kind of had the look of, uh, like, the arrogant rich guy who's uh, an experienced poker player. You really needed an everyman to win there at that point. Nowadays, someone like Sam Farha winning wouldn't be as bad because it would represent the older people. So I, when when I busted, I said, I hope Hossein Insan wins this for two reasons. Number one, because I don't really know anybody left in this. Like, I, I know of some people, but there's no one here I really know and like. So I thought, well, he was a nice guy. I hope he wins it. He has a ton of chips. And not only that, it'll be good for poker if a guy this age wins. And he did. 
And we, we didn't get to see any effect of that this year in, in the last World Series because of, of this weird circumstance with the last World Series with COVID. But we'll see if between the two of them, between this guy Salas and with Hossein Insan, if more people in that age range, 45 to 55, if more of them show up to play. It'll be interesting to compare those numbers. Maybe it'll be encouraging. Who knows? Though there wasn't a lot of visibility in this World Series. People didn't care about it that much. The, the only reason everyone cared is because of the, the disqualification that happened. That was the only reason it was interesting. Other than that, it was kind of boring. All right. Moving on. 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355. You can text that number as well. Here's some texts that I got during the show. From the 916, that poker chick looking to date another poker guy sounds like the typical woman with no real job looking for a white knight to spoil her. Wow. Pretty uh, critical there. From the 609 regarding my sound quality. Sounds fine. Was a bit heavy on the bass when you first came on, but I just lowered my earbud volume. It sounds fine to me, though. Thanks, sir. Well, are you saying I'm still heavy on the bass? You just lowered me? Like I, I, I want to know more. By the way, I have a funny story about bass. When I was in the dorms in college, there was some guy blasting music with a very, very loud bass. So my doors closed, and I'm hearing boom, boom, boom. Like I'm hearing the bass over and over and over. I, I, I didn't complain. It's just kind of the way it is when you're in a dorm. But I kind of like opened my door to hear like who's doing this, where's this coming from. And while I, at, right after I opened my door, someone shouts down the hallway, Hey, turn down that bass. <laughs> <laughs> turn down that bass. He wasn't joking either. He really thought it was pronounced bass. And you know the guy had like a stereo himself and saw it said it, to him it was bass instead of bass because it's spelled like bass. So he just said it in his mind it was bass all this time. <laughs> I turned down that bass. No, so I, I yelled out, "Yeah, turn down that fish!" And then people laughed. So, uh, and then the <laughs> then the guy who said bass uh, corrected himself. Oh, I, I bass. I mean bass. But he didn't know that. He really thought it was bass. From the seven oh seven and from the eight one eight. When is the next radio? The answer to both of you right now. From the three one four. When's the next radio? Right now. I think I should do a better job communicating this. <laughs> from the 817 hello Druff I've been a listener for years I think you're a FIA I thought he was going to write I think I'm a liar <laughs> I thought he was writing I think you're a liar which was kind of insulting but I think you're a fire F-I-A-R I don't know what that means but I think you're a fire and resp- reasonable person I think maybe he means a fine reasonable person I, I don't know what he means but he thinks I'm a reasonable person. Good enough. He doesn't think I'm a liar. I've wondered what your thoughts are on some political things. I know you lean right. You think one day I can call the show when you're having a political segment and ask you some questions. Yes, you can. So if you're listening live, you can call up tonight when I'm doing the political stuff towards the end and ask me some questions. You definitely can. All right. So that's all we've gotten so far on the text number, 775-372-8355, which is also the main number of the show. So let's move on. Actually, before we move on, let's see if the chat room has anything going on. Um, 
Oh, Bobby Orr is saying he means fair. Yeah, you're right. That, that's what it was. Fair. F-A-I-R. I was like, what is fire? I, I read it first like liars. So, hey, Drop, I think you're a liar. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What am I lying about? <laughs> he meant fair. Fair and reasonable person. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, person in the 817 for not saying I am a liar or a fire. Veronica Brill, I have some news about her. She has retained an attorney in the Mike Possel matter. I know this because she tweeted about it. She has retained attorney Mark Randazza, who is a celebrity attorney who appears on CNN sometimes, a celebrity First Amendment issue attorney based out of the Las Vegas area. This is that same case that I have hired Eric Benzamokin to represent me. Remember, she was one of the people named in the suit. In fact, she was kind of the main person named. She is the one that uh, Mike Postle seems to have the most problem with because she is the one who blew the whistle on the whole thing. Uh, but there were like a, like 10 or so people named. I forgot the exact number, but a lot of people named, a lot of prominent people. Uh, of the whole list, the least prominent of everybody there were me and Veronica. So I did not know what others were doing as far as representation. I haven't. I, I was talking. I was talking to some of them at the beginning, and then I kind of just fell off and didn't really discuss it much with anyone. I, I talked to Veronica sometimes, but I just didn't ask her. Did you get a lawyer yet? I, I was asking some people, "Did you get served yet?" And everybody was telling me no. So I knew that. I knew that it appeared nobody was getting served. I wasn't talking to every single one of them, but those that I was talking to all told me they were not served, but I didn't pry further. I didn't say, well, do you have an attorney? When are you going to get an attorney? Like, I, I kind of felt like that was prying too much. I felt like once they get served, I can ask that. So I, I, I didn't really ask anybody, even Veronica, if they got an attorney yet. Well, apparently Veronica did, and she was public about this on Twitter. In fact, it wasn't just Veronica who was public about this on Twitter. Uh, Mark Randazza himself was public about this on Twitter. So th- this is uh, what happened and how I found this out. She didn't even tell me. I found out myself on Twitter. Though we, we had, It's funny. We had a conversation today, me and Veronica, but it, somehow she didn't mention this. She mentioned something about an attorney, but I didn't realize it was Mark, it was, uh, Mark Randazza until I looked at her Twitter and saw this. So on January 7th, Mark Randazza tweeted... Has anyone seen or heard from Mike Postle since December? His lawyers say that they have not heard from him at all. Kind of a troll from uh, Mark Randazza in the direction of Postle, kind of mocking him for the fact that uh, his attorneys filed a motion to be dismissed as counsel, saying that they were not getting a response from him since November 3rd. This is right there in the legal paperwork. I am not revealing any secrets here. This is right there in the motion they filed. And this is going to be heard very soon, uh, unless something changed on January 14th, before our next show, this will be heard. And I'll let you know the results of this, if I have it by then, of whether they will get dismissed as counsel. They do have to actually be dismissed by the court, even if Mike is not talking to them or paying them. So Mark Randazza was kind of trolling (laughs) Mike Postle by asking, has anyone seen or heard from Mike Postle since December? His lawyers say that they've not heard from him at all. So then Veronica, quote, tweeted that also on January 7th, saying, hey, my lawyer is looking for someone. So that's basically announcing 
she hired Mark Randazza. If she announced it before that, I missed it. That To me, that's the first public acknowledgement she ever made that she hired him. She didn't even tell me she hired him. She asked me, She's asked me some other questions recently, and I answered them. I just didn't ask, hey, do you have a lawyer yet? I just kind of assumed she wasn't going to get one until she was actually served. So she did hire Mark Randazza. I, I've since talked to her a little bit more, and I know some more, but I, I'm not sure if this is something for public consumption, so I'm not going to say what she told me. I, I will have to ask her what she is okay with me revealing and not okay with me revealing. I will always reveal anything that's in the public record. So any motions that are filed at that point, uh, that, that it's totally in the public record, and there's no harm in any way to reveal those things. It's just factual. This was filed with the court. Here it is. Here's what they say. That's just very, very basic stuff, no matter what it is. But uh, I'm not sure what she has or hasn't filed or what she has or hasn't done, so I, I don't want to go into detail with that. But apparently she hired Mark Randazza. I mentioned Mark Randazza on this show sort of recently, but not about Possible. I mentioned him because he was also hired by Scott Robin, a.k.a. Vital Vegas, involving the suit that Sahara filed against him. And that was when... Scott Robin was claiming that Sahara is about to close and that they will be closing in September, which didn't happen, but that Sahara sued him for saying it and basically refusing to back down from that assertion, even when they were trying to tell him it isn't true. So uh, he hired Mark Randazza, a First Amendment attorney, a well-known First Amendment attorney who's been on CNN before, to defend this and file an anti-slap motion, basically saying it was his right to put this out there, given various information that had been passed to him by what seemed to be reliable sources. And he was asserting that Sahara itself was a public figure. I assume these were all uh, Mark Randazza's ideas, not uh, Scott Robin, who is not a legal expert. But that was put there in the anti-slap filing. And when I read that filing, I thought, oh, wow, you know what? I don't really like Vital Vegas. I think he's kind of a jerk, and I have a lot of criticisms for him, and I think he's wrong a whole lot when he puts out his rumors, and I think some some of the rumors he puts out are damaging or misleading when he's just guessing at things or just repeating things he's heard that a lot of times have no basis in fact. But after reading Mark Randaz's arguments in the anti-slap, including some details I didn't know before, like that... that uh, Scott Robin had been given information regarding a liquidation company visiting Sahara and the that the liquidation company went far enough with the whole thing that they rarely go that far with it if there isn't a serious attempt to do it. It ended up not closing, but everything Mark put out there really looked like Scott Robin had a right to assume this is probably happening, or at least there's a good chance of it. And that, therefore, it wasn't unreasonable for him to put it out there. And he also made a pretty good case that the Sahara, even though it's not a person, that the Sahara itself is a public figure, and they have a much higher standard of defamation that one has to prove, which is also the same argument that I am making about Mike Possel, among other things, as you may have seen in the anti-slap motion, which I have made public. If you have not seen it yet and you have not found it on the thread on Poker Fraud Alert or haven't found it on my Twitter, I will be happy to send you a copy of it. It is in public record. I, I'm very proud of Eric Bensamokin's work, and you're welcome to take a look at it yourself. But uh, you'll see in there that in my anti-slap motion that I am saying that Mike Postle is a public figure and has a 
much there's a much higher burden of proof on his end that I have committed defamation because if the person is a public figure then not only do they have to prove that what was said about them is false, but they have to prove that the person saying it knew it was false when they said it. So I'm asserting, number one, what I said was not false, and number two, that definitely when I said it, I believed it was true. So either one of those, that's it. I'm the winner in in my defense. So uh, anyway, you, you can see it all in my anti-slap motion. But... I actually agreed with Vital Vegas and the arguments put forth by Mark Randazza in that suit with the Sahara. And I can put aside how I feel about Vital Vegas and the fact that he blocked me and half of the city of Las Vegas on Twitter, which he has. He has the funny thing is, Vital Vegas, he has like the thinnest skin in the world. If you say anything that slightly bothers him, he blocks you. And then he has the nerve to bitch when others block him. Like he actually has several tweets that he even once recently, where he complains, like, oh, I don't know what I did to this guy. Why is he blocking me? I don't know what I did to this business. Why are they blocking me? Well, what about you? How many people have you blocked? You've blocked, like, like half the people who tried to follow you. Like, how can you, of all people, complain about that? That's insane. So I don't like the guy, but I will say, in that case, he was in the right, from what I could tell. And the courts agreed. The courts dismissed it, and the courts f- forced the Sahara to pay for Scott's attorney's fees. Apparently, Scott was still banned from the Sahara, so he can't go in there anymore. But the attorney's fees that went to Mark Randazzo were actually paid by the Sahara, as that's how it works with anti-slap lawsuits, is if uh, the defendant wins the anti-slap motion, then the plaintiffs have to pay the defendant's attorney's fees. And this is in place specifically to deter people from filing frivolous lawsuits in an attempt to silence them. Any kind of lawsuit that is aimed at curbing free speech, any lawsuit that is out there in order to shut someone up from and trying to interfere with their constitutionally protected right of free speech, and you hit them with a frivolous lawsuit to make that happen, to stop that, and it can be reasonably proven to the court, then you have to pay the defendant's attorney's fees, which can, can and often usually are uh, five figures. So that's not a good idea in California or Nevada to file a, a defamation suit because both of those states have that anti-slap statute. Anyway, Veronica has retained Mark Randazza. This is not a surprise. If you remember, Veronica, she had a GoFundMe which raised, uh, like I think, 20 thousand dollars maybe more, for her legal fees. But more importantly, Bill Perkins, that very rich recreational poker player out of the Virgin Islands, Bill Perkins put up $150,000 for her defense. Now, maybe she won't end up using it all. In fact, if the whole thing with Postle collapses because his attorneys have left, then she won't use anywhere near that. But uh, he pledged like up to $150,000 to back her in this. And if somehow that gets depleted, I bet he'll even put more up. He didn't say he would, but you know maybe he'll even put more up. So anyway, Bill Perkins is backing this. So even though Veronica herself is not rich, she has a rich guy backing her defense. So it doesn't surprise me that she hired a prominent attorney like Mark Randazza. And I know that Mark Randazza was being recommended because when I was looking at my options as of who to hire as an attorney... 
uh, an attorney contacted me. I'm not going to say who it was, but an attorney contacted me and said that uh, he recommends Mark Randazza. In fact, he is uh, wondering if I am interested in joining some other poker pros in hiring Mark Randazza kind of together. And I said, well, you know, I'll think about it, but uh, I've got other people I'm thinking of, too. And you know who that was. And ended up being who I hired was uh, Eric Bensamokin, not uh, Mark Randazza. But I, I understood it like it was a, a reasonable thing that was being suggested, and I just ended up not being part of that. I don't know if others have joined in with Veronica or if she just uh, hired him herself, but definitely he is representing her now. She referred to him as, quote, my lawyer, and he, as I said, he tweeted right there on January 7th about Mike Postle. If you want to look at Mark Randazza's Twitter, he's on there as Marco R. Randazza, M-A-R-C-O, or not Marco R, just Marco Randazza, M-A-R-C-O-R-A-N-D-A-Z-Z-A, Marco Randazza, but he goes by Mark Randazza, maybe his real name is Marco, it's not Mark O. Randazza, because it says his name is Mark J. Randazza, but I guess maybe he abbreviates Marco to be Mark, I don't know, but... If you go to take a look at his Twitter, you'll see that he tweeted that on January 7th. Someone asked Mark Randazza back, did he allegedly cheat you at poker too? And Mark said back, no, I don't play poker. But in a conversation with his lawyers yesterday, they said he inexplicably has disappeared from their view. Which we know, because we talked about this on the show already. A guy named Tyler Negrini, I don't really know him, but he wrote, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm in a Facebook sports card group with him. He has been spending a lot on breaks. I'm not sure what breaks are. It's probably some kind of sports card. Then so Mark Randazza said, so he is alive? And Tyler said, he said he was just in Vegas last week and made a lot betting sports. And Mark Randazza said, I hope that is true. One, it would mean that he's okay, and as a fellow human, I was concerned that his radio silence could mean something bad. By the way, I, I doubt Mark Randazza cares about Mike Possel. I am pleased that he's okay. Two, I intend to relieve him of a significant sum of money. <laughs> Get in line, Mr. Randazza. Get in line. We intend the same thing. And I believe that... Uh, the very first motion that will be heard, aside from his attorneys trying to uh, get out of this whole thing, which will be in four days, aside from that, I think the very first motion will involve me. Our anti-slap motion will be heard on February 10th. But actually, it may be delayed, which I will tell you about if that happens. But uh, I still think we're going to have the first motion heard. Mark Randazza already trying to troll a little bit. Now, you may wonder, why is he doing this? Why, why is Mark Randazza trying to taunt Mike Possel? Well, he's also a celebrity attorney. He goes on CNN. He likes to make a spectacle of everything. He wants you to see things like this and then think, okay, this is who I'm going to hire if I have a First Amendment issue. So this is actually good business for him to do things like this. And, and he can say this without any kind of liability. So he can say he intends to relieve him of a significant sum of money. That's that's fine. And on behalf of uh, his clients, that's what he's trying to do. That, that's why he's being hired. And uh, so he, he can ask, where is Mike Possel? His attorneys say he's not around because his attorneys did say he's not around. They wrote that in their filing. So he can say all these things. And it's not putting himself in any jeopardy. And I think he's 
pretty much assuming that Mike Postle is not going to get a lot of sympathy on Twitter either, based upon everything he's seen written about Mike Postle. So I don't know if anybody else has hired him, but Mark Randazza is on the prowl now, and uh, Mike Postle will have that to deal with as well. This is going to be tough for Mike Postle. He has no attorneys. Imagine having to... Uh, first, he has to defend this anti-slap and Eric Benzamokin there against him in court, and then he'll have to, by himself, defend against Mark Randazza. Oh, boy. This is someone who, with like no legal training, to my knowledge. This is not his area of expertise at all. So good luck. Good luck. Now, I guess he could hire other attorneys, but I would not bet very much on him at this point. This whole thing seems to be uh, collapsing, from what I can see. Maybe I'll be surprised, but this whole thing is collapsing, and uh, there shall be no sympathy here, because this should not have happened. This is a frivolous lawsuit. This was meant to intimidate people, meant to silence people, and meant to extract money out of people who had done nothing wrong. And I'm one of them. I'm someone who's being punished with a frivolous lawsuit. So I am using the legal means at my disposal to try to hit back. And I believe it will be successful. So don't, don't hit me with frivolous lawsuits, and then this won't happen. I didn't want this fight. I wasn't. I was making commentary. I was commenting on the situation, but I wasn't trying to uh, interfere with Mike Postle's life in any way. I was just commenting on the situation. I wasn't filing frivolous lawsuits. I wasn't doing anything to deserve this. I was commenting on the same thing that everybody else in poker was commenting on, including him. Including him. Remember, he went on... Mike Mattisau's show to talk about this for two hours. I didn't do anything wrong. You guys know it. Everybody knows it. Nobody in that case did anything wrong from what I can see. So you file a lawsuit like that, then you open yourself up to being hit with an anti-slap in jurisdictions where that's allowed, like California, where he filed it. And with all those plaintiffs, that could add up to be a lot of money if everybody does it. Because it's not just one person. You'd have to pay like... 10 different people's attorney's fees, including some that aren't people like ESPN. And can you imagine how much they could justify charging for their attorneys? I could not hire a gigantic team of lawyers and justify it. But ESPN, they could, because they already have the lawyers. So, good luck to Mr. Postle. I think it's going to be tough. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. I want to put out a correction. If I get something wrong and I remember, I will correct it. This isn't a major error, but I want to clarify something. Apparently, and I heard this from multiple people, I was wrong about the way the Poker Hall of Fame votes. I had said that the way it works, and I, I believe it may have worked this way at one time, but I had said that everybody gets a slip with the different people who are nominated, and then they write down from like 1 to 10 who should get in, and that whoever gets a 1 next to their name gets 10 points, whoever gets a 2 next to their name gets 9 points, a 3 next to their name gets 8 points, etc., etc. If you leave it blank, then they get 0 points. So I said the problem with this is that it can be rigged 
by you give all your your points to one person by just putting a one next to their name, leaving everyone else blank, and they gain on everyone else by ten points. Whereas if others fill it out completely and give everybody a ranking, then you're not gaining ten points on anybody. And you're only gaining one point on the person who's second. So getting a one with nothing else on the ballot, you gain ten points on everybody. If another ballot also has, has a competitor as one, they only gain uh, one point on whoever's second, two point whoever third. You see the problem there. You see that uh, the way to help someone the most is to vote one for them and nothing for anybody else. That was my claim last time, but I was incorrect last week, and I want to correct this. Apparently, and this is according to Daniel Negranu on his podcast he does with Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan called Dat Poker, Poker, Dat Poker Podcast, D-A-T Poker Podcast. Daniel apparently said to Adam, who may have gotten the idea from me, <laughs> he, he was explaining the way the voting system works, exactly the way I have. He probably got it from me, and if I made you look stupid, Adam, I'm sorry. I really believe this to be the case. But anyway, Daniel clarified that, no, this is not how it works. And Daniel would know because he's one of the voters. So I trust that he is telling the truth, and I trust he's giving this accurately. So Daniel said that... Actually, the way it works is you have 10 points to give away, and then you just give it wherever way you want. So you can give 10 to one person, you can give uh, 2 to one person and 1 to, to a bunch of others. You can just take the 10 and give it whatever way you want. Now, this isn't that different from the way I was describing it, because you still can do the same thing. You can give 10 to one person and 0 to everybody else. And that is much more powerful than someone giving one person, say, three votes, or two votes, or one vote. Obviously, giving all the votes to one person and no votes to somebody else accomplishes pretty much the same thing as what I was talking about. It's just in a different way. So, all of my criticisms stand. I don't have to change any of my criticisms and say, well, now that I know this, I'm not going to say the same thing I did last week. No, I'm going to say the same thing I did last week. This is bullshit. It shouldn't happen this way. Because what happens here is if others get voted, if you give some of your points to other people, then this takes away from whoever you're giving the most points to. You can give someone five points and think you're doing them a big favor, but if their competitor is getting ten points by somebody that likes them, that doesn't want to give it to anybody else just for that reason, then that really negates your five points big time. It pretty much doubles your five points and gives it to somebody else. So it shouldn't be like this. There shouldn't be these weighted votes. Because what happens is that it doesn't accurately reflect the true voting. It should be a very simple situation where you either vote just for one or two people, maybe three people, or uh, you can vote for multiple people, but you can't give weight to it. That's fine, too. Like if they say, just check off who you think should be in, and then count whoever gets the most votes, that would work too. I would even be okay if you have to vote for three people, and that you pick the top three, and you give a one to whoever you want in most, a two to whoever you want second most, a three to whoever you want third most. You cannot leave you cannot leave it blank. You have to do three votes and only three votes, and that uh, you wait... It by that, that the person who gets first gets three points, the person who gets second gets two points, the person who gets third gets one point, 
and that uh, anybody who doesn't vote for at least three people or vote for more than three people, anyone who votes for anything other than three people will have their uh, ballot invalidated. Like, something like that. That'd be fair. Then there couldn't be these uh, games being played. I guess there can be some games. There could be voting blocks. There could be purposely giving votes to second and third to people you know are going to have no chance. You could try things like that, but it would really, really make this a lot more legitimate. But that is my idea. Just let people, or force people to pick three and rank them one, two, three. Though I think picking three and just putting a check mark next to their name and giving each person one, I think that's very good too. The way it is right now with the weighted voting system is crap, and I don't approve of it whatsoever. But that's the first problem. The second problem is what I was mentioning before, and that's the voting blocks. I had accused Daniel Negranu of being involved in these voting blocks. I said that I have a feeling he is greatly influencing it. And I thought that he was one of the people who was really directing these blocks of people to vote for whom he wants. This is something else that Daniel says is not true. He says he is not directing voting blocks, but there is a voting block that is directed by someone in the Poker Hall of Fame, and that would be Doyle Brunson. So apparently, Doyle has a lot of say here. Doyle is directing people to vote for his preferred Hall of Fame candidates. And if you get enough people and all they do is give 10 to one guy, you can see how easily this pretty much rigs it for that one guy and everybody else voting kind of becomes inconsequential. Take a look at the winner of this one, Huck Seed, who got 76 votes. Even though there's a, a lot of living Poker Hall of Fame members, I think more than 30, if Doyle could simply get... If he, if he could have gotten uh, five people to give Doyle ten points, then he would have clinched it for Huck. That's all it needed, given the way the votes went out. If he just got five people to give all ten points to Huck, including himself, so I guess him and four others, then Huck was going to win. Now, Huck got more than that, because Huck got 76 points. But that shows you how easy it is for voting blocks to make this happen. Because the second place here was... Uh, Matt Savage, you got 51. So, okay, I guess it would have been five people plus, like, any other stray votes. But, you know, Huck was a a decent candidate for the Hall of Fame. So uh, if Doyle got himself and four others to give all ten votes to Huck and then counted on the fact that Huck would get some votes anyway from others, then that pretty much was going to clinch it for him. And it did. If he got even two votes from everybody else combined, he would have won. So it's not that hard to rig this if you can get a few people together with you to give all your 10 votes to one person and you all agree. Now, there's no way to stop voting blocks because you can't stop people from talking to each other. You can discourage it. You could say, do not talk about this with anybody else. But yeah, some will. Some are good friends. Yeah, you're not going to be able to completely control this. But you can at least improve the process. So I do not like the voting in the Hall of Fame whatsoever. It's not quite what I thought. And I apologize to Daniel for saying that he was the director of these voting blocks when it looks like he probably wasn't, if you believe him, and I I think I do. On the other hand, there does seem to be a voting block, just not Daniel's voting block, and the voting system does suck, even though it's not exactly the way I said it was. It's also possible this was changed, and when I heard it was this way, that it really was that way, but it's changed since, but that's the way it currently is. Another correction before I finish this little segment is that uh, I mentioned that they went down to only bringing in one person this year, 
apparently that's only for this year, and that next year they're going to bring it back to two. So that's that's another thing Daniel said. So that, there's some updates there with the Hall of Fame voting that I put out some incorrect information. Now you guys know the truth. I have corrected myself. I have slapped myself for this mistake. Right in front of all of you. There you go. All right, so uh, continuing on here, we're going to talk about the New Year's celebration in Las Vegas. Now, I was surprised to see the New Year's celebration in Las Vegas when I saw pictures of it. I had thought that there's either going to be no celebration or it's going to be something where they tell everybody to stay inside and you can watch the fireworks from wherever you are. But no crowds of people on the streets, no big group of people outside watching this. Well, I was wrong. There were a ton of people. It it looked similar, not identical, but similar to a normal New Year's Eve, which was pretty shocking, to be honest, because that's not very safe. Big groups of people should not gather together during times of a bad COVID outbreak. Now, I will concede that being outside is not as bad as being inside, but if you're with a mass group of people outside packed close together, then that is dangerous. Now, being in a packed group of people inside is even worse, but if you're very close to people outside with a ton of people around you, you're going to have people breathing on you, coughing on you, sneezing on you, talking loud, and and uh, getting the COVID virus on you and into your air passages, and you will catch COVID. This was my criticism of the BLM protests in the summer, that they had some of these protests with 60,000 or more people who were packed really close together on city streets. And I was like, why is the media not really mentioning this? Or if they are, they're very, very lightly touching it and then going on about how beautiful this is that they're all getting together to protest racism. I'm going, no, it's not beautiful. They are spreading disease. They are spreading a pandemic. Stay away. This is not the time to do that. Protest online or do do small protests where everybody is spaced out. Do, do not gather together in a massive crowd in the city and scream. That's very, very unsafe. And even Los Angeles County, which is pretty left-wing, the L.A. County government, even they conceded that that seemed to cause a spike in COVID in the county by the way they timed it. So that was not a wise thing to do, and the media was afraid to call it out. So along those same lines, that this really isn't very political, the next thing I'm about to say Vegas should not have had this New Year's Eve celebration. Now, they didn't allow as many people out there. They did have more spacing. They did have more restrictions. But there were a lot of people packed close together, if you looked at the pictures. So I know you're going to be really shocked by this, but uh, Nevada was finally starting to see some improvement in their pretty bad COVID numbers. They were finally starting to see a little bit of a COVID recovery, even though the vaccine had not been distributed yet. And nope, it's going back up and they blame it on New Year's Eve. I know you're shocked. I I know you can't believe it that a giant group of people outside close together might contribute to a worst COVID problem. I I couldn't have guessed that was going to happen. I am shocked they allowed this. 
On KTNV, a local station in Nevada, a COVID expert named uh, Caleb Cage said that visitors to Las Vegas on New Year's may have uh, spread the COVID virus during the celebration, that a lot of people were ignoring health warnings, that people were congregating in tight spaces, that not all of them were wearing masks, and that a lot of people caught COVID around the time of New Year's that looked like a good chance they caught it that night. Nevada had placed restrictions on gatherings, limiting the number of people to 50. However, uh, that didn't occur on New Year's Eve. Steve Sisolak said that uh, people should just stay away from popular hotspots. He said, to organize or promote gatherings with the tickets or fee as it's business as usual, that's just plain irresponsible. The science prevails, and the science says the more people in a gathering, it is guaranteed that a portion are going to have COVID, either symptomatic or asymptomatic. That's true. Well, it turned out that a lot of people got it. It turned out that Las Vegas saw a spike in COVID numbers, and they're, they're just noticing this now because, you know, when you catch COVID on New Year's Eve, December 31st, early January 1st, you're not going to feel it for a few days. So, and then there's the time it takes for people to get over to get tested and all that. So that it really takes uh, a week or more to look and see if that event had any effect on the COVID numbers. Well, it did. And it looks like that uh, this has reversed the trend that was going on in Nevada that was a good trend where the number of cases was finally starting to go down as far as new cases of COVID, which was pretty bad. They said that uh, one of the problems was that uh, people were showing up even though they weren't supposed to be in certain places and there was no enforcement. Megan Brownhill, who runs a temporary tattoo booth on the Fremont Street Experience downtown, said that the Fremont Street experience was only open to local hotel guests on New Year's Eve, but the streets were, quote, flooded with people, and uh, she even got fined herself because some people went up to her booth not wearing masks, and because she didn't chase them away right away, she got fined for serving customers without masks. She said that uh, it appeared that tons of people came into the Fremont Street experience anyway, even though they were not local hotel guests, and that uh, everybody was packed in very closely, and that she was concerned that a new spike would be coming. And indeed, it looks like uh, that has happened. So that is uh, a bad thing. Even this uh, Caleb Cage, this expert who appeared on KTNV, caught COVID himself over the uh, New Year's holiday. <laughs> I mean, I-, I was shocked, really, that they're having this at all. I thought, okay, let's skip the New Year celebration this year. People understand. Nope. I guess they didn't want to skip it because they didn't want to make it look like Vegas is shut down and no fun anymore. This is predictable. I, don't, I was thinking, how can you even have a New Year celebration in Vegas if uh, if there's not going to be crowds? Like New Year's is crowds. That's kind of reality. You can't really have a New Year celebration with hardly anyone there or with a lot of social distancing. That is the warning from state authorities following large New Year's Eve celebrations in Las Vegas. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Todd Quinones. And I'm Trisha Keen. Well, thousands of people packed onto the Strip and huddled together in the cold, windy weather downtown to ring in the new year. Now authorities are urging anyone who participated to get tested and quarantine until they get the results. 
This is testing sites. We'll see major changes next week. And let's get right to 13 Investigates reporter Joe Bartels live now on the strip with the details for us. Joe. Yeah, Dr. Richard, this was the epicenter on New Year's Eve right here on Las Vegas Boulevard, right in front of the iconic Bellagio Fountains as the fountain show goes right here at the top of the hour. That was in direct contrast to what health officials wanted and a violation of state mandates. It may become the Las Vegas Strip super spreader. Health officials are expecting a rise in COVID cases stemming from large New Year's Eve celebrations where people ignored warnings and state mandates. Uh, a lot of people don't wear masks out here unless they're cold. I've done fine like six times because customers will wear masks, you know. So I definitely believe there's probably been a lot of spreading of, of the virus. That was at uh, Megan Brown Hill I talked about who had that uh, temporary tattoo shop. Megan Brown at Fremont Street Temporary Tattoo says the crowds on Fremont Street were light for New Year's Eve, but it was packed all weekend long after that. Now there's COVID concerns. My coworker who worked the morning shift of New Year's Eve did recently test positive for COVID. And I don't know if that's State health authorities say those who went out into public, especially in large crowds, should act now as if they are infected and contagious with COVID-19. It can actually be infectious for up to two days prior to exhibiting any signs and symptoms. So those individuals who may be infected and not know, um, even if they haven't been showing any signs and symptoms yet, can still spread the virus. Dr. Christina Madison with Roseman University says in the coming days, some of those who were infected during the celebrations will begin to show signs of the illness, fever, cough, body aches, among other symptoms. And for some, they may end up in the hospital or worse. It was a risk to go out and gather on New Year's Eve. The governor made it clear at this time we are focusing on making sure people know how to handle the next steps. Starting Monday next week, the drive through testing at Texas Station will be cut to three days per week and offer 600 tests on a first-come, first-served basis while supplies last. The testing at Cashman Center will start requesting insurance information to begin billing patients to recoup testing-related costs. Wait a minute. What? 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 Wait a minute. So they're expecting this increase. They're already seeing an increase and they're cutting the hours of testing stations. And then other stations are demanding insurance information in order to uh, pay for these tests. That kind of seems like the opposite direction of what you should be going. Like, Shouldn't you make it easier to test? Shouldn't you do more tests and expand the hours? This doesn't make any sense. And authorities also do not know if that new mutant strain of COVID-19, which is said to be even more infectious and contagious, has made its way to Nevada. There was a confirmed case in southern Nevada or southern, excuse me, California last week. Authorities hope that state labs here will be able to detect that new strain here very soon. Joe Bartels, 13 Action News. That is not good. I don't see how this even was allowed. I was wondering, what are they going to do about New Year's? I thought, what are the specific regulations going to be about New Year's? I didn't bother to research it, but I thought there's got to be some very specific regulations, not just general state regulations about gatherings. There should have been like a very, very clear guidance to the city of Las Vegas, to Clark County, to the whole state about which kind of New Year's celebrations are okay, what is not okay, about crowd control, about how many people can be in a space at one time, and, and then strictly enforce it. I mean, I'm, I'm not even a believer in, in strong government enforcement of these things for the most part, but here it's pretty obvious. They, they said it may be a super spreader event. Yeah, I mean, massive crowds will do that. And since 
it's been so bad recently. How they could have these New Year's celebrations to me is it's insane. It just didn't make any sense to me. It did not seem compatible with New Year's celebrations, which pretty much by definition have big crowds. Sometimes really big, sometimes semi-big, but always kind of big crowds. You don't have New Year's celebrations where it's like five people distanced from one another. That That is not a New Year's celebration. I stayed home for New Year's, by the way, for the first time in 10 years. That is not good. If you're wondering what were the what were the case numbers today in Nevada, 2,648 new cases in Nevada and 55 or 56 new deaths. The death lag behind the new cases because you don't die right on the spot. So the people dying today are the ones who got this uh, at least a week ago, probably more. Twenty six forty eight cases, and that's pretty bad because the population of Nevada is it's like around three million. Yeah, three million eighty thousand. The population of Nevada is uh, about thirteen times as small as California. So to compare this, if you were to multiply out by thirteen and compare it to California's numbers, it is true that California is worse right now. California, if you multiply out uh, 13 times uh, 2,600, you get, I had to figure this out in my head, but it's something like 30,000-something. California had uh, 47,000 new cases today, which is pretty insane, and 460 new deaths. But California is one of the uh, more hard-hit places at the moment. Not overall when you add all the COVID numbers together, but at the moment, California is getting it pretty badly. L.A. County with uh, 16,766 new cases in one day. So they're struggling there in California. Hopefully the vaccine will put a dent in this, which we'll talk about towards the end of the show. Big mistake there in Nevada with the New Year's. By the way, these new cases they're coming up with, you may say, well, that's not that bad of a number, 2648 compared to California, so they couldn't be that bad. Well, the people going in and getting tested today for new cases, these are not the ones who caught it on New Year's because we're, we're at uh, January 9th, January 10th now. It just became January 10th after midnight here. So you're not going in for COVID testing first time on January 9th or 10th if you caught it on the morning of January 1st because you're usually going to show symptoms within two to five days, usually around three. By the time eight, nine days have passed, you either pretty much know you have it or you don't have it, or you don't know you have it because it's asymptomatic. So you're not usually seeking a test that deep into it other than to retest to see if it's gone yet. I I didn't see the numbers like January 4th, 5th, 6th, but they said there was a spike and they say that they are expecting that that was a super spreader event. So that was not good. Okay, so it is time for yet another edition of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. This is not going to be a long one, but I am nevertheless going to do one tonight just because I feel like it. And this is Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History Part 5. Good Springs, Nevada. You may ask, what is Good Springs, Nevada? You've probably never heard of it. Maybe you have, but there's a good chance you have not. Is Good Springs near Reno? No. Is it near Las Vegas? 
That's not really far, but it's not near Vegas. So where is it? And what is it? Well, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's in southern Nevada. It is a reasonable drive from Las Vegas. It's, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes away by car, maybe an hour. It is sort of a ghost town, but not really a ghost town. So here's the story. Good Springs, Nevada is an unincorporated community. It is not an incorporated city, meaning it doesn't have a, a mayor or city government or anything like that. It's, it's just considered Clark County. And don't read too much into that because parts of the Las Vegas area are unincorporated, such as where the Strip is. The Las Vegas Strip is considered paradise. There is no city of paradise. That's just like a community within Clark County. So parts of what you know of Las Vegas really is the city of Las Vegas and is uh, under the Las Vegas city government. And part of Las Vegas is just Clark County and is controlled by the county government. So Good Springs is a community that is controlled by the Clark County government. It is southwest of Las Vegas. Uh, the way you would get there is from Vegas is you would drive south on the 15 towards California, towards the state line. And then you would start going uh, west when you get to Gene. Gene used to be uh, where a lot of people would gamble before they get to Vegas, before they really built up the state line area at Prim. But Gene is uh, 12 miles north of the state line, and you may remember when you pass Gene, the exit sign on the freeway says Gene Good Springs. So Gene is right there. Right when you get off the freeway, you're in Gene. But if you want to go to Good Springs, then you take the road and travel west, and you will get over to Good Springs. Good Springs does have a population, as of the 2010 census, I guess they don't have the 2020 numbers yet. The population was 229. That's at 229 people. So obviously it's very small, but it's not zero. There's people there. Some people refer to it as a ghost town. It is not a ghost town because it is a town with 229 population and uh, it is a functioning town. It was built in the 1800s and it was built as a mining town. In fact, it was the heart of the most productive mining districts in Clark County. They mined lead, silver, copper, zinc, and gold. And this is all before uh, 1900. There was a small cluster of tents and a mill in the area, and they even had a post office in the 1800s there in Good Springs. Uh, in 1904, Salt Lake City mining interests uh, actually made the Good, the Good Springs Township. Prior to that, it was just kind of a bunch of tents and little cabins. There are still buildings in the town, you can see, that were built during the uh, railroad boom in 1910. In 1913, they built a schoolhouse in Good Springs. It's actually still used as a school, it is the oldest school in Clark County, now almost 108 years old, and it is in the National Register of Historic Places. So you, you can go see it. It is a nationally recognized historic place, this schoolhouse, called the Good Springs Schoolhouse. In fact, if you'd like to see a picture of it, you can go to Wikipedia and enter Good Springs Schoolhouse. 
There's not much in the article about it, but you can see a pretty clear picture of it. It doesn't look like a big deal. It kind of just looks like a, a, a small schoolhouse. It doesn't even look all that old. It must have been renovated. It doesn't look like something built in 1913. But uh, probably the they probably haven't wrecked it. They probably just renovated it over the years. So it is still technically the same building. However, after World War One, not World War Two, but World War One, uh, the mining slowed down in the area, and people started to leave. Uh, then they started to get people back in the town. I don't know how many, but they they had a kind of a comeback during World War Two. There was a second boom in the area, and then after that war was over, <laughs> people left. So. Uh, now it's a semi-ghost town in that there's 229 people as of 2010, but it does still function, and it does have a few businesses there. So it's not like a real ghost town where there's really nobody there, and that's an important distinction. How would you get to uh, Good Springs, and exactly how far is it? I know I mentioned that it's southwest of Las Vegas, but exactly how far... And how long? Well, it is 38 miles by car. And uh, as I mentioned on Gene, you would start going west. It is not close to anything other than Gene. You would get on Route 161. And that's what goes from the 15 west. And actually, uh, 161 does continue past Good Springs. It is a state route. It is sometimes known as Sandy Valley Road. Once you pass Good Springs, you can continue winding through Sandy Valley Road, and you eventually get into something called Sandy Valley, which is a small community right on the Nevada-California border that is not really near any freeway, and then becomes a different route in California, and then becomes something called Sandy Valley Ranch. Eventually, you can wind yourself back to the 15 through a series of roads, uh, but that's that's where you would get. You would also start getting towards uh, Pahrump if you wanted to go northwest from there. So Good Springs, is, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. There's really nothing in any direction of any significance for a lot of miles until you get to Las Vegas. So you, you, you can get to Vegas in 38 miles, but there's really nothing closer than that of anything significant. I'm not even talking about like Las Vegas size. I mean, like, any town of any real size, you're not going to find. Uh, I'm not sure which closer, Pahrump or Baker, but neither of those is that big anyway. I guess Pahrump's a little closer, but it really does have a remote feel to it. If you were to go, other than visiting the schoolhouse, which isn't that exciting, to be honest, and yeah, it's, it's in the National Registry of Historic Places, but it doesn't look that old. You can go look at the picture of it. Uh, the thing that most people go to Good Springs for actually isn't as interesting as you would think. So it sounds cool from its description. It's called the Pioneer Saloon, and it's considered to be one of the oldest saloons in Nevada. It's it's more than 100 years old. And uh, it actually has a bullet hole on the side of the building and a coroner's letter next to the bullet hole describing how it was created. I guess they put up a, the letter there of... of someone that was shot there and then I guess the bullet may have gone through them and damaged the building and they still have the hole there and a little letter next to it explaining who got killed there and what happened. There is a legend that the 
Pioneer Saloon is haunted by the ghost of the person who was shot there. They actually have ghost tours where you can pay like 50 bucks each and take a tour of what are said to be ghost sightings. And uh, obviously that's very gimmicky. I I doubt you're really going to be hearing anything or seeing anything involving ghosts, but some people are really into that. But I, I don't believe that there's ghosts in Good Springs. I don't. I don't believe there's any haunting in Good Springs. I don't believe this show has any kind of haunting. I just don't believe such a thing exists. I think it's all myth. But you can actually take a ghost tour, which is really based upon that one story. Though I suppose I think there's supposed to be some other ghosts in the area too. But what is this Pioneer Saloon other than an old saloon that's still operating? Well, it does have a little more history than that. In 1942, there was a TWA flight, Flight 3, which crashed into Potosi Mountain nearby. This is on January 16th, 1942. And uh, a famous woman named uh, Carol Lombardi was killed in that crash. Um, She was only 33 years old, and she was ranked actually by the American Film Institute as the 23rd greatest film star of the classic Hollywood cinema era. Even though she only died, she died in uh, January of, of 42 in that crash. Uh, Clark Gable was married to her, and uh, that marriage ended because she died in that crash. The Pioneer Saloon was the headquarters where people went to get information about that crash, and Clark Gable, of course, very famous actor, stayed at, the, or, you know, he sat there at the Pioneer Saloon waiting for news on what happened to his wife, Carol Lombardi. And then he was told after they searched the area after that crash, which, as I said, is fairly close to there, that they gave him the bad news that that his wife was dead. So that is also mentioned there. If you go to visit the Pioneer Saloon, the history of that, that this is the place that uh, Clark Gable waited to get the information about his wife's death, who was also famous. This might all sound like fairly interesting to you. You may say, oh, I want to go to the saloon. I want to see the bullet hole in the side. I want, I want to see the little plaque about uh, Clark Gable and uh, Carol Lombardi. In fact, there's a memorial to both of them, even though Clark Gable didn't die there. there there's a memorial to both of them over there. And maybe you want to have a drink at a saloon that is more than 100 years old. It's even said that the there is a brass bar that if you sit at the bar, there's actually a brass real bar. I don't mean like a bar where you get drinks. I mean like an actual bar on on the tour, uh, where your feet sit that was part of the original construction. That was the same bar that people rested their feet on back in the uh, 1800s or early 1900s whenever this was built. So this all sounds cool, I bet. But there are some problems. Remember A. Hoosier A., who appeared on this show to tell you the very sad and frustrating story about the frivolous lawsuit or the frivolous uh, restraining order filed against him by Christopher Mitchell, the 
Baccarat scammer? Well, he went, not Christopher Mitchell, maybe him too, but Lee Bradbury, a.k.a. A. Hoosier A., went to the Pioneer Saloon back in 2018. I know this because he posted about it on Facebook. That, actually, I have him to thank for this topic because uh, someone brought it up on a Facebook group and then he commented on it and that made me more interested in looking into all this. I knew about Good Springs, but I didn't know that much about Good Springs until I researched it today for today's show and that was really kind of inspired by seeing uh, Lee Bradbury's negative comment about his visit to the Pioneer Saloon. So, picture a visit to the Pioneer Saloon, a historic building, a historic bar. It's in the middle of nowhere in Good Springs. You'd think it probably doesn't get that many visitors. It's not all that close to Vegas. You would picture, if they serve food there, that it's it's probably not gourmet, but it's probably that kind of okay-ish diner-type food bar-type food that's semi-reasonably priced. You wouldn't expect it would be expensive, would you? Well, would you believe that the food is actually expensive at the Pioneer Saloon? (laughs) So according to A. Hoosier A., who went to the Pioneer Saloon, he said that he went in 2018 and that when when he went there, that he paid about $80 for a few hamburgers and, and fries and drinks, and that the hamburgers did not taste good. They were, uh, they were frozen and uh, bought at the store, like store-bought frozen hamburgers that they served there. <laughs> and, uh, so that's, that's pretty crazy that he, he does that. It's, it doesn't taste good. It tastes very bland, just store-bought frozen hamburgers that they are heating up. And it was 80 bucks. For like a few hamburgers and fries and drinks. Crazy. So it's not backbreakingly expensive, but it's not like I would have pictured the burgers that are going to be like eight bucks. That's what I'd picture. I wouldn't picture you could bring a few people there and run up an $80 bill and then it's not even good. It's not even like it's a a charming place where the food is surprisingly good and and yeah, they happen to charge a lot for it, but at least uh, it's good quality. They're buying store-bought frozen burgers and heating them up and uh, you know, serving it with some crappy French fries and the drink, and you, you get an $80 bill. You can't believe it. Well, I guess you can believe it. You probably see the prices on the menu. I'm not saying it's a surprise, but it's a surprise when you get all the way there after the drive from Vegas, because he lives in Vegas. So you drive all the way there, and you're planning to eat, and you're like, okay, this is more expensive than I thought, but okay, maybe at least it tastes good. No, it's, it, it, <laughs> it doesn't. Everything's very bland, and you're like, you're paying a lot of money for... Not very good food in a small town. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It would make more sense if you were getting mediocre food in something like like a, a, a strip cafe, the Vegas Strip Cafe in, in an expensive hotel, or even a semi-expensive strip hotel. Because you just expect everything's marked up on the strip. But in a small town, for this to be marked up like this, yeah, he said he spent $80 on three cheeseburgers, one hot dog and a side of macaroni. I don't know if they got fries, too. They didn't even have drinks. It was three waters, he said, and a kid's lemonade. Wow, that's worse than I thought. $80 on three cheeseburgers, a hot dog, a side of macaroni, and a kid's lemonade. The waters, obviously, are free. $80 for all that. And it was not good. He said it was extremely overpriced and not good food at all. So I got curious. I went to go take a look 
at their Yelp reviews. So I looked on Yelp, Pioneer Saloon Good Springs. And there it was. And there were a lot of five and four star reviews there of people that liked it, though a lot of them just were talking about the experience of going there and not the food. Or some people just had drinks there and didn't eat. I guess those are expensive, too. However, there were a lot of bad reviews, too. And the bad reviews all said the same thing, which is never a good sign. Whenever, whenever you read a, like a lot of bad reviews in a place and that everybody's saying the same thing who's reviewing it badly, even if there's a lot of good ones to counteract it, it's almost always the case that the bad ones are correct. It is rare you're going to see a lot of bad reviews saying the same thing, and yet they're all wrong. The only time that happens is when it's about an experience that not everybody has. Like I, I had an experience at a uh, hotel Kind of like a, a, not really a hotel, like a series of like cabins and uh, cabins that were kind of connected in one large building. They called cabins, but it, it was in Canada and it had a lot of mixed reviews of people writing a lot of bad things about the cabins. I went there. I thought it was great. And I'm like, how do people write these bad reviews? Well, it turned out some of them were renovated. Some of them weren't. So I got one of the good ones and uh, it was a good experience for me while others had uh, these crappy dilapidated ones that smelled bad. So I, I got lucky I got the better ones, but that makes sense why some people liked it, some didn't. But the, other than things like that, where it's something like a restaurant, if a restaurant has a lot of people saying the same thing, then that's probably true. I'm talking about bad things. Now, why they get good reviews? Well, there's some people who just don't have very high standards, some who uh, didn't eat the food there, some who just always force themselves to enjoy everything, even if it kind of sucks. You know, very optimistic people, very positive people. So it's easier to believe bad reviews than good reviews. You can also have shills doing good reviews. So in general, what you want to do to figure out if something's good or bad on Yelp is you look at the overall reviews. Of course, you read the good ones too, but you focus on the bad ones compared to how many good ones there are. And then you look at what the bad ones are saying. If they're all kind of saying the same thing, then you should stay away. So, yes, they pretty much said the same thing, these bad reviews, and it kind of echoed what Lee Bradbury wrote on Facebook. And that is that it's overpriced, that the food ranges between mediocre and bad, and the burgers are store-bought frozen patties. There was others who said this on Yelp, too, not just him. And that the service is slow and unattentive to where you... It takes forever to get anything. You ask the waitress for something, she disappears for 20 minutes. That sometimes you get seated, they don't even take your order. A lot of complaints about slow service and unattentive service. And it's expensive. That's that's another one I mentioned earlier. So this is not a good place to eat. So I would say if you're going to go to Good Springs, and by the way, what... And I don't want to make Good Springs sound terrible because there are some old buildings there that date back before 1900 that are still standing. Some little shacks and other things like that that you can you can see some very old buildings and not renovated ones like it looks like a school is. I'm talking about like buildings that are old and look it. So you can go there. There's a lot of... Uh, I, I've seen pictures of it. I found a webpage that has a lot... Of, I, I can't describe it on the radio because it's hard to describe, but... There's a lot of older buildings there that are abandoned, and that's where the ghost town part comes in. There is a portion of Good Springs that is a ghost town, and I think it would be interesting to drive around Good Springs. I've never done it, but I think it would be interesting to drive around there and look at these buildings and think about the fact that people were living in them in the 1800s and early 1900s as part of a mining effort. And then 
also to take a look at these other more touristy historic things like the Pioneer Saloon and the school. I guess the school's not that touristy. They just kind of looks like they renovated it. But the, the Pioneer Saloon is definitely touristy. Someone obviously chose to renovate it and to uh, make it a tourist trap, which is sad. You, you would think in a small town there's not going to be a tourist trap, a small town in the middle of nowhere. I, I've seen tourist trap small towns that are next to a big attraction, like uh, next to Mount Rushmore, there's a town that is super touristy. I mean, you drive in, there's like a giant, giant, giant billboard in your face, and it, it looks like it's just insane. It's the, it's the tourist trap to end all tourist traps. But that makes more sense because at least it's right next to a major monument that uh, gets tons of visitors every year. But Good Springs is not like that. Good Springs is not next to anything that people visit all the time. And in fact, yes, Las Vegas gets a lot of tourists, but the tourists to Vegas do not typically go to Good Springs. Most of the people going to Good Springs are Vegas locals like Lee Bradbury, a Hoosier A. So it's really a Vegas locals destination of anyone who goes there. So this is really aimed at uh, Vegas locals who are going there for tourism purposes, like a kind of little day trip. And they figure they can overcharge them. I think the belief is you've driven all that way. You've driven 45 minutes out there. uh, And and if you plan to eat, that's pretty much the only thing in town to go to as a restaurant. And you're going to do it. You're just going to pay it. And maybe you'll assume the food is decent and it usually isn't. So it's sad that it got turned into that because one advantage of visiting a small town in the middle of nowhere is you kind of get the charm of it that there's no nothing touristy there. That when I, when I go to a small town and something's touristy, it really turns me off. The charm of a small town is that you get to kind of be part of the small town while you're there. And I have stayed in some small towns where the accommodations aren't that great. Of course, the motel I'm staying at is mediocre, and the food is nothing to write home about in the area. But but one charm of the whole thing is you get to kind of uh, be part of it for a day and interact with all the people and go to a restaurant and eat with the locals there. I'm talking about places that don't attract a lot of tourists. And you get to really be part of what life really is there. And it's interesting to see that, even if the hotel isn't the best and the restaurants aren't the best. But I'll even tell you, sometimes you find restaurants that are surprisingly good. Not gourmet, nothing that's going to get a a Michelin star, but something that the food is tasty. And you're actually surprised it's as good as it is, given the size of the town. I've run into that a lot, too. But when you go to a small town in the middle of nowhere and it's already been exploited to be touristy by some uh, greedy owner that figures tourists are going to come in and they'll pay whatever, even if it's just kind of local area tourists, that's kind of crappy. They have a right to do it. I'm not saying they should be stopped in any way. It's just kind of crappy. It's a turnoff to me. I don't like it. So I do plan to go to Good Springs at some point just to take a look around. I'm definitely not going to eat at the Pioneer Saloon if you believe Lee Bradbury's review and other reviews like his on Yelp, I would recommend you don't. And if you want to just go see the bullet hole and uh, look around there, if you want to take the ghost tour, I mean, I guess you can, but this is, it's promoted around the Pioneer Saloon. It may even be the same ownership putting that on. So keep in mind, the whole thing is to separate you from your money. I mean, yeah, someone got shot there a long time ago and they still have the bullet hole from it, but it doesn't mean the ghost is there. It means they're 
probably trying to say there's one, so you'll give them 50 bucks to take a tour. Anything like that, I, I don't tend to like when there's something that's really aimed at the tourist. I'm talking about everywhere. Even places that are big tourist destinations. Anything that is kind of touristy there, I don't like to do. I'd like to create my own tourist experience. I like to get away from the tourists. Or if I'm somewhere that you have to be by the tourists, like, say, the Grand Canyon, you're not going to... I guess there's ways to get away from the tourists there, too, because it's so big. But uh, let's take something that's a little harder to do, like like in Yellowstone. If you want to see the big sites at Yellowstone, even though it's a big park, if you want to see the most interesting sites in Yellowstone, you're going to be with a lot of tourists, unless you go in the winter when it's super freezing there. So, yes, you have to be around tourists then, but you don't have to do touristy things. You're just going to see nature and happen to be around a, a lot of tourists when you do it. And it's also something that's run by the National Park Service, not by greedy... Uh, private owners who are just running it to make money. Whenever I see something that is being exploited by a private owner to make a lot of money off of tourists, it bothers me. Like, it bothers me in a way I don't really want to do it. Now, I guess if they can make money from it, fine. Good for them, but... I just think it would be cooler there if they just made it more reasonably priced and... If the, you know, if they could, like the ghost tour, okay, fine. If they want to make that overpriced and tell ghost stories, even if it's not all true, if people enjoy it and want to have fun with it, okay, fine. Like that's kind of more of a niche thing that people will do if they have an interest in the subject. But but food is a basic need. You go out there, you're middle of nowhere, you're hungry. There's nothing else to get to eat. I guess they have a grocery store too. But like I'm talking about like ready-made food, hot food. If that's the only place to go, and they jack the price way up, and it's not good, it's kind of a turnoff. Anyway, that is Good Springs. In case you ever wondered what Good Springs meant when you pass it on the 15 and you see that Gene Good Springs sign, that's what Good Springs is. That is a Southern Nevada town that's kind of a ghost town, but kind of is not. That is the end of Part 5 of Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History. Well, here's something that is the opposite of history. A new casino in Philadelphia, is going to be opening, not closing. You would think this would be a time that casinos are shutting down for good. I know that COVID is probably not going to be forever, but you would think that with the hit that a lot of these casinos took, that a lot of them are going to close. Instead, we have a new casino opening in Philadelphia, and until this week, I hadn't even heard of it. I will admit I'm not someone who's always keeping track of everything going on in Philadelphia. I don't live anywhere near there, and I don't have an occasion to go there other than if I'm going to fly into there to go to Atlantic City. But here is what is going on. Live Casino and Hotel Philadelphia will be opening on February 11th at 8 p.m. Now, you may recognize the name live. It's live exclamation mark. What does that remind you of? Is there any other casino you know in the U.S. that's called Live? Maybe one in the eastern U.S.? Live exclamation mark? Yes! Maryland Live. Maryland Live in the Baltimore area. That is the same company, obviously. So this is a Live in Philadelphia. And it's going to open pending approval from the state on February 11th. 
And it's going to be in the Stadium District in downtown Philadelphia. This will join Rivers Casino as the second casino within the actual city limits of Philadelphia and become the fourth casino in the greater Philly area. If you're wondering, Harris, Philadelphia is not technically in Philadelphia. It's actually in the city of Chester. It's not even a very good neighborhood, which is uh, south of Philadelphia. I have been there. And Parks Casino is just north of Philadelphia in a city called Ben Salem. So life is actually going to be in Philadelphia. And they said that they're going to have a 29-table poker room inside. And it's going to be a uh, 510,000-foot property. Pretty big property. All of the uh, Philadelphia casinos, by the way, have poker. There's not a, including this one when it opens, there's not going to be a single Philadelphia casino that doesn't also have poker. You've probably heard of all of them, other than the live one, which is new. You've probably heard of all of them uh, hosting poker in the past. You've probably heard of, of course, the Harris Philadelphia. You've heard of Parks, probably. And then uh, Rivers, another big one, of course, actually in the city. The casino will also have 2,100 slots. And they're going to have uh, electronic table games and also 150 regular table games. There will be a hotel there. There's going to be an event center. They're going to have a sports book. Remember, sports betting is legal in Pennsylvania. So uh, they're going to have a sports book, and it's going to be run by FanDuel. Now, you may remember on a recent show, I said that the casinos have been shut down in Pennsylvania for the second time due to COVID-19. And that is true. The casinos in Pennsylvania were just reopened, though. After that second shutdown, they were allowed to reopen, and it's not clear if there's going to be a third shutdown. So provided they don't shut down a third time in the state of Pennsylvania, this was statewide that was forced by uh, Governor Tom Wolf. I think that... uh, Rivers was shut down before that. I think the city of Philadelphia shut everything down first, and then the governor shut it down statewide. But anyway, everything's back open currently in Pennsylvania as far as the casinos go. The president of Cordish Gaming Group, or the the executive vice president, Joe Bilheimer, he said this, we are excited to go live in Philadelphia. See what he did there? We're excited to go live. It's also called live. Isn't that funny? And bring this world-class gaming and entertainment destination to the heart of the stadium district. What we have created here is an unrivaled is unrivaled anywhere in the country. Sports fans, foodies, gaming enthusiasts, and anyone looking for a night of fun and excitement only has to make one stop to experience it all. Mm-hmm. Nothing like it in the country, guys. <laughs> I tell you, when you think of Major casinos that you must visit in the U.S., you think of Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is a must-go place for casinos. I'm not saying if you live there. Like, if you're where I am, if you're in the West Coast, you got to go to Philadelphia for the casinos. That's a great reason to go. It's, it's one of a kind. No, it's not. He says, sports fans, foodies, gaming enthusiasts, and anyone looking for a night of fun and excitement, that, that's... That's every Vegas casino. What's he talking about? It's, it's, I mean, it, I'm sure the place is going to be fine, but 
it doesn't sound unique to me. There's nothing there that I would find more interesting than any other casino. There is a belief, but who knows what's really going to happen, especially during times of COVID, that the casino is going to generate $100 million of tax revenue in the first five years. That is about $20 million a year. And that uh, $25 million of that revenue is going to go to the public school system. So that's the justification for why they're opening up another casino. It's, it's always about the children. Yeah, we're going to open another casino in the city. Yeah, there's going to be four in the area. Yeah, it's going to attract a lot of degenerates with gambling problems. They're going to lose all their money. But it's going to help the children in the schools. So it's okay. It's okay. There's a positive it is bringing to the community, they say. So I, I think that's BS, by the way. I think if, if they want to force some of the revenue that's paid, that's collected through taxes to the schools, that's great. But don't, don't play these games. Just say, we either want casinos here or we don't. This can be a reason you'd like to have one, but it doesn't have to be, oh, this is for the children. No, it's not. It's because the casinos want to make money, because people in the area want to gamble, and the government finds a way to justify it by raising some money for the schools. I mean, that's all fine, but I hate when they try to frame it like this is uh, something for the kids. It's for the kids until they grow up, and then they chunk off all their money, they're playing negative expectation games. Unless they are advantage players, then it's okay for the children to go. I don't know what the Philadelphia market is like, whether it can support a fourth casino, or if this is going to start to oversaturate the market. Philadelphia is 60 miles from Atlantic City, so it's not even like the area has a shortage of casinos. It's not like it's a major drive to get to AC. Yeah, sure, if you live in Philadelphia, it's a lot easier to go to your own city than drive 60 miles away. I'll say that. But really, I'm about as far from Commerce as people in Philadelphia are from AC. And I was going to Commerce like once a week or more before COVID hit. So it's it's not my favorite drive, especially in traffic, but I didn't feel like it was so far it was out of reach or that I could only go once in a while. But apparently they feel that uh, they have enough for four casinos there. I don't know about making uh, $20 million a year. I guess it's possible. That's not that much money. I, I mean, I'm talking about tax revenue. I know it's going to make $20 million a year, but I don't know if they're going to collect that much in tax revenue. A lot of times they overestimate by a wide margin. A lot of times they are kind of picking the best-case scenario to justify opening it and then it doesn't reach that. And I think casinos are a questionable proposition at the moment until we see where COVID is going. The reason for that is that, I was saying this earlier to Ken on the phone, if COVID completely just gets wiped out, let's say we take the vaccine and let's say the vaccine even stops it from transmitting, which we don't know yet. We don't know if it stops it from transmitting or if it's just like a symptom blocker. Either way, it's good, but it's, of course, better if it it also stops it from transmitting. But let's say it stops it from transmitting, or let's say if it doesn't, but people just transmit it more because they're not being as careful because they have the vaccine to stop the symptoms, and it burns itself out. It burns itself out so fast that it can't mutate fast enough, and the whole thing just dies. And that's not unrealistic because that happened to the swine flu. The swine flu just burnt itself out and died. That's why nobody in 2021 is getting the swine flu. So... That was in 09, so maybe, even though this is much more dangerous than the swine flu, maybe we'll have the same result once people are 
letting their guard down some and just go out and do things to, uh, and, and then this spreads a lot faster. Or if it just has a hard time spreading at all because maybe the vaccine will block that. We're not sure about that yet. Anyway, let's say the vaccine does its job and then within like a year or so, COVID's gone, which would be wonderful. It'd be great to see that happen. Well, then if we're sure of that, things that were affected by COVID will start to come back. Buffets, cruise lines, casinos, uh, events, especially events that aren't aimed at young people, nightclubs. Uh, we'll start to see those things come back because people won't be afraid to do them. It won't feel weird to be in close quarters with people. It will at first. It'll always feel a little strange after you've been conditioned for this amount of time that being in close quarters with other people is dangerous. I'll even watch TV shows, even ones that weren't made that long ago, but ones that were made before COVID, where a bunch of people are like getting together in a group. I go, oh, wow, that's kind of dangerous. Wow, that's kind of uh, reckless. Like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. This is made before COVID. Like, I got to remind myself I'm not watching a current scene. I'm watching a scene from 2019, 2018. I don't know if that's going to be the future or if COVID is going to become like the flu, where it mutates enough where every year we have to take a different vaccine and where it never completely dies, where every year some people are going to get it, some people are going to die from it. The, the flu killed a lot of people. If you look, it, during a bad flu season, you can have up to like 80,000 people dying. It's not like COVID where we had uh, hundreds of thousands, but and, and that's with people trying to social distance and everything. We'd have more people were, were just going out living normal life like they were with the flu. But still, I, I'm not comparing the two. I know the flu is, is much less serious and it's much less of a danger to those who aren't old or, or very young. But uh, the flu still was killing tens of thousands of people every year in the U.S. And that was kind of taken for granted. It's something we were born into knowing about and just got used to. And it's just, okay, you know, if you're a really old person, then there's a fair chance you can die of the flu. And there's some little kids, unfortunately, that get very unlucky and catch the flu. And they, they uh, are unfortunately killed as well, especially if they didn't get... Uh, uh, flu vaccine. So uh, I, that's just kind of what happens with the flu. And the rest of us, uh, we don't really have to worry about it. If you're an adult, a teenager, uh, even a middle-aged adult, for the most part, the flu isn't much of a danger to you unless you have some major pre-existing conditions. So that's what we've lived with our whole lives. Now, COVID's a different story, which makes sense. But keep in mind, we did have the flu sitting around that was killing people every year, even though we have vaccines for it. So the vaccines appear to be better for COVID because these are these mRNA vaccines, which may be the future of vaccinations. And the future may just be beginning with that right now. But whatever, the COVID-19 may be mutating enough. We've already seen evidence that it's been mutating. It may be mutating enough to where it is going to be permanent. We're never going to be rid of it. The rest of our lives, there will be a COVID danger. The rest of our lives, even those that take the vaccine, some will get it. Kind of like the flu. You should always get the flu if you took the vaccine. The flu wasn't nearly as contagious. But this is like a way more contagious and more dangerous and more deadly version of the flu and something that affects people much more who are not in that traditional age range who get killed from the flu. Now, this, this hurts middle-aged people too. This kills middle-aged people too. And this may just be a risk you're going to have to take. This may be something you get used to that, okay, I'm going to take my vaccine. I hope I'm not one of the unlucky ones. If I am, I might be. 
And then I just got to hope if I get COVID that I'm not one of the people who really gets it badly. People who have major pre-existing conditions or old people are going to have an additional thing to be concerned about because right now people are kind of in the mode, okay, I'm waiting for the vaccine, I'm waiting for this to kind of go away, then life can go back to normal. But if it never goes back to normal, this is just the new normal, then everybody has to decide how much risk they are willing to take. You know, I don't think many people are going to say, you know what, I'm just not going to go anywhere for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be shut in the rest of my life. I don't think many people are going to take that approach with COVID. So at some point, we may just have to take the vaccine and go out there and, and risk it. If that's the case, then you're going to see a lot less popularity for things like concerts, for things like cruises, especially cruises because it's mostly older people, uh, casinos, anything where there's going to be large crowds. Conventions. Conventions have been exploding over recent decades, but that may take a huge step back that people aren't going to want to do conventions anymore. So who knows what changes we're going to see? Like even things like buffets, like a lot of things may never come back to what they were, even if they return to some extent, if COVID remains a persistent danger. Like look at cruise ships. Cruise ships are known to be places where viruses spread very easily. For decades, you've heard about the norovirus, which you can catch on a cruise, which makes you... uh, very sick to your stomach, you're vomiting, you have a fever, you, you have fatigue, you basically can't do anything but lie in bed and occasionally get up and vomit. Now, it doesn't usually kill people, but it's very uncomfortable and it ruins your trip. And these spread very quickly on ships. On the last cruise I took, there was a norovirus outbreak, which fortunately nobody in my family caught. And we know this because they abruptly changed the safety protocols of how they were handling everything on there. And at first they wouldn't admit there was an outbreak. I knew there had to be. And then finally I found out, yes, there was a norovirus outbreak on the ship, which again, fortunately we did not uh, catch, but COVID spread on ships at the beginning. If you remember people on cruise ships at the time, there were a number of deaths. There were a number of ships that no port would take even in the U S and they kind of just drifted around for weeks when people were trapped in their rooms and not allowed to leave. It sounded awful. It sounded like prison. But are people ready to return to ships where COVID-19 can spread very quickly, even if a lot of people are vaccinated? So there's a lot of questions here. There's a lot of questions. Will, will there be another situation of COVID outbreaks on ships, even if they require everyone to be vaccinated? Like, a, like what's going to happen? What, what if there is a mutated COVID that nobody knows about that ravages a ship? What's, what's going to happen then? There's a, a lot of questions that have not been answered. Some of these will not be answered in advance, even though they should be, and unfortunately will not be dealt with until disaster occurs. Like, I have a feeling they're going to rush to open the cruise ships as soon as the vaccinations really get going to the wide population. And then they'll probably require vaccination to get on. And then they'll just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, okay, we got this covered. And then one day something bad is going to happen with a COVID outbreak on the ship. And they're going to have the same problem that they had in early 2020. And a bunch of people are going to die. And they're going to have to come up with new regulations. Like a, a lot of this stuff may never be the same again. So... With opening casinos, who knows? Who knows how much demand there's going to be for casinos now that all this has happened? There's also the question of, have people just kind of gotten over gambling to where they're just not doing it and got unused to doing it? There's something to be said about consistently doing something to where your mind is on it. And once your mind gets off of doing it, 
even if you think you have an excitement to return to do it again, you may not be as excited as you think. In fact, think of... This is going to sound different, but it's along the same lines. Think of uh, a TV show you liked at one point. So at the peak of liking it, you probably can't wait for another episode. I'm not talking about things on Netflix which get released all at once and you can binge them. I'm talking about something that comes out like every week. So at the height of enjoying the show, you're probably really looking forward to watching it. You can't wait till the next episode comes out. And then after the show's been on a few years, or maybe more than a few years, it starts to get stale, they run out of ideas, they do some stupid things, they some characters leave the show, whatever it is. It's not the same as it once was. And you start to get less excited to see it. But because you've stuck with it so long, you keep watching anyway. Well, then maybe it goes on a little hiatus, because... Uh, uh, yeah, they they uh, they're they're going to run something else for a while, or it's just the holidays, whatever it is. You know how shows sometimes will go on hiatus for a few months, so it goes on hiatus. How many times does it happen when it comes back from a hiatus? You just don't watch anymore, or maybe you've forgotten to watch a few episodes in a row, and you have to catch up, and you go, oh, you know, I, don't, I just don't have the desire to go back and do this. I haven't watched this in like two three months. I I just don't really feel like going back and watching it. I'm just kind of done. Sometimes you don't even say that out loud. You just don't really watch it. You don't really uh, have the desire to turn it on and seek it out. Sometimes it just takes a small thing to disrupt that routine. And that may be the case with with uh, casinos. In fact, that kind of is what happened with poker somewhat. People just kind of got out of the habit of playing. Yes, Black Friday was huge and was it caused an abrupt situation of where people couldn't get money online to play easily. And it also stopped the entry of a lot of new people into the game, especially new young people. But there were also a lot of people that just kind of fell out of love with poker. People who had their fun while it was big, but once it wasn't on TV as much anymore and people stopped talking about it as much, once it wasn't a fad anymore, they just didn't really have the desire to do it, and they stopped. And that could be, you know, casinos have really been expanding. There's been a, there's way more casinos than there used to be by a very wide margin. And there was a very big appetite for casino gambling. But who knows? There may not be. I know sports betting is growing and expanding. And that has a lot of future because that's a new thing. Before, you could only do it in Nevada or illegally. Now, legal books are opening up everywhere. It's not legal everywhere yet, but it's it's really expanding rapidly around the country. More than half the states have it. So sports betting has a lot of future. But casino gambling, it's, it's starting to get to be old hat for some people. Some people just don't want to go there and play video poker or slot machines or blackjack or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be something with a lot of future where a lot of new ones should open up. I'm not saying casino gambling is going to die. I'm saying this may have really set it back some. So we'll have to see. I would not want to be opening up a new casino right now. Now, they probably started building this before COVID. So they were kind of committed All right, we're going to move on to our next subject. By the way, from the 707, I got a text. I I hate getting texts like this. I'm glad he's telling me. I just hate finding this out. The built-in player on the website sucks and doesn't work for me. Is there a live streaming option that doesn't suck besides the call to listen line? Yes, there actually is one. There's one that I think doesn't suck. Get the TuneIn app. If your smartphone has the TuneIn app, 
then you can listen on there. It may even work if you just go to TuneIn.com and search for the show, but I know that player broke for a while. But definitely the TuneIn app, there's two entries for Poker Fraud Alert. If you search Poker Space Fraud Space Alert, search for that. And you one of the entries is all the shows in the archives. The other entry is whatever live show is playing or streaming rerun at the moment. So right now it's the live show as I speak. But uh, after I'm done, then it will be streaming reruns randomly selected over the last uh, nine or so years. So that there is an option for you. The TuneIn app. Exactly as it sounds. Okay, we will move on. You know what? I'm actually going to take a break here because the next two topics go together. And I don't want to break them up. So we'll do the, the final topics we're going to talk about. I'm just letting you know this. The final topics we're going to talk about are not about poker or gambling. That's it for the poker and gambling and Vegas stuff tonight. The next two topics are going to be about what happened in the first week of 2021. Very eventful first week of 2021, for sure. It's funny, 2021 is only nine days old, and yet already some things happen that are going to end up in the history books. It's a very eventful year so far, and it's barely gotten going. But they're the uh, capital riots. We're going to talk about those. And we're going to talk about the bans of people, prominent people from Twitter, including President Trump. I mean, that's a huge thing that President Trump got banned from Twitter. First, he was suspended. Then he was outright banned. And he was banned from Facebook, too. And also the Parler app, a right-wing Twitter knockoff, kind of saw itself as competition for Twitter has been banned from various app stores. So I'm going to have two discussions. Number one, about the Capitol riots. And number two, about the bans of Trump and other right-wing figures on Twitter and Parler being banned from the app stores. And I'm going to tell you what I feel about all of these things. After that, I'm going to do some coronavirus news. And then that will be the end of the show. In the meantime... I'm going to play you an advertisement for an attorney handling the apostle situation. His name is Mark Randazic. No, his name is Eric Benzamokin. And I did not go the Randazic route. I, I don't need the famous CNN attorney who postures about uh, First Amendment rights. And I'm sure he's very competent, but I didn't need that. I went with an attorney... I knew personally. He's doing a great job. I do not feel bad that I didn't go with Mark Randazza. I've gotten very good representation thus far. Eric Benzamokin listens to the show. He donates to our free rolls. He is a very nice and generous guy. And a great attorney, too. Sometimes a nice guy can be a sucky attorney, but that's not his case. That is not the situation with him, for sure. So, I'm going to play his ad. He does a lot of things, not just arbitration and mediation, as mentioned in the ad. He also does uh, bankruptcies and many other areas of law. As you can see from reading the anti-slap motion, he did a very good job with that. And that is a completely different area of law than uh, arbitration, mediation, or bankruptcies. So you can email him if you have a legal question, or if you have a uh, potential case for him, or if you need arbitration or mediation. And the arbitration mediation can be done anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a place he's licensed to practice. But if, if it is, uh, if you need an attorney, if you need to hire an attorney for uh, an actual lawsuit, then 
it either has to be a California or a federal lawsuit, either as a plaintiff or defendant. Anyway, you can listen to his ad, and I will be back after that, and we will finish up the show with those general topics. Of course, I've got to talk about this stuff. I mean, people said, I, you've got to talk about this stuff this week, right? You're not going to just ignore the fact that people just busted into the Capitol building, right? Like, that doesn't happen normally. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. And yes, I have to talk about it. So I will. We talk about all that when I come back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, I'm back, and we're going to do the rest of the show here. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. We're going to talk about what happened at the Capitol. It happened on January 6th. Obviously, you know about it. I don't have to describe it to you. But it was a disgraceful event. It was something which was very embarrassing for the United States. The world was watching. It looked very, very stupid. It looked somewhat scary. It was dangerous. Some people died. There's no excuse for it. And the ideology of the people involved doesn't really matter. 
and we're going to talk about it. We'll be honest about what the ideology was, but it's inappropriate no matter what. No matter what the reason, no matter which political side you're on, you can't have it. You can't have anything like that. It also exposed the vulnerability regarding lack of security at the Capitol. I mean, you would have thought this would be impossible. I can only imagine that our enemies are looking at this going, oh, why didn't we think of that? ISIS is probably thinking, ah, damn it. So it was that easy to just storm the Capitol building? But yeah, apparently it is. I'm sure there'll be some changes in that realm. But what happened was there was a Trump rally where he was saying that uh, he's going to lead them on a march to the Capitol building where they were counting the electoral votes, which were going to end up certifying uh, Joe Biden as the next president to take office in two weeks or two weeks from then. And that they were going to march down there. Trump claimed he was going to lead people on a march, but he actually did not. But uh, people went down there anyway. And he said that people can uh, cheer for certain politicians there and uh, give a different reaction to others that they're not very happy with. Well, people did give a different reaction. There were some who were chanting to hang Mike Pence, who Trump saw as a traitor at that point because he wasn't going to try to overrule what was going on as far as the count of the electoral votes, which Mike Pence had no ability to do anyway. And he was mad at any Republican that wasn't going along with him with this. And he was firing people up. Now, Trump didn't tell people, bust into the Capitol. But he was riling them up. He's been riling them up for two months. I said, ever since it became clear that Trump was going to lose, on election night we couldn't tell. If you remember our Poker Fraud Alert election special, we couldn't tell. But shortly after that, it became pretty clear that Trump was going to lose. And ever since it became clear to most people in the country, I was right along with them and said, yeah, it looks like Trump lost. Yeah, at one point it looked like he was going to win. Then the mail-in vote started to be counted, and those were very heavily leaning Democratic. So it looks pretty clear he's going to lose. It looks pretty clear he lost. And indeed, that's what happened. And in fact, it wasn't even all that close. So... I accepted this a long time ago. I voted for Trump. I was hoping he would win. But he did not. And I was honest about it. I did not think he was cheated. I did not think they invented votes. I didn't think that there were anywhere nearly enough fraudulent votes to make up the difference. I believe there was more voter fraud in this election compared to other elections because of the weirdness with the universal mail-in voting that we had everywhere. And that is more conducive to fraud. It's easier to commit fraud with universal mail-in voting. It simply is. If someone says it's not, they're lying to you. But it's a matter of scale. It's a matter of how much fraud occurred. And it is highly unlikely that in the states that were fairly close, the swing states for Trump, that there would have been enough fraud that went to Joe Biden. Because, you know, of course, there could be fraud that benefits Trump. So it would have to be fraud that 
has a net benefit to to Joe Biden enough to swing it from Trump rightfully winning to Biden winning the state. There was no state that was close enough to where the amount of fraud that is likely even on the upper bounds would have come close to changing the result. It's not like we had several states which were decided by 500 votes. And Trump saying, hey, there, there's a lot of voter fraud. It's, it's, it's very easy to do. 500 is not many votes. It was that close. And that shouldn't be determining the election. And you know what? I'd be saying the same thing. I don't know what you do about it at that point. But I would understand why he'd feel cheated. But the way it went down, the way the numbers were, he should not feel cheated. He did not get cheated. He rightfully lost the election. In fact, I don't believe there's a single state which he lost due to fraud. I believe every state's results, as far as who won, is correct. So, therefore, there should not have been two months of conspiracy theories and bitching about this. Now, he had the legal right to challenge it, but just because you have the legal right to do something doesn't mean you should. And as the President of the United States, he should have let it go, like every other president has. Now you can say, well, Al Gore, look, look at all the challenges he did. But Al Gore was, it was a super, super close election, which really did come down to 500 votes. So while I think Gore took it too far and didn't want to give up, at least it was reasonable he was trying to challenge it. But these challenges were absurd and ridiculous and just the sign of a sore loser. And the problem is that things have become so divided in this country, everything's become so political, that people kind of feel like they're cheering for a team. And if their team lost, then they start to boo, and they start to want to find ways to explain how their team really won. And so they go along with any narrative. So if Trump says he was cheated, they, did, they turn off their thinking caps, they turn off their common sense, and they go, okay, well, Trump said he was cheated. He puts forth some sort of crazy theory. He has some crazy attorneys saying that he was cheated. And they just believe it. They just blindly believe it. And that's not a good way to do it, because it wasn't true. He didn't get cheated. You may not want him to have lost. You may not like the mail-in voting process. I don't either. I think I think there's a lot of flaws. I think it is very conducive to fraud. I think it's very difficult to detect that fraud. But there's also the likelihood of the fraud being a wide enough scale to have changed the results here. It's just super unlikely, especially in multiple states. So, he lost, and I've been saying that for two months. I've been consistent. The problem when you say this is that you rile people up, and then when you hold a rally that is walking distance from the Capitol building, where they are counting the electoral votes, and you rile everybody up at that rally, then you will have a situation where crazy people do crazy things. And that's what occurred. And as was pointed out earlier in the show during the Ken Scaler call, this was not a planned insurrection. This wasn't like, okay, the plan is to go into the Capitol building and do X, Y, and Z. People just did it. They just got riled up, and they got caught up in the moment, and they decided to do it. Now, I'm not making excuses for them, by the way. These are criminals. These are thugs. These are people who need to be tracked down and prosecuted aggressively. These are people who should be in prison 
and they did very bad things, and, and some people ended up dying. And yes, the, the person who was shot dead was actually shot while they were trying to get into the building. It was one of the people trying to break into the building. So you can't have a ton of sympathy for them. Then three others died in, quote, medical emergencies, which is kind of weird. There, there were law enforcement officers who were hurt. There's that picture that's been going around of the law enforcement officer being crushed in a doorway when he's trying to prevent people from getting in. It's a very ugly scene. And the disrespect that was shown to the Capitol building, to the offices which have been used for uh, hundreds of years, people putting their feet up on the desk, stealing furniture, going through paperwork, laptops, just strolling themselves in to these offices of major politicians like Nancy Pelosi in the Capitol building, just white trash losers getting in there and doing this for fun or as a form of protest. I mean, it's that's insane. You can't have a civilized government where that occurs. And this should not be allowed to happen. And when people attempt to do this, force needs to be applied to prevent it. And if people end up getting hurt or killed in an attempt to do it, tough luck. Then that's what happens. That's what happens when you attempt to storm the Capitol building. If you try to storm important government buildings and are do not heed warnings to stay away and to back off and you force your way in, then they will have to use physical force to stop you. And it may end up being deadly force to stop you. And that's your choice to try to do it. And then you will suffer the consequences. I have never been of the belief that you need to coddle criminals that you need to coddle people who are just choosing to disobey direct orders from law enforcement. It just, they just go do what they want. Law enforcement said, you can't come in this building, you're not allowed in here. Too bad, I'm coming in anyway. Well, F you then. Then use force to stop them. This isn't an accident. They're not accidentally strolling in because they're confused. They are forcing their way in somewhere that they're not supposed to be, where there's a lot of important information that's not even supposed to be obtained by the public. That's another concern, that maybe something was stolen out of there that was classified. This needs to be protected. And if people need to be harmed or even killed in an attempt to force their way in, if they if they won't back off, then that's what's going to happen. That's what security is for. That's what the police are for. It's unfortunate that sometimes that has to happen, that criminals have to be shot and killed by the police or hurt by the police in order to stop committing acts of crime acts of violent crime, but you know what? That's what happens if you attempt to do that sort of thing. And you can't feel sympathy for those that choose to do it and then end up getting hurt or killed. And people just shouldn't. And if you allow people to do it, then this encourages others to copy and also try it because they perceive a lack of consequence. They don't have fear. They say, hey, I can do this and get away with it. They're not going to do anything about it. The Capitol Police, I don't exactly know what went on there. I'm hearing different stories of what happened and why this failed. It's unbelievable not only that people were able to just walk in there and not really met with very much force. I know the police tried to stop them somewhat, but not with as much force as there should have been. Or why they did not have a better police presence there when they knew that these big rallies were going to occur on January 6th. 
but also why afterwards they let these people just walk out and leave. The guy with the Viking horns, with the that very memorable costume he had on, with the Viking horns and that uh, beaver pelt on his head, that, that, that very strange look, the guy with no shirt on with that weird hat. I mean, he was the most recognizable, fig- recognizable figure in the whole thing. If there was any leader of this, it didn't really have a leader. If there's any leader, it would really be him. And he just strolled right out, got in his car, and drove right out of town. No one stopped him. How the hell does that happen? How does that happen? How do they not wait for people to come out and grab him? Or if they want to get him away from the building, let him walk away from the building a little bit, then grab him. Like, this is insane that they let them just walk out and leave. They didn't even try to chase him in their cars. They even try to identify him. So now they've got to go through the trouble of identifying them and then go find them and arrest them. It's it's And some are going to probably get away with it. Big time fail in policing. And I heard some of this was the fault of the city of D.C., which did not want to take the appropriate steps in preparation for this and to back up the Capitol Police more. But the Capitol Police screwed up big time, too. But putting that aside... With this happening, who's to blame? So you may think Trump, and I would agree with you. He should be blamed somewhat for this, because he riled everyone up for two months about this, and he riled people up on the day of. And then they went and did bad things. When you are the president of the United States, you have to watch what you say. You have to understand there's a lot of crazies that follow you, especially a polarizing figure like Trump, who have some people who are devout followers and others who are haters of his, uh, that the followers, if you try to rile them up too much and tell them that you got screwed in some way, they will sometimes want to commit acts of crime on your behalf. And you have to make them understand that, one, you don't condone that, and not just in a light way, but really, really make it clear you don't condone that. And number two, understand that you should not rile up these type of people in the first place, and you should not put out inflammatory rhetoric that you're being screwed and being cheated by the government that you're the president of. And if you do, then something like this is what happens. So there's definitely fault of Trump. He was doing this for two months. He screwed the Republicans in the Senate race in Georgia by putting too much focus on his own concerns that he got cheated in the election, which he really didn't, and not enough focus on the two Senate candidates who went from favorites to win to both losing and not even losing by that close of a margin. So now this has created a... uh, where the Democrats have all three houses. They have the Senate, they have the House, and they have the presidency. So that's, that's a big problem. That's something that didn't have to happen. Republicans win one of the two. It's very different. Trump bears responsibility for all this. He bears responsibility for the Republicans losing the Senate, and he bears responsibility, at least some responsibility, for what happened on January 6th. If he had not been claiming that he was cheated for two months, this would not have happened, and he should not have been claiming he was cheated. It's not one of these things, well, well, you didn't have to say this, and he's like, well, yeah, I'm saying it because it's true. Well, it's not true. He was putting out a conspiracy theory that he got cheated in the election. He did not get cheated in the election. It's very clear he didn't get cheated in the election, and saying this for two months will rile people up, and you never know what they're going to do, and we got an ad- we got an example of this on January 6th, but it's not even like on their own on January 6th they showed up to do this. He had a rally 
walking distance from there on the 6th about this and riled them up further right at that moment. So he does deserve a lot of blame here, and it's very bad. And I understand people's anger at him. I am angry at him for this, and everybody should be. And it is very justified. So, what about the narrative that if these were black people doing the same thing, they would have been shot dead? What about that? What about the claims that we're seeing in the media and on uh, social media from those on the left that the only reason these people were able to walk into the Capitol building, mostly unharmed, was that they were white and no one feared them. That black people would have been shot down, that this happened at the BLM protests, that the slightest bit they stepped out of line, they were beaten and shot down in the streets, that this is indicative of white privilege and systemic racism. Is that true? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You may remember on the first commentary I did on the beginning of the George Floyd riots in early June, you may remember my big complaint, among other things, was that the police stood down and let these riots happen. They let people go into Target and loot it. They let people burn buildings in Minneapolis. They let people destroy small businesses and large businesses in Minneapolis. They basically let a violent mob of people destroy the city and loot the city and took no action. They stood down. And then this inspired copycat protests with copycat violence all over the country for the entire summer. Why? Because people who wanted to do things like this saw that you could do it with no consequence. Now, without having to rehash all that again, what do we take away from that? Well, we take away from that that there wasn't a a swift response to BLM when they did their protest. It was the opposite. There was violence on the very first day of the very first protest in Minneapolis. And they did nothing. The police stood down and did nothing on day one and for many days after that. And that's why it's got so bad everywhere. If this was clamped down upon, like the left is now claiming happened in this revisionist history, then this would not have spread like wildfire across the country. We would not have had the summer of these huge protests spreading COVID everywhere and the terrible rioting and looting and vandalism and taking over of complete city blocks and destruction of courthouses and taking over and destruction of police stations and death and injury and attacking of the police and all these other things we saw during the summer. This would not have happened had they met what was going on in Minneapolis with a swift and harsh response. Instead, they stood down in city after city after city, and people felt okay. Not only can you go protest in these mass protests and not really fear anything, but you can commit violent crime, and you're fine. No one will lift a finger. That's why it spread so much. So I don't see how we have this revisionist history that, oh, they clamped down so hard on BLM. No, they didn't. I wish they did. Then I wouldn't have complained. I complained the whole summer that they weren't clamping down on BLM. They weren't clamping down on Antifa. And Antifa took over entire city blocks and just said, this this is our territory now. This is our land now. Get out. And, And they stayed out. It was crazy. 
I couldn't believe it was like a third world country watching uh, like little bands of warlords taking over. So don't tell me that uh, th- this would have been clamped down upon if it weren't right wing white people doing it. There wasn't clamping down. That was the whole problem in the summer. I don't know what they're talking about. And when I bring this up, I, I get a response like, oh, well, look at this. Look at this where they attacked BLM. I go, they attacked BLM in, in these videos because there, there was already rioting and looting and vandalism and arson going on. And then they try to stop it and get attacked, so they'd attack back. That's what was happening. Now, there were a few instances of, uh, of actual police brutality where there were actual peaceful protests where the cops got overzealous and um, and started trouble. But that was an exception, not the rule. In these protests over the summer, it was almost always, whenever violence broke out, it was almost always because left-wing protesters, not white supremacists who came in, that's not what happened, that's revisionist history, that's false, that's... Uh, there was an excuse. It was left-wing protesters, some BLM, some Antifa, some being uh, apolitical that were just there to cause trouble, that came in th- th- to do this, to cause mayhem, to cause trouble, to destroy things, to attack, to take things over, to set fires, to hurt people, to kill people. This happened. Almost all of it was from the left. If you don't believe that from the summer, you are not living in reality. You're just as delusional as the people who believe that Trump was cheated in the election. If you believe that those summer riots were the police's fault or white supremacist's fault. No, it wasn't. It was the left doing it. Not all the left. There were a lot of leftist peaceful protesters, and I have no problem with them. But there were a lot of non-peaceful protesters who were almost all left-wing in nature. And they were committing these acts of violence either for fun or out of resentment or because they felt they needed to in order to cause the political change they wanted to. This was left-wing violence all summer. There was little done about it. And that's why it went on for so long and caused so much destruction and pain and violence and uh, so many businesses destroyed. Just... It was a disaster. It was shameful. So, let's connect it now to what happened on January 6th. It is not true that they would have shot down BLM doing this. BLM would have gotten away with the same way. But I will tell you this. We have a problem. And I think everybody's starting to wake up to it. Because up until January 6th, a lot of the left... They would sometimes pay lip service to it, but in reality, they felt that we didn't really have a problem with uh, with riots. That this was something that was just uh, being exaggerated by the right. And and when there were riots, it was it was probably because the police were causing it, or maybe because white supremacists were causing it. So the left just kind of didn't really believe in clamping down on violent riots. They kind of a lot of the people on the left felt you just got to let it happen. Or it's justified, or the, you know, they the people are so fed up, yet you have to let it happen. Or even if it's not justified, it's just not good to let the police clamp down because people will get hurt and, and people will die, and we just have to let it happen. It's just property, it's just people's businesses, it's just government buildings, blah blah blah. Well, all of a sudden now, look at the rhetoric we are seeing from the left now. All of a sudden, you're hearing these people should have been shot dead. The Capitol Police should have had a harsher response. There should have been a forceful response to this. It is shameful. These are people on the left. 
who are saying that there should have been a harsher response, people should have been killed, people should have been hurt, who are attempting to do this. We're hearing this from the left. All of a sudden, they are pro-law enforcement clamping down upon rioters. Well, you know what I say? Welcome to the club. I agree. I agree with you. There should have been a harsher response. These people who were attempting to force their way into the Capitol building, the people who took metal barriers, who were slamming them onto the Capitol building doors to force it open, to bang the door open, and then force their way in to restricted spaces in the U.S. government. You know what? Those people should have been dealt with in a forceful and aggressive manner. And they should have been put down if they would not back off. And put down in any way necessary. Either incapacitate them or kill them. I believe you're correct. That should have been done and it was not done. These people got away with it, at least so far. This is a tragedy that that occurred. But you know what? Same with the rioters over the summer. Same with the BLM rioters. Same with Antifa. Same with these stupid areas that were taken over in Portland and Seattle where these thugs would take it over and claim that these were their own territory now and people have to stay away or suffer the consequences. This should have been dealt with forcefully as well. And people attempting to set fires should have been dealt with forcefully, if necessary, shot dead. People who are attacking police physically should have been dealt with forcefully, if necessary, shot dead. People who were trying to destroy businesses or break into businesses to loot, they should be, you should attempt to arrest them. And if they try to fight the police, then you have to take them down forcefully in whatever way necessary. And that should happen to all violent protesters, all rioters, all looters. You need to take action regardless of their ideology. I don't care if it's right-wing white trash that's trying to break into the Capitol building because they think Trump got cheated, or if it's BLM or Antifa protesters in the summer. These are different sides of the same coin. They're all trash. They're all thugs. They're all pieces of crap. They're all human debris. And they all need to be dealt with. And they all need to face consequences of their actions so the rest of us can live in civilized society. So that's what should have been done last year, and that's what should have been done this year. And it was done in neither case. It's not a matter of race. It's a matter of this belief that we need to stand back when violent thugs protest in a violent manner. And that should be not tolerated. We have laws for a reason. If we don't have laws, we don't have a society. We don't have civilized society if we do not have basic laws we enforce. And I'm not talking about stupid little ticky-tack laws that don't really matter that much. I'm talking about basic laws for people's safety and freedom. If we cannot enforce those, and sometimes they have to be enforced violently. Sometimes that, sometimes you need to use violence to enforce laws if people will not obey them and will put others in danger or will jeopardize others' freedom or will be destroying other people's stuff or invading other people's faces. That those who choose to do that and will not heed warnings to back off and stop and allow themselves to be arrested peacefully, they need to be dealt with in whatever method possible and whatever method is necessary to stop them 
And if that means shooting them dead, then it means shooting them dead. And it's their fault. Not law enforcement's fault. Not anyone's fault but their own. It's not the system's fault. And it doesn't matter what color they are. I don't care if they're black. I don't care if they're white. I don't care if they're Hispanic. I don't care if they're Asian. I don't don't care what they are. I don't care if they're men. I don't care if they're women. Whatever they are, if they will not stop and are violating others' rights and creating a danger, then they need to be stopped. And if they won't let themselves be stopped, then force must be used to stop them. And they must all be arrested. And the left is starting to wake up to this. Because they saw the other end of it. They saw where the people on the right were getting away with this shit. And I wasn't watching this going, oh, cool, yeah, the right's getting away with it now. Yeah, sweet, yeah, they're fighting for Trump. No, I was horrified. I said, what, why are these people getting away with it? Why don't you clamp down on this? Why don't you stop this? I, how are these people waltzing into the Capitol building and doing this, putting their, their feet up on Pelosi's desk and going through her stuff and grabbing laptops and grabbing furniture? What the hell? Stop it. Use force and stop it. That's what I thought watching it. I wasn't proud of this. But I, I had the same feeling I had seven months ago when I saw people looting targets, uh, burning buildings, taking over police stations, taking over city blocks, attacking police, attacking innocent civilians. I, I saw one guy getting beaten senseless because he had on a red cap because they stupidly thought it was a Make America Great Again cap. It was just a regular red cap, I don't know, sports cap or whatever, and they beat this poor guy senseless. senseless. Antifa did that in one video I saw. Those people need to be put down. They can't do that shit. You don't say, well, they have justified rage. No, they don't. You cannot do that in a civilized society. A lot of people have rage for a lot of things. A lot of people get screwed by a lot of things. A lot of people are treated unfairly by the system. But you cannot do that. Otherwise, everybody who feels they have a gripe with something can commit acts of violence and destroy other people's property and and hurt other people. And we have no civilized society. Everything breaks down if that becomes acceptable. So you cannot say that this is okay. But now the left is waking up to it going, oh, well, yeah, maybe we shouldn't allow violent rioting. But then, then we have the, well, but this is different. This is the first time the Capitol building has been invaded since 1812 or whatever the hell year that was. Uh, they, so they claim, because it's such a unusual situation, since it was such a, a precedent being set in modern times for the Capitol to be invaded like this, that, well, only there we should apply the force. But, but everything else, no, 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 it's not the same thing. Well, you can't say that. We had government buildings taken over. We had city blocks taken over. We had uh, a situation where they actually tried to cement the doors shut in a police station and set it on fire in the summer. We had horrendous things happening, and yet you really had very few people shot down in the streets when they should have been. You had very few people who were arrested and properly charged. In fact, we had a lot of people who were released who had committed acts of violence by very left-wing DAs who felt bad for them, who just felt they were protesting and let things get out of hand. Remember all the statues that got torn down? And not even just of like really racist people, like the, anyone who was slightly perceived to be racist back in 1700-something, they got their statue torn down. Even uh, George Washington statues were, t- were torn down. Abraham Lincoln statues were torn down. And it was allowed to happen. That's not civilized society. And you may say, oh, look at this. You know, Why is he talking about the summer now when we just had this terrible incident on, July, on uh, January 6th? I'm talking about both. 
Is it whataboutism? No, it's not. They're very, very similar. And I'm saying that everybody on the left who feels that the people on January 6th got away with something and should have been dealt with more harshly, I am saying I agree. I'm saying everything you wanted to see happen to them, I agree with you. And I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. I agree with you. This is what I've been saying since the beginning. And now you see it's not as fun when the other side is doing it. Then it's harder to support. Then it's harder to, to kind of give lip service that it's bad, but, but it, you know, in reality thinking it's okay. Or in reality making excuses of why it can be justified. Or making excuses that it was other people. And you know you're hearing, oh, Antifa, they actually did this to set up right-wingers. All the people you saw in there, they're really Antifa, and they were framing Trump supporters. They were pretending to be Trump supporters. That's BS. That's not true. It's just not true. That's not what happened. It was Trump supporters in there. It was crazy, white trash Trump supporters doing this. Not Antifa. Just like Antifa and BLM were really the ones committing most of the acts of violence over the summer, not right-wingers, not white supremacists. So if, if you're going with this, oh, Antifa did this, then, then you're just as dumb as the people over the summer who are saying it was the right's fault that the violence was happening. So what's the solution? Well, first of all, Trump does deserve blame from this. He, he was, uh, his rhetoric incited people. Now, he didn't tell people, go do this. That would have been worse, but it was pretty bad, the stuff he was saying, and, and the fact that he was saying this for two months. And the fact that he actually held a rally walking distance from the Capitol building complaining that they're about to really screw him and it's the final straw. So what do you expect is going to happen? So that's He does deserve blame for this for sure. But also, as far as what we're going to do in the future, is Trump's out of there. Trump's out of there in uh, 10 days. But what we need to do in the future is change the way that riots are handled. Change the way that violent protest is handled and change what is considered violent protest. And see, that's another problem. Some people have come to believe that violent protest is anything where nobody actually gets hurt. So burning down a small business, even though that business didn't do anything wrong, they just happened to be there and you're mad, that's not violent protest. Because uh, as long as nobody in the business, if the business is closed, yeah, you burn it down, but uh, it's not violent, right? It's, uh, it's fiery but peaceful. And... Uh, Taking over entire city blocks, as long as you don't actually hurt anybody while you're taking it over. You can threaten to hurt people, but as long as you don't actually harm anybody, it's not violent protest. Also false. What about uh, blocking traffic? Just You have no permit to do it. You have no permission to do it. You just decide to block major roads or freeways because you think your cause is important and you can just delay everybody where they're going. You can trap people in their cars. Because uh, you know they're not going to abandon their cars, you're just, just going to stop them there for as long as you want. Because your 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 cause is more important than their life. You, you get to tell them what they're going to listen to. You get to tell them what to do with their time because you're you're more important than them. Is that violent protest? If nobody gets beaten up or hurt, yes, it's violent protest. Why? Because you are taking away someone's freedom. You are taking away their freedom of movement. You are blocking them from trying to go where they want to go. That's that's violent. And anything that actually involves hurting other human beings, obviously, is violence. Burning anything is violence. That's that's not covered under peaceful protest. Peaceful protest means you gather together and you hold signs, you chant, whatever. And, And you protest something. You don't disrupt anything. You don't hinder anyone's movement. You don't burn anything. 
You don't hurt anybody. You don't attack police. You follow all laws. That's peaceful protest. Anything beyond that is not peaceful protest. Even blocking roads is not peaceful protest. So anyone who breaks laws when they are protesting needs to be arrested, and if they try to resist arrest, then they need to be dealt with, even if it means killing them. That is the way you have civilized society. And you know what? I'll tell you something. I've said this before. We are not a country of terrorists. And when I say it, I mean, you have these Muslim extremists who believe that if they die for their cause, that they go to heaven and get 77 virgins or whatever it is. So there are certain religious extremists who actually will die for the cause and very happily do so. You don't have much of that in the U.S. You, you'll have a little of it, but you're not going to have much of it. You're going to have very little of, pe- very few people that are going to want to go as far as seriously risking their life to protest these things. When people go to these protests, they don't say, well, I guess I'm going to die today, but no problem. This is so important. I'm going to die for it. Most of these protesters don't think that way. Most of these protesters go there believing that they are going to get away with what they're going to do. They think they'll just be part of a big mob. And whatever happens, it's going to be out of control and they can just leave when it's over and nothing will happen to them. That's, that's what they believe when they're doing it and even as they go there. If people believe coming in that there's not going to be this crap tolerated and that they are going to be aggressively arrested and even killed if they attempt to resist arrest, do you think they're going to do it? you think they're going to protest? No, they're not. Because truth be told... These causes that are so, quote, important are not life or death causes to them. They may feel strongly about it, but it's not like that if they don't protest that their lives are going to be pretty much over. These are people who are going there to protest the cause of the day. Maybe even a good cause, but it's it's not something they're going to die for. And that's the way almost all of them think. Same with the looting. No one's going to die to go loot a target. If If the police go into a target being looted and say, everybody get out now, Otherwise, we are going to arrest you all, or we are arresting you all, and anybody who attempts, and everybody get on the ground, and anybody who gets off the ground is going to be shot. You know what? They're all going to stay on the ground. <laughs> they're not going to get up. They're not going to get up and get shot because uh, they they don't want to get arrested for uh, looting Target. People have more sense than that. Even even crazy or, or weird or, or criminal people, they typically do not want to die. They typically understand that if they do such and such. And they get shot. And by the way, you don't have to shoot them dead. You can shoot them with uh, non-lethal force at first. Or you can uh, do something else to, to uh, get them under control. Tear gas or other non-lethal but uh, still harmful or uh, painful methods of being controlled if they resist. I'm not saying just come in there and uh, do this to people. I'm saying if they will not allow you to arrest them. But it's so stupid when police just stand by, and they, they stand by because they are told, they are told to, not just really stand by, it's actually, they're told to stand down. The police do this because they are told by their superiors they cannot take action. They're told by above, do not do it. That's a mistake. You stop all of this. You even stop the, the uh, blocking of roads. What they should do when people block roads, block freeways, whatever, announce everybody needs to disperse immediately. We are giving you 30 seconds to disperse. Then we are going to hit you with tear gas. And if they do not disperse, hit them with tear gas. 
and arrest them. If they try to resist arrest, then do what you need to do. And you know what? There's not going to be a lot of public sympathy for these people. They really won't. The public sympathy comes when there is force used that is not justified. People don't get a lot of public sympathy when they are trying to infringe upon the rights of others or hurt other people. So this needs to be done regardless if the perpetrators are white or black or left or right. It needs to get under control and we need to stop supporting any kind of violence in protest or law-breaking in protest. And if you are on the left and you supported all the stuff or didn't want to really say very much about all the violence that was happening over the summer and now you are acting outraged about what happened on January 6th, you are a hypocrite. And if you are on the right, and if you spent the summer bitching about everything that Antifa and BLM were doing, and rightfully complaining about that whole matter, but then were saying that what happened on January 6th is justified, then you are a hypocrite. You should not be cheering for what happened on January 6th. Especially if you criticize what happened over the summer. That would make you a right-wing hypocrite. So there are, and I've seen both. I've seen right-wing hypocrites out there, and I've seen left-wing hypocrites out there on social media since this happened. I have had the same opinion the whole way, that all violent protest needs to be clamped down upon and need to be stopped. And you know what? If you stop it as it begins, then it does not spread. It's kind of like a virus. If you don't get it under control... It will spread, and it will spread exponentially. Believe me, if they came into that target in Minneapolis and clamped down and arrested everybody and used whatever force necessary to put people down who attempted to resist, and, and if they put out the word that anyone attempting to do anything similar in the city would be facing the same fate, there would not have been those protests, or at least they wouldn't have gone violent. And the violence we saw around the country would not have happened the way it did. It was because of a perceived permissiveness. And believe it or not, these same these people who broke into the Capitol on January 6th may have had that on their mind. We won't know until they are asked about it. But they may have had that on their mind, that they saw this happen over the summer, so they knew they could get away with it too. It's very possible. I'm not blaming the summer protesters for this. I'm not going to go that far. I'm just saying that that may have been on their mind, too. We just need to change that completely. And I have said that not just since last year. I said that going all the way back to 92 when the L.A. riots happened. And I saw the same thing, where had they clamped down on it right at the beginning, that it would not have gotten as far as it did. And you know what? After that, a lesson was learned, and there was a major change in how violent crime and violent protests were handled. And that's why you didn't see any for so long, all the way until 2014, when the Ferguson protests happened. But you had over 20 years where you didn't have these violent protests breaking out in the U.S., and that is because this was not tolerated. By the way, take a look at cities which would not tolerate it, because there were some cities in the U.S. that just were not going to tolerate this type of protest and made it very clear. And you didn't have the violent protests occurring in cities which made it very clear that there was going to be a harsh response to it. You notice that? You notice that the worst violence over the summer occurred in places where it was most likely that the 
city government would tell the cops to stand down? Hmm, why is that? And I guess you could say that what happened at the Capitol happened because some people felt empowered that if Trump, the President of the United States, is telling them that they need to rise up and support him, that they can probably get away with it too. And I guess they were right, at least so far. That's very bad. Very, very bad. I did vote for Trump in November. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I voted for a third party out of kind of protest to not liking either candidate. I warmed up to Trump in 2017. I thought he was uh, making a lot of uh, good policy. I didn't like his behavior, but I liked a lot of his policies, which, to be honest, were kind of standard Republican policies. He didn't... One myth about Trump is that he advocated all kinds of crazy positions during his term. No, really the policies that Trump put forth were very similar to what pretty much any Republican politician holding the presidential office would have put forth. It wouldn't have been identical, but he didn't do anything very radical as far as uh, policymaking from 2017 to 19. Now, in 2020, he didn't really do anything radical, but he, he didn't lead well for COVID. And that, that was a problem. So a, a different Republican would have led better. He would have led better by example. He would have uh, communicated better. He wouldn't have said as many stupid and crazy things. So I, I wasn't impressed with how he handled COVID. But from 2017 to 19, he did, uh, policy-wise, a very good job, in my opinion. Uh, what he didn't do a good job with was the his behavior. His behavior was bad the whole way and very unpresidential and often very stupid. So that I saw and I didn't like and it bothered me. But I said, okay, well, he's putting forth policy I agree with and I like and uh, I I will vote for him to repeat. And even though I didn't love what he did for COVID, uh, a a lot of politicians were wrong about that, including the left. The left spent all of February bitching about xenophobia instead of worrying about COVID. All they wanted you to think about is how, how racist it is to think this is a Chinese virus, which it was. So, I mean, they didn't do it right either. There are a lot of mistakes. That's not to excuse Trump and his mistakes, but uh, look, look what Cuomo and Whitmer did. They actually killed people by their policies about the nursing homes. So, I mean, tons of mistakes all around. So if you think the Democrats in charge of the White House would have changed anything, you have another thing coming. But I voted for Trump again because the policy overall I liked much better than the policy that any Democrat would have put forward. Even one like Hillary, who wasn't a super liberal Democrat. But at the same time, I was I was critical of Trump when I needed to be up and critical of him on this show. And I'm critical of him right now, and I'm especially disappointed in him right now because his worst behavior by far was in the past two months. Now, it's not a shock. You may say, how could you be so stupid not to see this was coming? Well, I didn't see this was coming, but I, I, I'm not surprised it happened. I'm not at all surprised it happened, and I thought it was possible. And it's sad that this came to pass, and in fact, he was worse with this than I expected. I didn't think he would... I mean, I I thought there would be some protest to losing and some kind of sore loser type claims, but uh, this was taken farther than I expected. And you saw what happened. So I was very disappointed to see that. And it has changed my opinion of his overall presidency. I'm not going to erase what I thought of uh, 2017 to 19. I mean, what happened then is what happened then. But when, when I look at the presidency as a whole, the last two months are part of it. And you know, the last year when with COVID is part of it too. And there were some things with that which also 
while I don't think it's killed a lot of people, I think that it, it was a very bad look. And also just basically confusing messaging. And a lot of stupid things were said and done. I'm not one of these staunch Trump supporters who is jumping off the train at the last minute like you've seen a lot of people do. I was never a staunch Trump supporter. As I said, I did not vote for him in 2016. And even when I was at my most positive on Trump, I still saw what he was and would say so. And that also has nothing to do with my criticism of the left. I can criticize the left and say really stupid things that I feel they're doing and saying. And people say, well, what about Trump this? I go, well, that's... that's that's different, though. That's that's a different matter. You have a valid criticism of Trump with X, but I have a very valid criticism of the left with Y. And that doesn't mean I can't bring up Y because you're bringing up X. Or I should forget about Y because you're bringing up X. Even if X is true, that doesn't mean Y isn't true about your side. That's what aboutism. But comparing something that is very similar, riots in 2020 and riots in 2021, just because the venue of the riots was different, just because the ideology of the riots is different. That doesn't mean they're not violent riots. They're all violent riots based upon politics. And all of it is wrong and terrible. Okay, so that brings me to my next segment. My next segment is about Twitter and Parler and the censorship going on there. Now, I will acknowledge right away that Twitter and Facebook, for that matter, those are private companies that are privately managed And they, to a degree, have a right to make their own rules and standards. And you may say, what do you mean to a degree? Why why can't they make all their rules and standards? Well, let me get to that. You have to look at the difference between a very, very large, influential space, which is used to disseminate information and news to many millions of people, and something that's just a regular business, which doesn't have anywhere near that type of influence, or nor is it a portal of information. So let's look at Poker Fraud Alert. Poker Fraud Alert is a forum. It also has a radio show that you're listening to right now. Poker Fraud Alert, I make my own rules. I, I never censor ideology at all there. I have tons of very, very left-wing people posting on Poker Fraud Alert. Never once have I deleted a post because... It is to the left, and I disagree with it. Never. Never have I found flimsy reasons to delete a left-wing post claiming it's for another reason. I just I leave it there. So I don't do that. But I could do that. I could. I don't want to. I wouldn't want to run a site like that, but I could. I could just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to delete a lot of left-wing politics I don't like here. And I could, and it would be my right to do so. But what would that really change? Does Is Poker Fraud Alert a major destination for people in the country to get their news or information? I kind of wish it was, but no. Is it even a semi-major destination for people in the country to get their news and information? No. What is it? It is a relatively small forum that is for a niche topic, basically poker and gambling, where there's also some people in those communities discussing general topics as well. That, that's what it is, and it also has a radio show that I do associated with it. That, that's what Poker Fraud Alert is. So therefore, I do not have mass influence. I have some influence in these niche areas of, of poker and gambling, 
But even there, I don't have mass influence. But in general life, I, I have almost no influence. So, as a result, I can't make much of an impact with this site, no matter what I were to censor. Even if I were to censor all left-wing news or opinion on Poker Fraud Alert, it would make zero difference in the world. So therefore, regulating what I can and can't censor here wouldn't make any sense. It would just be infringing upon my freedom to run a website the way I want to run. But, if you have a site that is huge, that is used by a lot of people, and I mean a whole lot of people, in the country to get their news and information, where their perception of the world and perception of the country is shaped by information on these sites, and that major figures in the site, uh, major figures in the country and the world, from presidents to senators, congresspeople, governors, major celebrities, that a lot of them choose these platforms to disseminate information to literally hundreds of millions of people. Would you say they are influential? Obviously. Would you say that they are massively influential? Obviously. And is there a big impact if one political side is suppressed by these platforms? Yes. I mean, that, that's, you can't get around that. That's a fact. That when information and news is suppressed, which is unflattering to one side, then, or, or just personalities who advocate for one side are suppressed on a major platform which people count on to get news and information, then there is a massive influence on the information that gets out to the country. This isn't the only place to get such news and information, but it is widely used for it. It has evolved to become a major source. This was actually addressed many decades ago, long before the Internet existed. The fairness doctrine was something that was applied to broadcast media. This is, of course, many decades ago. But the fairness doctrine was a law that any broadcast station, whether it was radio or TV, that put forth editorial opinion needed to give equal time to the other side. So if an editorial was put out by the station that was uh, on the right, then they would actually have to devote equivalent airtime to those on the left who wanted to give an opposing viewpoint. That was actually the law applying to both both, uh, radio and TV stations. Now, from a legal standpoint, they were able to do this, even though these were private corporations that owned these uh, this broadcast media. They were able to do this because they were broadcasting over public airwaves. So that's how they accomplished it legally. That's how the Fairness Doctrine was able to become law. That was kind of the le- legal mechanism to make it happen. But often what is the legal ne- mechanism to make something happen is confused with the spirit of the law. And there are two different things. One is how you make it into law that can be enacted. The other is why they are enacting the law. Well, why they enacted the law is very clear. That they did not want one political side to have 
undue influence over the people who are mainly getting their information from this broadcast media. And by the way, there was an attempt to do it on newspapers as well, but that actually failed because uh, it lacked the legal standing because there was no matter of public airwaves with newspapers. But that was attempted there too with the same spirit of the law that it was an attempt to give each political side a chance to state their case and that any biased news organization could not shut out one side or the other. That was called the Fairness Doctrine. It got undone in the 80s when it was considered antiquated, which I actually agree with, because the reason it became antiquated was that uh, both sides had enough outlets to get their opinion out, and there were enough broadcast options by that point that no side was really shut out anymore. So the right had talk radio, the left had more of the traditional media, so they, they kind of canceled each other out, and uh, it was really not necessary anymore. There were far more avenues for information, a lot less than today, obviously, but uh, far more avenues of, of broadcast media in the 80s than there were when the Fairness Doctrine was uh, first enacted. So that was the reason it was undone. But as you see, something like this already existed to make sure that there is fairness in the information that is uh, disseminated through broadcast media and that there isn't a bias on one side or the other with, with uh, how much gets through of each type. So you have to understand that concept was already there. It's not a new concept. It's not like, uh, wait, how, how can we force private companies to, uh, to give equal time to each side? Well, we have before. It was done through kind of like a loophole because they're technically broadcasting over public airwaves. But the spirit of that was in order to prevent one side from taking over the influence through broadcast media. And it actually makes sense because whoever controls the message has the power. Because the message can be presented in many ways. So let's get to the present. Twitter is controlled by... Very, uh, a very left-wing uh, group of people, especially one particular person. There's this, uh, forget her name, but she's an attorney who's in charge of, quote, Twitter safety. She's kind of the one calling the shots these days. I, I know Jack is technically her boss, but, but Jack's kind of a space cadet who's kind of, he's almost like a figurehead at this point. He doesn't, he kind of, as far as the day-to-day operations and these type of decisions, he leaves most of it to her, and she is very much on the left. This woman. It's like an Indian attorney. Uh, she She's very left. She, she went on Joe Rogan. If you want to watch that, you can see how far left she, she is. And she's the one really making the Twitter policy. But what's happening here with Twitter, and, and to some degree Facebook as well, is there's a combination of things happening. Number one, they're naturally on the left anyway, as is pretty much all of Silicon Valley. But number two, there's a practical element to this too, in that They saw that the pendulum was swinging and that Democrats were likely going to be in power, that Joe Biden was likely to be the president, even before he won. They they were seeing this. So there has been talk from some Democrats, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, that big social media needs to be regulated. Big social media needs to be broken up. Big social media needs to be controlled, that they are out of control, that they are running wild. You know what? Uh, I don't agree with Elizabeth Warren on much, but she's right. They are out of control. They are running wild. They are doing a lot of bad things they should not be doing. And I'm talking even uh, data privacy-wise. I'm not even just talking about uh, censorship. So they're worried that action is going to be taken against them pretty soon. 
And with a Democratic administration coming in and them suspecting for a while this is going to be happening, there is a practical element to acting like they're on the same side and then hoping they don't get screwed with. So pretty much, hey, we look, we're on your side here. Look, we're, we're censoring Trump. Look, we're, we're censoring this and that from the right. Uh, we're one of you. Leave us alone. May not work, by the way, but that's that's. So there's a practical element, but it's not just that. It's not just practical. So it's like half practical, half ideological. Twitter is more ideological than Facebook. Facebook is more practical. What's going to make us the most money? What, what matters the most to Facebook is the almighty dollar. And that's why you see complaints from the right and left about their behavior. The truth is, while they are on the left on Facebook, the most important thing to them is, how can we make the most U.S. dollars? Twitter, they care about money too, but... They are more ideology-driven. Regardless of what is driving them to behave the way they are, we have an issue where there is censorship, and the censorship is being justified in various BS ways. Oh, we're trying to prevent uh, misinformation campaigns. We're trying to prevent foreign misinformation campaigns. Or we're trying to prevent uh, dangerous material from being put up that's going to incite violence or incite hatred or incite hate crimes. Or uh, we're trying to prevent hacked materials from being disseminated. Always some kind of noble-sounding excuse, but in reality, it's really none of these things. It's censorship. It's actually censorship where they come up with the excuse after the fact. They censor first and then think, what way can we spin this later? A lot of people support this censorship, at least to some degree. They cite various problems. They say there's a lot of misinformation on Twitter. True. They cite that a lot of people are being fooled by this misinformation and then spread it around believing it to be the truth. True. They cite that there is sometimes violence committed as a result of this misinformation, kind of like what just happened on January 6th true. They cite that it's confusing for people with so much information out there on social media, when misinformation is put out and shared by so many people, it starts to look true and it can be confusing and people don't know what the truth is in in their country, in their own country because of all this misinformation. Well, somewhat true. So, wouldn't it just be easy to censor those who are putting out misinformation? Wouldn't it be easy to ban people who are putting out misinformation? Wouldn't it be easy to just remove people, even very prominent people, even the president of the U.S., if they are putting out information that you think is untrue or dangerous? Just remove them. And the problem's solved. And how can you do this? Well, You can even use fact-checkers. Fact-checkers say it's true, you leave it up. If fact-checkers say it's false, you remove it, or you put a warning label. And if the fact-checkers are saying this is happening over and over, then remove that person, even if they're very, very prominent, even if they're a major politician, even if they're the president. If If you just hear that and you don't think about it, it sounds like a swell idea. But there's big problems. It's big problems, because what is misinformation? I've talked about it before on this show, but but think about it. What What is misinformation? You can say, well, it's stuff that's not true. Okay. How do you define what's true? Well, something that's very easy. 
Some things it's not easy at all. Some things are a matter of opinion, or some things are reported but not totally verified, but are believable that they occurred, such as the Hunter Biden laptop story, which was in October, which had a chance to affect the election, and which Twitter censored, and they actually banned the New York Post, a publication much, much, much older than they are, for putting out that story and banned anyone who posted that story. That's what Twitter did in October. turned out that story was all true or mostly true. Oops. But they said it violated their hacked materials policy. No, it didn't, because they let Trump's tax returns be put out there. That was stolen material. Somehow that was okay. So it's, it's tons of double standards. What one person says is misinformation, another person will say is the truth, and neither may really know what the actual truth is. Or... Maybe the person who is saying it's misinformation is just wrong, and the information is right, like with the Hunter Biden story. So, it's not so simple to say, this is false information, this is true information, because some things are not black and white like that, and sometimes you don't have all the information to make that determination. Also, who makes this determination? You can say fact-checkers. Well, who are these fact-checkers? What political side are they on? Are they biased? Answer, yes. Do the fact-checkers ever give any kind of transparency into their process? No. Do they ever show you who is making these decisions? No. Do they ever give you any idea of the ideological makeup of their organization? No. You just have to trust that they know the facts, and they're going to be fair. You just have to trust them. It might be all Democrats working there. But you just have to trust they'll be fair to Republicans. I'm sure they will, right? Can you see the problem? The problem is, it is very, very difficult to censor information and news based upon what is, quote, true and, quote, false, without bringing on bigger problems than you are solving. In an attempt to censor anything that isn't, quote, the truth, you end up censoring a lot of truth that you just think isn't the truth, or that someone else told you isn't the truth. And it's a much bigger tragedy when the truth is censored than when something untrue is put out there. It is much better for one true statement and one lie to be put on social media than the true statement to be banned to where nobody can read it. That is a much greater tragedy than a lie being told. By the way, something about lies being told on social media People can respond and debunk them. People can say, no, this is false. People can write their own articles and promote those own, their own articles explaining why these misinformation articles are false. Now, some people won't see these uh, articles challenging them. Some people won't believe them. But you're not going to ever have it where the public is going to always believe the correct thing. There will be people who believe misinformation. It's always been that way. And especially on social media, where there are so many different ways to get information, there is no way to stop people from getting misinformation. And the way to solve the problem is not by censoring things. Openness solves the problem more. Not just choosing what people can and can't read. And as you saw with the Hunter Biden thing, you get a lot of false positives. The tragedy of censorship does occur. You can't even say, oh, I trust them to do a good job with this. No, you don't, because look what they do with the Hunter Biden laptop story. 
It could have impacted the election, and they censored it when it looks like it was a true story. Or at least it's mostly true. Even if you don't want to believe the laptop was gotten at this uh, repair shop, it looks like the contents on the laptop were as stated, and that many other elements of the story were as stated. The meat of the story was as stated. That should not have been censored, but it was. How did that happen? Might there have been some ideology involved? And how can you feel comfortable with that? How can you feel comfortable with major sites that disseminate news and information to people who, uh, to a large portion of the country, how can you feel comfortable with censorship occurring, especially if it's really only occurring on one side? It's not like they're being overzealous and blocking out a lot of what they consider to be misinformation from the left and right. It's only from the right. You ask, why is it only from the right? Why are there only warning labels on people from the right? Why is it only censorship of people from the right? Why are you only banning people from the right who are major figures? Why? Well, it's because the right's the one doing it. No, it's not. It's everybody doing it. There's plenty of misinformation from the left. There's plenty of misleading crap from the left. Plenty. But you don't ever see warning labels. You don't ever see fact-checking. You don't ever see banning of articles. You don't ever see banning of major figures from the left. So either the left is perfect and never screws up and never puts out any misinformation, or you are not being dealt with in honest fashion, and some information that you could have read is being suppressed. Is that good? No. Now, Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. First, they deleted two of his tweets during the January 6th riots, and then they just outright banned him from Twitter. They suspended him for 12 hours, and they outright banned him. He returned briefly, then got totally banned. Is this good? They're banning the president of the U.S. from putting out his message? Why? He's the president. You may not like him. You may not agree with him. You may feel like he incited these riots in a way. But he's still the president. You, what, what, you're saying the president can't speak anymore? That you, Twitter has unilaterally decided that we can't hear from Trump anymore? Our president? What the hell is this? And what is it accomplishing? Do you think that Trump cannot find another outlet where he can speak, where he'll be heard? Do you think the people who are committing these acts of violence won't be able to find him speaking? And how do you think this looks to those who believe that there is a conspiracy to screw Trump when he is actually banned from Twitter to where they cannot read what he's writing? If there is an attempt to suppress what he is saying, all it does is validate in the conspiracy theorists' minds that, yes, everyone really is out to get him and screw him. If you want to make them feel like he's persecuted, if you want to make it seem like he's the victim, censor him. While he's in office, censor him. That will really validate in everyone's minds that he's the victim. How do you explain to conspiracy theorists who think he was cheated that it makes sense to ban him from Twitter? The president of the U.S., we can't read what he says on Twitter, but somehow he wasn't cheated. Good luck explaining that to these people. So this will cause... The opposite effect. More people will want to commit acts of violence and rioting in his name if they believe that now he's being suppressed where he can't even speak anymore. At least through social media. So Facebook banned him too. So it also gets the opposite effect. But even ignoring that, it is not up to these platforms to be deciding whether we should be able to hear from our president. 
He is still the president of the U.S. It is not their place to do this. It is not their place to stop us from hearing from other major public figures. If we don't want to hear from those major public figures, then we just won't listen to them. But they should not be deciding which major public figures we can and can't listen to. Now, I know what you're going to say. Oh, they're private companies. They can decide anything. Well, that's where we get back to the difference between smaller and medium-sized businesses and websites and huge social media. Huge social media has become the equivalent of a public square. I don't care if it's not actually in the public. That's a That's a legal technicality but let's look at them let's look at twitter anyone can sign up there is no vetting process all you have to do is sign up with a valid email address you can get anywhere for free there is no cost to use it there is no identification check anyone can sign up anyone has instant full access to its features and it is used to disseminate information from very large organizations. Government organizations, including the president, at least up until he got banned. Uh, Large corporations. Popular celebrities. If you want to get information from them, you go check their Twitter. How often have you gone to Twitter to look up what a politician has said about something? Or what a celebrity has said about something? How often have you gotten information about a topic by looking up that topic or that person or that corporation on Twitter to see their statement? I bet you've done it a lot. I have. So this isn't just a matter of a private company. This is a place where people go to get important information from very large organizations and very, very relevant and uh, widely followed people and leaders. So that becomes very different from just the run-of-the-mill private business that wants to have their own private ideology and rules. So that's why there should be different rules for large social media. It should be treated as a very large public square. And while they should have the right to make certain rules, blanket rules that uh, that they want to enforce, for example, if they want to make rules, you can't make threats of violence. Okay? Good. You can't uh, put anything illegal up here. Okay, good. You can't uh, use overt uh, racial uh, or, or homophobic uh, slurs. Okay, but that already starts to get into a uh, slippery slope of what is that? What's defined as that? But if you want to define the obvious ones, like the N word and everything like that, and, and ban them from the platform and 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 remove any messages like that, okay, I can be, go along with that. But then when you start getting to we're not going to allow certain people with dangerous ideology or people pushing misinformation, it starts to become a very slippery slope which can be abused and was abused. Perfect example, the Hunter Biden laptop story in October. That's the problem, is that when power is either granted or just uh, when it just kind of shows up when or organically develops massive power develops even if you think the power is mostly being used for good if it can also be abused to oppress people 
or to trick people or to cause mass public harm or to cause mass censorship, then you have to get that power in check. And it might be time for that, for large social media. I'm not talking about sites like mine. I'm not even talking about sites many times larger than mine. I'm talking about mass social media where people go to get information. That there should not be ideological censorship. Otherwise, they can manipulate who can uh, get their message out and what messages get out and what things you find out about. So anything that makes the left look bad, they can censor. That's not good, is it? Don't you want to know everything? Do you want them deciding what you can and can't read? You may say, well, okay, well, I can decide what's true or false, but there's people out there who are too simple and get tricked. But it's not up to you to decide. You may be arrogant enough to believe that you can't be fooled, but others are. But others may say, hey, look, what you consider information fooling me is just information you just don't like. And you know what? In some cases, these are people being fooled. But in other cases, you're just receiving information that makes you uncomfortable. There is a lot of censorship out there that is done for political reasons. Target recently banned a book. They unbanned it after pressure, but they recently banned a book that was by a woman who wasn't even on the right. This is a woman I believe is a Democrat. But uh, this is a book that was written, a very respectfully written book that was not uh, bigoted in any way, that was raising some alarm that people are letting teenage girls go through uh, harmful gender transitions without proper vetting of whether the girls are just doing it for attention. That they, they're they not letting enough time pass, they're not studying whether these girls are uh, doing this just because it's kind of a fad, or their friends are doing it, or they just want to stand out, or if they really have gender dysphoria and really feel like a man. Like they, there, there hasn't been enough vetting, and it's the second that the girl says, "Hey, I feel like I'm trans," then the parents uh, go along with anything that they they ask for, or they're considered uh, intolerant and uh, transphobic, etc. So this woman actually laid out a very strong case from with real scientific research about uh, how white middle class and upper middle class girls, teenage girls, have always been kind of uh, that a lot. A certain portion of them have always been kind of angsty. And, uh, and and sometimes engage in various forms of uh, self-harm and attempting to get attention. And like anorexia and bulimia is a good example of that. And it, it, it really disproportionately affects white, middle, and upper class girls in their teenage years. And that what has happened is while that has fallen, the anorexia and bulimia rates have fallen, it's been kind of replaced by these teenage girls who are falsely claiming to be trans. And then harmful things are done to them in order to uh, help along this transition without the proper vetting. It's a very good point. I, th- I think she's right. And she's, she cites a lot of scientific evidence. You know what? Book was banned for being transphobic. Uh, a college professor was encouraging people to burn the book, to actually steal copies of the book from bookstores and actually burn it. The ACLU, which supposedly protects free speech, right? A deputy director there said that they definitely will die on this hill, that this book absolutely should not be published and should be censored. This is the ACLU saying this. 
So that's that's the side. These aren't people at Twitter, but there's a lot of people at Twitter that would agree with this. That they twist this whole thing, a very respectfully, scientifically written book. The person who wrote it isn't a scientist, but they consult a lot of scientists. Very well broken down, very respectful, very factual. This was banned in places. This was a book, the, the, the author was vilified, the book was, uh, there, there was a, ma- a major attempt to prevent this book ever be, from being read. Because it was, quote, transphobic. Do you want those type of people in charge of what you can read and not read? Do you think they really want you to only read true information? Or you think they might censor things that they just don't want you reading because it might go against their worldview? Do you think they might have a political agenda that might sometimes get in the way of what information they're going to let you read? Do you feel comfortable with that? Even if you're on the left, do you feel comfortable with that? I will tell you, I would never feel comfortable with people on the right deciding what I can and can't read. Any site that were to censor left-wing material is a site I would not want to be part of. And any attempt to ever censor left-wing material is something I would always oppose. In fact, I don't do it on my own site, of course. My site is full of left-wing material. Go take a look. I don't post it. I'm not on the left. I don't make left-wing posts, but there's plenty of left-wing posts there, and I don't touch any of them. I will debate with them, but I will not delete them or edit them. Why? Because I believe people should allow, they should always be able to express their own ideology, whether I agree with it or not. And just because some misinformation is spread, I'm not saying there isn't misinformation, there is. And misinformation can be harmful and misleading, and it can be bad for the country. But it's a side effect of having a free society where information is freely exchanged. Much like when you take a medication to prevent a heart attack, you might have other problems from the medication. The medication might bring on feelings you don't like, and it may cause some other heart, it may cause some other health problems. But if it's preventing the biggest heart, uh, biggest health problem, your heart stopping beating, then it's still a good medication. So you cannot let the cure be worse than the disease. And that's what the censorship is. It's a cure that's worse than the disease. The disease is misinformation. The cure of attempting to censor it is much more harmful. There is no perfect solution. I mean, it would be great if there were some magical way we could only remove misinformation and only the truth could be posted. But there's no way. It's too subjective. And any attempt to make it happen will bring us the tragedy of censorship of information that should have gotten out of there. Now let's talk about Parler. Parler is a bit of a different matter. Parler is a knockoff version of Twitter. It's not the same as Twitter, but it's similar to Twitter. And it was created supposedly in response to Twitter's censorship of, uh, of right-wing personalities and, and right-wing information. Parlor, I never joined because it's an echo chamber. And I don't want an echo chamber. I was just saying that. I don't want to see, I don't want to be in a place that's only right wing people. So I didn't feel a need to join Parlor. 
But Parler existed and it was growing. It's spelled P-A-R-L-E-R. Now, there were some bad things on Parler. I didn't join, so I didn't actually see it personally, but I, I believe that there were some bad things happening there, such as racism, such as homophobia, such as transphobia, such as calls for violence. I believe these things were posted. I don't know how often they were posted because they've never been on there, but I believe these posts existed there. So what should be done about Parler if this makes up a certain percentage of the posts? I don't know what percentage, but a certain percentage of the posts are are things like that, which are bad. What should be done? Well, before we answer that, how many posts on Twitter and Facebook are bad? Have you ever seen anything on Twitter or Facebook that you think is harmful? I think you have. Have you seen threats on Twitter or Facebook? I have. Have you received threats on Twitter or Facebook? Maybe not, but I have. I, In fact, when I complained in both cases, nothing was done. How many times have you seen racism on these sites? I have. How many times have you seen homophobia? I have. So what are they talking about? Like, Parler has these things. Yeah, it probably does, but so do Twitter and Facebook. Now, maybe Parler has it occurring more often, but that doesn't matter. It's either occurring or it's not. And I think it's, again, a very slippery slope to say such and such app should not exist because we don't like certain content on that app. There, it, it has too much racism, has too much homophobia, has too many people trying to incite violence, so people should not be allowed on there. No. An app that has this, unless it's specifically created for this, um, an app that has a bad element on it, that's just part of a, a forum existing. And Parler has been banned from various app stores to where it's difficult to get now. You can still log on to Parler from your computer. You can go to Parler.com, P-A-R-L-E-R.com. They were saying they may actually have to shut down. Let me see if I can connect right now. No, it's, it's, I'm on there right now. It's actually still running. They said they may actually shut it down and redo it, whatever that means. But Parler has been banned from Amazon, from the Google Play Store, and also from, uh, I think, from the Apple Store. It's getting very hard to find your way onto Parler if you don't have a computer. But should this be happening? Again, should Apple have the right, or should Google have the right, or should uh, Amazon have the right to say, you know what? We don't like a lot of the posts on Parler. We think there's uh, too much racism, too much homophobia, too many uh, people who are supporting violence. Uh, We're just not going to let people download this. It doesn't meet our standards. I mean, do they have the actual right to do it? Yes, but should they? I don't think so. Because, for the most part, Parler is not a place for racists to get together, or for homophobes to get together, or for people to get together to violently plot to overthrow the government. It's a place for people who are right-wing to get together and have discussions with other right-wingers. And just because some of that has degenerated into bad things 
doesn't mean that this space should not exist. And it should, should not be judged this way. And if it is, why isn't Facebook and Twitter judged this way? So, so a, a little racism and homophobia and threats, that's okay, but, but more than a little bit is bad? Like, I, I don't know, where do you draw the line? How do you draw that line? How do you say what's an acceptable level of racism and homophobia and threats uh, versus an unacceptable level? It's, it's hard to. I mean, I, I, I don't have an answer for you for that because there really isn't one. So really, people should be able to just have what communities they want. Now, if there's illegal activity, then the police should get involved and investigate it if there's illegal activity on Parler. And Parler can also be pressured from the outside. That uh, And the founders of it, the management of it, can be pressured to stopping some of this stuff, some of this really egregious stuff, which I, I haven't seen examples of, but I, I believe some of it exists. I don't know how it may be exaggerated what's really going on there. But removing it is it's not as bad as, as censoring Twitter ideologically or removing major public figures from Twitter, but it's still a form of censorship. It's still a, a form of suppression of one political side and not the other. Uh, and, and that's not good. So neither of these things are good, even if you think it is, from a standpoint of, oh, it's, it's preventing bad stuff from getting out. Again, it's one of these cases where the cure is worse than the uh, the malady. And keep in mind, again, I'm not a fan of Parler. I had no desire to join there. I have not joined there. I will not join there. Because it has no appeal to me. I, I don't need to go onto a knockoff Twitter where everybody's going to agree with my uh, political views for the most part, and those that don't are going to be like further right and, and some very extreme. I don't need that. Like, why do I need to be there? Am I, am I offended when people disagree with me? No, I, I find the discussions more interesting when people disagree with me and we can go back and forth. I do like when people observing the discussions also agree with me. I don't want everybody against me or it makes me just look crazy, but I, I like being able to discuss political and social issues with those who disagree, especially ones who can do it respectfully without flipping out or without making nasty assumptions about me. Just, we don't agree on this. We think it, we think differently on this. And then we can debate back and forth and eventually uh, we'll usually agree to disagree at the end, but at least we had an interesting exchange of ideas. And sometimes I'll think about it and go, hey, you know what? They brought up some good points I didn't think about before. Even if I don't completely change my mind, I'll think, okay, well, at least I can kind of see where they're coming from or, or I can see why uh, my side isn't as like black and white, 100% correct as I thought. And I hope that that's what they'll think after interacting with me. I, I don't need an echo chamber. Now, if some people like that, that's fine. And that shouldn't be taken away. So I, I really don't like the whole idea of censorship and then people say, well, it's not censorship. Censorship is only when the government censors things. No, that's not true. Censorship can really be in any form where others prevent you from expressing yourself. That, that's what censorship is. Now, there's government censorship, and it is true your First Amendment rights have to do with government censorship. So if I deleted your post on Poker Fraud Alert... 
you could not say I'm violating your First Amendment rights. I'm not. It's it's my own site. I can delete your post if I want. So that's different than the government preventing you from saying something. But, um, and, and also the government can't make laws inhibiting your free speech. That's another thing. that uh, and, and there's even First Amendment rights that have to do with you being sued civilly. In fact, anti-slap which I was talking about earlier in the show, has to do with that, protecting your First Amendment right. And I support that. I've always supported it long before I used it myself as a defense. So I believe that the First Amendment, I believe like very strongly in the First Amendment and everything it stands for, but I even go farther than that because there are forms of censorship which are not by the government, but they're still censorship. In fact, a lot of times... Censorship by private organizations like Twitter can be much more impactful than censorship by the government because you'll be heard and seen by a much larger audience. So just because it's not the government doing it doesn't mean there's not suppression going on. Now, let's say you don't agree with me, which I think probably a lot of you don't. A lot of you probably do, a lot of you probably do not. Think about this. Let's say I started a new social media site called Druffnet. And let's say Druffnet got really big. I mean real big. Makes every other social media site now look like nothing. And let at least in the US, okay? So let's say Druffnet blew up in the US and Twitter just withered away and died. It didn't go down, but it just almost no one used it anymore. It's kinda of like MySpace. And same with Facebook. Everybody abandoned Facebook and went to Druffnet. Everybody abandoned Instagram and went to Druffnet. Everybody even abandoned TikTok and went to Druffnet. Pretty much everybody in the country is on a Druffnet. And pretty much every other major social media site, because of Druffnet being so successful, just fell off. Just withered away to where it was a tiny shell of its former self. Again, think, think of MySpace. And now that I have everybody here, I start to remove material I don't like from the left. I just come up with my own excuses. And anything I think makes right-wing politicians look bad or right-wing thought look bad, I just remove the messages. Or I I kick off the most convincing left-wing editorialists or the uh, left-wing bloggers or left-wing figures. I I start removing them because, well, they're pretty convincing and I don't want them to convince people to think differently than I do. So I just start removing them. But I, I come up with excuses every time of why I am. They're dangerous. They're inciting violence. They're hateful. They're, they're spreading misinformation. And I come up with examples which on the surface sound good. And I just keep removing people and ideas which I don't agree with. Now, Druffnet is a private company. Druffnet is not using any government resources for any kind of uh, government airspace. So, would you feel comfortable with that? Would you feel comfortable with me controlling what the entire country reads and what they can, what information can be disseminated to them? Now, yes, they can go to other places on the web, but let's say just about every adult in the U.S. actively uses Druffnet, and they overwhelmingly get their information from there. They can get it elsewhere, but a lot of it, in fact, most of it comes from Druffnet. Would you feel okay with me just kind of blocking out certain left-wing sources with flimsy excuses? 
And would you be very happy if I said, well, this isn't a First Amendment violation. The government isn't stopping your speech. I'm stopping your speech, and I'm not the government. This is my site. I'll do what I want. Ha, 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 ha. And then, and then you complain, and I say, hey, if you don't like it, go elsewhere. Oh, there's nowhere else to go because everywhere else is pretty dead. Ah, ha, 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 ha. And then I, I bet you wouldn't like that, would you? And then let's say you finally do start to go elsewhere, and then I find a way to get corporations to take your new app out of app stores because I can point to some left-wing extremists there who are advocating more riots like we had in the summer of 2020. So because a few idiots get on there and say that, I use that as an excuse to remove that whole app that you try to bring up to compete with Drefnet. Would you like that? I bet you wouldn't. I bet you would say this isn't fair. Why can't why can't I just let everybody debate with their own ideology and let the people decide? Why am I kicking off certain left-wing uh, speakers, certain left-wing bloggers, certain left-wing activists? Why am I censoring certain left-wing ideas? Why, why don't I want those to be able to be discussed? What am I afraid of? Why do I only want them to hear my point of view for the most part? How is this fair? You'd have a good point. So all this crap about, oh, private companies can do what they want or... This isn't a First Amendment issue. That's, that's ignoring the real issue here. The real issue is these are large public spaces. They're large what I call pseudo-public spaces. Pseudo-public doesn't mean that they're partially public. I don't, I'm not saying quasi-public. I'm saying pseudo, meaning kind of like they're, they, they behave like public spaces, even though they are not. So these are large pseudo-public spaces with, with massive followings, a place people go to get information. And you think that that should be censored based upon ideology, just in a vain attempt to prevent misinformation from only one side? Does that sound like a good idea? That sounds like a horrible idea. I want all information to be accessible and let the people decide. Now, I would be okay, though I would not be thrilled about it. I would be okay with some very basic guidelines that like Twitter would agree to adhere to, which at least would prevent some of the censorship. So let me give you some examples of what they could do. Let's say they say, look, we've got to have some control. We can't just like, we can't let Russians uh, set up mass misinformation rings and with all these bogus news sites. And, you know, it'll be chaos here if we just are disallowed from controlling this. So to that, I would say, okay. But there's a very big difference between stopping organized misinformation campaigns by uh, Johnny-come-lately accounts and publications and censoring the President of the United States or other right-wing figures. So, how about this? How about you agree, Twitter, first of all, never ban or censor any major or semi-major holder of public office, meaning not the President, not the Vice President, not anyone in Congress, not anyone in the Senate, I'm talking about the U.S. Senate, not anybody who is a governor, and not anyone who is a big city mayor. And they can define big city by a certain population or metro area population. So all of those people will be immune from being banned as long as they are holding office. Once they're, hold, once they're not in office anymore, then it's a different story. But, but you agree you will never ban or delete anything or put any warning labels on anything they write. That will immediately stop a lot of the bias because they cannot interfere with information being disseminated by public officials who have been elected. 
Why should they be doing this? Why should they be interfering with elected public officials? That's insane. So agree to that, number one. Number two, certain large websites and publications, or even medium-sized ones, that, that are more than a certain size that is going to be defined in some way, are not allowed to be banned or censored in any way. So, And, and there can be certain requirements to where... Uh, there can be protection against uh, fake large websites or, or sites with, with phony traffic. or uh, there, there can be all kinds of requirements of what would qualify as a large established website. I have no problem with that being put together. I'm not going to define it on this show. I haven't even thought about it very deeply. But it, it could be defined. And that these also would receive such protection, that no article published on those sites could be censored by Twitter. And these sites themselves will not be censored by Twitter, meaning the New York Post could not be censored. No matter how much they hate an article in the New York Post, it cannot be censored. And and this includes, of course, left-wing sites too, like the Huffington Post can't be, and MSNBC can't be. So it's it, it goes both ways. So that too, that should be up there too. And just those alone would tremendously change the... Uh, the amount of censorship. Also, there, there could be a, a certain threshold about uh, celebrities, about what constitutes a celebrity, and whether they can be censored. That's not as important as uh, public officials and of publications. But at the very least, public officials and publications of a certain size need to be free of censorship or warning labels. Because warning labels aren't good either. Because they already cast doubt on stories that are put out. Why can't they agree to that? Why do they think they are the arbiters of truth? Oh, because we own it. No, you're too influential at this point. You're too big and influential. And we can't just let you control everything. So, so something needs to be done. I don't know what it is, but something needs to be done. They're getting out of hand. Can you imagine the President of the United States? I don't care how outrageous he is. He is the President of the United States. He is censored on Twitter and Facebook. You can't read what the president has to say because Twitter and Facebook think you shouldn't be able to listen to him. That is insane. That is insane. And again, if you want to say, well, this is just Trump, you know, he's a very unusual president, we're not going to have another one like him. Hang on. Why couldn't you read the New York Post story about Hunter Biden? Why? Why do you think that was? Be honest with yourself. Why, why couldn't we read that? Ask yourself if you feel you feel comfortable. And ask yourself why I am begging for no censorship, why I am begging for left-wing material to be fully available, and why a lot on the left are not asking for the same thing. Hmm. What does it mean when certain people don't want a free flow of information and certain people do? What does that usually mean? It usually means that the ones who want to suppress information don't want you to know certain things that would harm them. Hmm. Why is that happening? Okay, we're going to move on and talk about the coronavirus. We're not going to have uh, very long topics about this. In fact, I'm kind of worn out from this whole uh, long segment. If you want to text me, you still can. 775-372-8355. I got some texts here... Uh, I've been using the VLC app to live stream the show, and it's pretty much worked all the time. Yeah, you can do that. It's just a little more effort. From the 707, from the description, sounds like the Mount Charleston rotary phone. 
I was referring to the uh, TuneIn app. No, the TuneIn app is easier than the Matt Charleston rotary phone. Okay, we're going to move on and talk about the coronavirus news. So here's some bad news about the vaccine and the way it's going to be distributed. Joe Biden has already made a decision, a baffling decision, which uh, does not follow the science like he has been promising. And he's not in power yet, of course, but he will be very soon. He is claiming that they are going to be releasing all of the vaccine at once, which possibly will jeopardize people's ability to get the second dose on time. So you may have heard that Trump has been holding back half the vaccines. And you may say, what an idiot. Why is he holding it back? Does he want people to die? No. This is actually the smart thing to do, and the science supports it. Basically, the belief is you hold back half the vaccines because you need a second dose within a reasonable amount of time of when you receive the first dose. And uh, the second dose is what really increases the efficacy of the vaccine. If you only take the first dose and never take the second dose, it is estimated to only work 52% of the time. And when I say 52% of the time, I don't mean that just half the time you go out of work and half a dozen. I mean 52% of the people will be protected and 48% will not. That's not very good. But if you go back for the second dose and then wait about five days after that, then you will be, on average, 95% likely to be protected from the effects of the coronavirus, which is great. 95%. Yeah, 1 in 20 will still get the coronavirus, but there's even some belief that the unlucky 1 in 20 won't even develop a severe version of the disease, which is most important. So even if you get it, maybe it won't be all that bad. That would be great if that's if it's really stopping just about 100% of severe disease, that is, if you take the two doses and wait the five days after that, then that is a tremendous vaccine. One of the best vaccines of all time. So that's very good news, that part. But what if you don't take the second vaccine? What if you don't take the second dose? Then you're stuck at 52%, and that's not very good. Then about half the people are still going to get COVID, and very possibly half the people will also be susceptible to the more severe versions of COVID, like they were without the vaccine. So it's very important that whoever does take the vaccine does take both doses. And Trump was holding back half the doses so we don't get ahead of ourselves. So we don't accidentally give too many first doses, and then we don't have enough second doses to go around. Doesn't that make easy mathematical scientific sense? Of course it does. And it wasn't just Trump deciding this on his own on a whim. He was advised this by scientists who told them this this is the best practice to do it and the way to guarantee everybody gets a second dose. And Trump said, yes, that's right. Sounds good to me. Do it. Correct decision. Well, Biden has gone against it. I'm not sure why, but Biden has gone against it. And uh, this is asking for disaster. Now, let's talk about why he possibly went against this. Because Biden's not an evil guy. I don't think Biden wants to see people die. I don't think Biden wants to mess up the vaccine rollout. I don't agree with him politically. I'm not happy he won. But I don't think he means badly with the vaccine. So then why is he doing it? Well, 
the way he is seeing this is that if we hold back half the doses, we're also only giving the vaccine to half the number of people that we otherwise could be giving it to. And what Biden is thinking is, hey, we can step up production. Why don't we just speed up production of the second dose and he can use his power as the president to force this to happen? So why not just vaccinate everybody with the first dose that we have as fast as we can and assume that we're going to catch up in time and have a second dose ready for them? Why not just release the entire uh, the entire dosages of vaccines that we have already made, give it to as many as possible, step up production, and then have the second dose ready in time? And this way, overall, we're going to get a lot of people vaccinated with both doses faster instead of we'll, we'll double the speed of vaccination. We'll double the number of people that get vaccinated in a set amount of time. So that is his thinking. The reason this is a problem is that it invites failure. It no longer has the insurance policy of half the doses being held back. So if there's any issue with new doses coming out, either in production or distribution or whatever, that people can still get the second dose because it's right there already to distribute. The spokesman for Mr. Biden's transition, T.J. Ducklow, said, The president-elect believes we must accelerate distribution of the vaccine while continuing to ensure the Americans who need it most get it as soon as possible. He supports releasing available doses immediately and believes the government should stop holding back vaccine supply so we can get more shots in Americans' arms now. Sounds good, right? But I told you the problem. And then regarding how they're going to get the second doses if they just give out all the first ones and run out, uh, that Biden says that he will soon release additional details about his plan, but that he's going to establish federally run vaccination sites, mobile units that can travel to rural and underserved areas, and uh, the launch of a public awareness campaign around vaccine safety and guidelines. Okay, but that doesn't solve this problem. And then regarding being able to get enough uh, second doses to people, uh, he's feeling that what he can do is he can use the Defense Projection Act to force a faster supply to be produced, and this way we will have the second dose in time. I don't believe it. I believe he can try. I don't believe it's going to happen. Do you necessarily believe that the government can get something done on deadline and efficiently and correctly done and distributed properly without any snafus or delays? Do you have that much faith in them? Do you think there's no chance or fail? Like, you know, remember the Obamacare website? That worked out well. That was all ready. After the $560 million they spent on that was all ready and worked properly, right? The government was in charge of that. You want that same government in charge of producing vaccines which don't exist yet that have to be done by a certain date? Or otherwise you don't get your second vaccine in time? Do you want that? Do you want people walking around with only the first dose of the vaccine where almost half of them will still get COVID? Is that a good idea? That is a terrible idea. That is inviting fail. That's not to say 100% it'll fail. Maybe the... Maybe they can use the Defense Production Act to boost supply so fast and distribute it properly and everybody will get their second dose in time. 
It's very possible, though, that they won't, especially since you're not just counting on the federal government, but also on local and state governments. There's too many levels of possible failure, and you need to cut that down. You can't have it where you're uh, counting on a certain number of vaccines to be rapidly produced, and if they're not, then people don't get their second dose in time. Pfizer, for example, who's producing one of the two good vaccines, they're saying that they, they're confident in their ability to deliver 200 million doses to the U.S. government by the end of July. All right, but like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's the end of July. Now, Biden himself, by the way, he's going to get he's going to get the second dose. He already got the first dose, and he's going to be getting the second dose next week. So he'll be co- he'll be covered. Everybody else has to just get one, and then wait to see if they can come out with a second one. So more people will get the vaccine, but they'll be waiting and waiting and waiting. Until the second one, and I'm not even sure if uh, that's a problem, not getting the second dose in time. I think it is. I'm not 100% sure of that. Now, they're not saying at the government they're going to change the time frame between the first and second dose, but they might very well end up involuntarily changing the time frame, where they just don't have enough. There are objections to this by actual scientists. Michael Pratt, a spokesman for Operation Warp Speed, said if President-elect Biden is calling for the distribution of vaccines, knowing there would not be a second dose available, that decision is without science or data and is contrary to the FDA's approved label. True. Also, he said, if President-elect Biden is suggesting the maximum number of doses should be made available, consistent with ensuring that a second dose of vaccine will be there when the patient shows up, then that's already happening. Second dose management was always about ensuring supply chain availability. So, so basically he's saying, why are we changing this? We The whole point of this is to get it done right, not get uh, literally a half-assed job done, which is what Biden wants. Why, Biden wants everybody to do to get the first 52% vaccine as soon as possible and then worry about the second one later. Hope we'll get it fast, but m- maybe we will, maybe we won't. That's a horrible idea. Now, maybe you'll say, wait a minute. People who don't get the vaccine are 0% protected. And people who get the first dose but not the second are at least 52% of them are going to be protected. So if we get a lot more people done at 52%, we get twice as many done at 52%, isn't that better than than half as many done at uh, 95%? It's at least slightly better if you do the math, right? Where two times as many, 52%, versus one times as many at uh, 95%? Well, but this isn't a math problem. The reason it's not a math problem is because there's other factors that are not mathematical facts. For example, not everybody is taking the same risk. So if you have gotten a vaccine with a 52% effectiveness rate and you don't know which side of the 52% you fall on, there's no way to determine it. How confident do you feel to go out at that point? Let's say you're you're pretty cautious otherwise, especially like, a, like an elderly person. You're pretty cautious now you've gotten a vaccine that is 50-50 whether it's going to work for you. Are you going to feel like, okay, now, now I can go out and do things? No, you're going to be scared. You, you cut your risk in half, but it, it, there's still a substantial risk. That's not cutting it down enough. So you're not going to really change your behavior. You're not going to resume life. You're not going to start patronizing businesses again and, and get the economy going. You're going to act the same as before. You're going to be just as worried as before about catching COVID, especially if you're very vulnerable. So 
that first dose is not going to do very much. And what about people who don't get the vaccine at all? What about like the current plan to do it right for everybody with two doses, with a 95% efficacy, and the others who don't get it yet are 0% until they get it? Well, the people who don't get it, the people who can't get it, they're not going to say, well, okay, I'm going to go out and take as many chances as the guy who got the 95% effective vaccine. I haven't had the vaccine yet, but I'm just going to take chances. Now, I know some stupid people do that, but the typical person is not going to do that. The typical person who has no vaccine yet will say, okay, I don't have the vaccine yet, so I'm not going to take the same chances as somebody who had the, same, had the vaccine. I'm going to wait until I get it. It would be nice if I could have it today, but if I have to have it down the line, I will be careful until then. Hopefully I won't get COVID. And then when I get it, then I will go out and start taking a lot more chances, knowing there's a 95% chance that COVID is uh, not going to show any symptoms in me, and maybe even a 100% chance that I don't get bad symptoms. So I will wait for then. Until then, I'll be careful. Like, what's wrong with that? So you're, you're not having everybody take the same risk. So here with this terrible, mediocre plan, where you give everybody this mediocre uh, coverage of, of 52%, where they don't know which side they're on, Everybody's going to still be afraid. This is not going to recover anything. So why are we doing it? Not only that, but there's going to be a lot of stories out there, if we do it this way, where people take the vaccine and then they get it anyway because it's only 52% effective. So what's going to happen, you're going to have a lot less cooperation with the vaccine in general. But people are going to say, okay, I know people personally who took the vaccine and got COVID. So F it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. If half the people I know, uh, like, if a lot of people, not half the people I know, is now everyone's going to catch COVID, but if if the vaccine is only 52% effective, people are going to start personally knowing a lot of people who catch COVID despite taking the vaccine. And they're going to say, why take the chance of a vaccine that, that was rushed through development that could harm me if I know people personally who took it and it didn't help them? So the way you're going to get more public cooperation is if people start noticing that those who take the vaccine, number one, are okay, nothing happens to them, and number two, that they're protected from COVID, that you you hardly know anybody who took the vaccine, waited the proper time, and then they weren't getting any symptoms of COVID. COVID stopped harming. There's no harmful COVID of anyone you know. They go out, they live life, nothing happens to them. If they get COVID, they don't feel it. And the few that do get COVID and do feel it, it's never that bad. You, you don't know anybody personally who had a bad case of COVID, and you know very few people who had COVID at all that took the vaccine. Would you say that would be encouraging to make others do it? Yes, of course. You see others have success with it, you want to do it too. If you see tons of others take it and get COVID anyway, you're going to say, ah, why bother? What a horrible idea. So a lot of scientists are against this, and for some reason, Biden's going against this. And I'll tell you why. You, may, you still may wonder, okay, you, you see he wants to vaccinate more people, but why, why do it this way? What, what's his rationale? Well, I'll get to the next topic, you'll understand. There has been a failure in vaccine distribution. There's been a lot of criticism that the vaccine is being distributed a lot slower than expected. And uh, a lot of the reason for this is because it's typical bureaucratic, rigid government. 
where they don't come up with contingency plans, they're not nimble, they don't have uh, a lot of leeway to do things differently, and as a result, fail occurs. So with the vaccine, they, a lot of these governments, and I know that it's state and local governments because the federal government doesn't dictate this, but a lot of uh, these governments have a very rigid uh, uh, standard for who can get the vaccine when. And they're doing this because, for whatever reason, they they, they think that people should uh, – they only want certain people who they think deserve it early to get it and not others. And they don't want people cutting the line. They don't want people taking vaccines that should go to more deserving people. So they have this established. So for most states, priority one, what's called group 1A, is considered – Healthcare workers and and people in nursing homes, and that's fine. I guess that, that's a good group one A. I think it's a little too broad, but fine. That's group one A. Well, what happens if some healthcare workers, especially the younger ones, say, "Nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the first ones to get the vaccine. I don't want to be the guinea pig. I'm only twenty five years old. I'm only thirty years old. F it. I'm not taking it." A lot of them turn it down. A lot more turn it down than they expect, which has been happening. A lot of nursing home employees are turning it down, which they didn't quite expect. So a lot of them turn it down. And so then they give it to the elderly people who take it, and they notice, hey, look at this. The vaccines that were earmarked for Group 1A, uh, we have some left over. So um, we would like to give these vaccines to people in Group 1B, like elderly people who uh, would have been in the next group but aren't in nursing homes. In fact, we've taken some of these vaccines out of cold storage. Some of these, like the Pfizer one has to be stored at, at minus 90-something degrees, and once it's taken out of that, it has a much shorter shelf life. So they take some of these vaccines out, expecting more demand from that particular group, and then there isn't the demand they're expecting. Well, what do you do with the ones that have to be used soon? Well, you would think the intelligent, nimble solution would be move down to the next group. So establish priority groups, but if you just can't find anyone in that group at the moment who will take it, don't let it expire, then distribute it to the next group down. Well, a lot of places will not do this. A lot of states and localities are refusing to do this. Some of this is paranoia. Why? Because there is some belief that some are trying to buy their way in to early vaccination. There's also some belief that people are trying to do favors for one another. So a lot of these states are very paranoid that there will be claims, oh, you know, no, nobody wants this vaccine in this group, so uh, let us move down to another group. So they've been very strict, feeling that you really, really have to give a ton of opportunity to people in the earlier groups, even if some of the vaccines expire. That you, It's going to be a tragedy if we move down to the next group, until we're done with the first group, because uh, maybe people will come forward in the first group and change their mind or whatever, and you've got to leave it available for them. Otherwise, we're going to have a, a, a fiasco where people are going to be getting it too early who don't deserve it too early and be ahead of people in other priority groups. And there's such an obsession with keeping the purity of these priority groups that vaccines are expiring. And it's a gigantic mess. So that's, that is, among other things, why there's been a problem with distributing the vaccine. 
For that reason, uh, there has also been a lot of criticism that elderly people who are not in nursing homes are waiting a lot longer than they expected for their Group 1B to come. And in fact, a lot of states are following the CDC's advice to combine them with all essential workers in the same group. And the elderly people are saying, hey, what the hell? We're combined first with this younger group of people who don't really need it. And second of all, uh, our whole group's not even starting till much later than you said. So we're going to be waiting forever and it's not fair and we're old and we're very vulnerable and a lot of us are dying. Why are you making us wait like this? So there's a lot of pressure to get these vaccines out, especially because this more transmissible strain of COVID has been found in uh, some U.S. states already, including California and New York. So there's been a lot of pressure to distribute these vaccines to these elderly people. And there's been a lot of pressure to just drop the whole thing about the essential workers who are younger and not give it to them yet and actually kind of uh, just, even though they're in the same priority group, get it to the elderly because the whole thing is slow. So they're, they're really trying to step up the pace here because so far it's a lot slower than they claimed it would be. And some vaccines are going to waste and even the ones that aren't going to waste, the whole thing's moving a lot slower than it should. And there's a lot of anger about this. So, uh, unfortunately... Because of these failures, because of these stupid bureaucratic failures, because of over-rigidity of who can get it and who can't, and what group and what can't, uh, all that, because of all that's going on, there's all this pressure. Well, how do we get, make more vaccines available? Answer? Well, we have a storage of a whole group of vaccines that's equivalent to all the ones that have been made. We're holding back half. Why don't we just not hold back half? So that's where the pressure on the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration is coming from. And they fell for it. They're like, okay, well, whatever speeds it up, whatever gets those vaccines to those old people, yeah, but they're only going to have one dose. It's a huge mistake. Do it right. Don't do a literal half-ass job. And be more nimble. Don't, Don't act like a typical government bureaucrat. Stop restricting things which do not make sense to restrict. But that's what's been happening. So the government just isn't efficient with these things. It's sad, but it's true. Government is just very bad with efficiency, very bad at adjusting to unexpected situations. So if you think they're going to be ready with that second dose when you need it, when they're distributing all the doses right now, good luck. It's going to be a disaster. It has fail written all over it. The only reason I'm not guaranteeing it's fail is it's possible that maybe they can step up production at such a rapid rate that it's something beyond what I'm estimating will actually occur. So maybe they'll produce it at a breakneck speed that I didn't think was possible and distribute it, and we won't have a problem with the second dose, but I have to think we're going to have a problem with the second dose, and that is very sad, and I think it's going to be looked back upon as a gigantic mistake, and it's not following the science at all. It's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, we're not vaccinating people fast enough. Oh, we have half the vaccines being held back. Oh, let's just do those. That's what it was. That's really It was like a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants reaction. Kind of similar to back in the spring. Hey, we're running out of hospital beds in New York City. 
Uh, what, what can we do? Hey, there's hospital beds in nursing homes that aren't really being used. Oh, yeah, but these people have COVID. We can't bring that in. No, 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 no. We'll just separate them. We'll separate them to different parts of the nursing home. And uh, we'll, we'll put the regular residents on one side. And we'll put the COVID patients that we're moving there that are still recovering on the other side. We'll free up hospital beds. And everybody will be safe. Oops. Maybe not. Maybe COVID will be shipped from one side to the other via air conditioners or via other uh, employees of the place. Hmm, didn't think of that one. Sorry, thousands of old people we killed in New York and Michigan. Sorry, didn't think of that one. Again, a stupid fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants decision made for what was a noble reason, but without any kind of real thought. Hopefully, the Biden administration changes their mind on this. Fortunately, they have no power over this matter until Biden takes office, so he does have about a week and a half to be convinced otherwise. Finally, you may not have noticed this, but the vaccines have not been approved for children under 16. They absolutely can't get it. Did you know that? That hasn't been discussed very much. Yeah, the kids are all right is the government's view of this. Remember when they the scare tactics about uh, we can't send our kids to school, they're they're going to die. Uh we can't uh you know, the kids they have to, you have to watch out. They can get it too. They can suffer too. They can die too. Look at the sob story of of a 5-year-old dying. Remember all that? Well, it turns out the kids are all right. There has been no attempt so far to study the vaccine's safety in children. The vaccine is only approved at the moment for those 16 and up. Remember, for a vaccine to be approved, it has to be declared safe. It has to go through trials and be declared safe. And it is only considered safe and legal to take for those who are 16 and over. That's all that was studied. They didn't study those under 16. Why is that? Do we not care about our children? No, I think you know the answer. It's because the kids are all right. The kids are overwhelmingly safe from the effects of coronavirus naturally. They almost never die from it unless they have a pre-existing condition, a major one. And even then, it's very rare that they will die or even have any kind of permanent effects. You're not seeing kids with permanent lung damage or permanent brain damage or permanent heart damage from what they can see. It just seems like the coronavirus has a hard time causing uh, causing strong symptoms in kids. Yeah, some kids get headaches, they get nausea, they get uh, fever, but they get over it. Kids get sick all the time with other illnesses. They get over it and they're fine. In fact, it has been shown many times over that the flu is more deadly to kids under 16 than COVID-19. In fact, the flu is far more deadly for kids under 5 than COVID-19. And yet, there hasn't been a panic about the flu. The panic is about COVID-19. So, when doing practical studies 
for usage of the vaccine and for deciding who's going to get the vaccine, the ones who are going to be absolute last priority are the kids under 16. Because they're not even studying it yet as far as giving it to them. Another reason they're not bothering is because they know parents are going to be very skeptical. It's one thing for parents to take it themselves. It's another thing for parents to give it to their children, to inject it into their children without knowing for sure that it's safe, knowing that the coronavirus is unlikely to hurt their kids. There just is not the reward to justify the risk. So I think the belief is that adults should take it first. We should see for a while how what side effects come from the vaccine, if the vaccine is sickening anybody, how often it's happening, you know, what is happening, and then go from there and see if it's safe for kids. Now, I know it can be dangerous for kids and safe for adults. That, that can happen, too. There's a lot of things that are not safe for kids, including aspirin. Aspirin a long time ago was okay for kids, including when I was growing up, but now you're not supposed to give aspirin to your young kids because of something called Ray syndrome. So there are a lot of medications that kids cannot take and adults can because your bodies are just different but they're going to have to study this but they are saying so far that they're not even uh, bothering to come up with the answer to this anytime soon so really it's going to be distributed to everybody who needs it who's over 16 first before they even think about the kids which i didn't picture it makes sense but i didn't know if they're going to do it that way I was wondering if there's going to be a big controversy about vaccinating kids and people refusing to do it and schools refusing to take kids who aren't vaccinated. I thought it was going to be a big mess. Well, apparently it's not because uh, they can't vaccinate any kids under 16. It's just not allowed. It's just not legal. So that's actually a good thing. It's going to prevent a, a, a giant controversy that we don't need right now. And very few kids under 16 are dying. And when I say very few, I really, really mean very few. How few? Well, I don't have the data for under 16, but I have for under 15. To date, or not to date, to the date of the study, which is January 6th, so it's pretty close to the date. As of January 6th, 313,000 people in the country had died of COVID-19. 313,000. Of that 313,000, of kids who are under 15, you had a grand total of 105. That's it. 105 kids under the age of 15 died of COVID. And if you take out infants who are under 1, and that's important because infants are very susceptible to death from a lot of things. One of the most dangerous years of your life is zero to one. If you have a baby, you should be very concerned during their first year and check on them a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things that can kill babies under one. A lot of deaths of kids under one compared to deaths of kids one through 17. It's a tremendous difference. You're just very, very vulnerable in your first year of life because you're so tiny and underdeveloped. So uh, once you get over one, it gets way better. That you, you can breathe a sigh of relief when your kid turns one. It, nothing magically changes on the first birthday, of course, but th- that's kind of the, the threshold that seems to really begin to make a major change. 
So your your kid, especially in their first few months, but but really the entire first year, you've got to watch out. And you sometimes have babies that just die in their crib without even uh, much happening. Sometimes the, the, they'll just suffocate the way their their head happens to be, and uh, you know it's very sad that this occurs. But babies are just very very fragile. So thirty two of those hundred five deaths are infants under one. So kids between 1 and 14 and 364 days, basically under 15 but over 1, you only had 73 deaths so far of COVID. 73 of non-infant kids. So that shows you how they're all right. Now, what type of population are we looking at? Obviously, it's a a pretty large population. The kids between 0 and 15 actually make up almost 60 million people. Very close to 60 million people. In fact, it may... No, it's over 60 million. It's almost 61 million. So that's a lot of people. Over 61 million people, under 15, 105 have died of COVID. Pretty good odds, right? Pretty good odds. 73 of them have died of COVID between 1 and 14... And that is about 56 million. More than 56 million. 73 out of 56 point something million. You think the kids are in danger? Not only that, very few have permanent damage from COVID. It's not like if I get it and I got to worry about the permanent lung damage. My son Benjamin does not. It is very rare they have any permanent damage from COVID. For that reason, they have determined that... uh, The vaccine can wait. The vaccine is probably going to cause more harm than good for kids. At least until we can really prove that it's very, very safe. In fact, it may be determined at some point that we shouldn't vaccinate them. That it's just, it's safer not to vaccinate them than to vaccinate them. That may actually be the conclusion. Why 16 and over? Well, 16 is pretty close to adulthood. At 16, uh, a lot of development is complete. There is some uh, emotional development that is still going on. There is some physical development that's still going on, especially in boys. Girls are usually done growing height-wise by 16. There are very few girls that continue getting taller after 16. You may not know that, but that's actually the main reason that boys and girls end up different heights once they're adults. You'll notice when you're little kids... That boys and girls, are, you know, boys aren't really taller than girls, and that a lot of times the tallest people in the class are girls. Sometimes it's boys, sometimes it's girls, but you don't really have it where there's a significant difference between boys' heights and girls' height. But yet, by the time they're full grown, there's a very big difference between the average male height and the average female height. And the reason for that are the extra years that boys grow, where most girls stop growing height-wise at around 14. And boys go years after that. Now, I know this isn't really about height, but I'm just saying that most of your development is done by 16. Not all, but most of it. So your your body as a 16-year-old is fairly similar to the body of a young adult. So that it's close enough to where the vaccine being safe in an adult is likely to be safe in a 16-year-old, which is why, except for some psychiatric medications, most medications that are considered safe for adults to take are safe at the same dosage for 16-year-olds. Think of all medications that you've taken. 
how often you've seen that someone who is uh, 16 or 17 couldn't take what you did. It's very rare. But you do see it often where younger children are not supposed to take a medication at all or are supposed to take a smaller dose. So that's why this cut off 16. They just kind of pick that as an arbitrary place where it seems that uh, the the safety of the vaccine is similar to be the safety for 16-year-olds. Like adults, it's going to be pretty similar. And it, COVID starts to get a little more dangerous around that time. So between 15 and 24, which I know is kind of a wide range for this purpose, between 50 and 24, 494 people died. And that's uh, there's 43 million in that age group, approximately. So that's still pretty damn good odds. And that's why when they say about young people being in danger, it's BS. Because 494 out of 43 million is very small. But still, that's a lot higher than the other age group of 1 to 14 being uh, 73 out of 56 million. That's significantly less. And if you take out the latter ages of that group, those in their 20s, just take the teens, there's a lot fewer deaths. It's not like half are are in the 15 to 19 range and half are 20 to 24. Uh, Of those 494, much more of them are from 20 to 24. So uh, they're just basically saying right around when the risk even begins a little bit, that's when we're going to start giving the vaccine, which is around 16. But I want to stress that even 16-year-olds have uh, relatively little risk from COVID, either from death or permanent damage. So don't expect to have to be faced with the decision to vaccinate your kids anytime soon. Benjamin actually told me when they were developing the vaccine before any priorities were given out or anything like that, but we were just kind of guessing at it. He thought he was going to be last priority, and he's right. (laughs) He is last priority. Anyone under 16 is last priority. I hope they're going to be smart enough to not put the young people ahead of the middle-aged people, which was discussed, but they're, they're not quite up to it yet. They haven't decided yet because they're not anywhere near to the point where they're in the general group yet, but I hope when they get there, they're not going to do the stupidity of, we're going to give it to young people because they tend to go out more. Like, I don't care how much they go out. That's voluntary. I don't care how irresponsible they are. That's voluntary. By danger, there's no question that the middle-aged people should get it before then. To show you the tremendous difference, to date, those between 45 and 54, almost 15,000 have died out of about 40.8 million people from... uh, 15, to, I told you, 15 to 24, which is uh, the same number of years and about a similar population, a slightly bigger population, only 494. So we are talking a 30-fold difference in deaths in those age groups. 30 times as many people 45 to 54 are dying of COVID than those 15 to 24. 30 times! So how, how could you ever prioritize the younger people over the middle-aged people. It make no sense at all. And that, that was the, the idiotic CDC was coming up with that. I don't know if that's going to be the final decision. Of course, it'll just be a recommendation. And there may be a lot of pressure not to do it that way from the population. I think when the population hears this, they're going to flip out if they actually come up with that as the final plan or final recommendation. By the way, speaking of numbers, 
we actually just passed the 100,000 mark for people 85 and older dying of COVID. To show you how COVID is mostly killing very old people, um, 100,000 people died who are 85 and older, and yet they only make up 6.6 million of the population of 328 million in the U.S. 6.6 out of 328 million, and yet almost a third of the deaths. If you include the 75 and older group, it's far more than half the deaths. 186,000 out of the 313,000 deaths as of January 6th were 75 and older, and yet uh, they only make up about 22.5 million population. So they're, what, like 7% of the population, and they are, they're less than 7% of the population, and yet they are far more than 50% of the deaths. So it, it really is largely about age. It's largely very old people dying. The, the smallest population group, which is the 85 plus, is dying actually at the highest numbers of, of people. It's not even just per person. I'm talking about absolute numbers of deaths. We're now over 100,000 for those 85 and older. It's just a very, very deadly disease for people who are 85 and older. It's, this is a very, very age-based disease. And don't forget that. It's, if you look at the numbers, it's, it's really staggering. Really staggering. You, you look at 5 to 14-year-olds, age 5 to age 14, 41 million kids in that group, 54 died. 85 and older, 6.6 million, much smaller than the number of 5 to 14-year-olds by a factor of more than 6. And yet... It goes from 54 people to 100,000 people died. Would you say that the old people are a little bit more susceptible to, to this? I mean, it's it's a tremendous difference. Tremendous. This is why we need to vaccinate the elderly people. This is why 65 and up should be getting it. 75 and up should especially be getting it. 85 and up should especially be getting it. That's who it has to be concentrated on. 65 and up, right now, are more than 250,000 deaths. More than 250,000 deaths as of January 6th, were 65 and older. Take away 65 and older, and there were about uh, 50,000 something deaths. Not good. I mean, that's a lot of people under 65 to die of this, but that's, that's still... You take away... 55 and older, and only focus on, if you go from 0 to 54, this is an interesting stat too, you go from 0 to 54 as of January 6th in the U.S., and uh, you have only around like 23,000 deaths, and that's a very large portion of the population. That is like uh, 200 million people, more than 200 million. So 0 through 54... There's about 23,000 deaths compared to the 313,000 as of January 6th. Everybody else is 55 and older. More than half being 75 and older. Way more than half. Got to be smart about the way you do it. Got to be logical. Got to go by the statistics and the science. Not by your feelings. Not by feeling bad about the people who have to work essential jobs. Not by racial justice. 
but by the cold, hard numbers of who is dying from this and how to save the most lives. That's the way you do it. You put politics out of it. You use the science, you use the mathematics, you use the statistics to figure out the optimal way to save lives. That is what a, that's what a smart and compassionate person would do. The selfish idiot will try to make it about their politics. I am not a selfish idiot, which is why I am not asking for myself to be vaccinated early, even though that would benefit me personally. I would not want to be vaccinated early because it would not be fair. I do not need it more than elderly people. I do not need it more than people my age who have major pre-existing conditions. So I can wait. I'm not mad about waiting. I understand. Okay, I hope you understand that the show is over. Last week I got into the archives pretty quickly. Before I conclude, I, I want to talk about the editing process, because the, the editing process is kind of a dirty secret, a dirty open secret of this show. And I want to explain to you what that really is, and why I do it, and why the show sometimes takes about a day to show up in the archives. Because I've had some complaints... And I'm, I'm listening to the complaints. Like I, I don't want to piss people off to listen. I want, I want to give you what you want with this show. And I've had some complaints that if I take a full day to get the show up, some people say two days. It never takes two days. Because remember, I finish early in the morning the day following when I started it. So, like, for example, it's about 4.30 a.m. right now on January 10th. So if it appears in the early morning of January 11th, that's one day, that's not two days. Even if I began it on the 9th, it matters when it finishes, not when I started it. But okay. People complain that instead of appearing in the archives immediately like it used to do... Oh, uh, boy. Should I take this? I, it's it's going to end up a really long show if I take this, but okay, I'm, I'm going to take this. I, I'm taking a call from somebody who who's going to extend this show when I was kind of feeling done with it. But uh, hello, caller. Is this the COVID show? It was. I ended the COVID it show. It seems like every time I turn on, it's all about the COVID. No fraud. No fraud. Well, it's at the end of the show, I put the COVID. That's that's. I, I dropped that uh, at the end. You want you want to cut this show short? Well, pretty soon, yeah, because I've been talking the whole time, and it starts to it's it starts to wear on my throat. I start to feel like I need to stop talking. So, and where are your other co-hosts? They're just not here. There's really only been one. Well, one of them's on the phone with me right now. But uh, uh, the uh, Calwatt, I start too late for him, so he can only come on occasionally. Trader Ruski fell asleep pretty fast. Hey, buddy. I wish that would that would at least give me some company here. What about the Chinaman, the Chinese guy, Jerome, Tyrone? Oh, Tyrone, he's just a caller. He's not a co-host. But how is he, just in general? I assume he's fine. I, he emails me. He doesn't call much anymore. I, maybe he doesn't listen to live anymore. But he emails me about the show, so I know he's listening. Mm. Well, how was the show? A good show? Yeah, it went, it went fine. Typical show. And did you talk uh, about Anna Kraken? Uh, no, actually, I did not. Jesus, she's kind of she's kind of out there, isn't she, buddy? Yeah, he's, he's talking about Anna Cage, for those of you that don't know. But, yeah, she is out there, and she she's mad at me, actually, because we... Uh, uh, it's so weird why she got mad at me, too. I, I did a segment about some of the crazy stuff she was saying and writing on Twitter, and she's, like, like very, very uh, super right-wing and, and, and uh, Trump loyalist and just writes a lot of nonsensical, crazy things about that. So I talked about that, and I played some of her... Uh, 
like appearances where she got people to do like a chant for Jesus about Trump. And, and so I was playing this on here and I was playing the cuckoo sound effect. And for some reason that didn't get her angry. What got her angry of all things was that I, I misquoted, uh, yeah, like what she thought about one thing that was kind of unimportant. It was really weird that she's like, well, if, you, if you're going to quote me, then say it accurately. And it was over something like really minor. And for some reason, the stuff I, I thought would piss her off, she didn't even seem to care about. But but she she tweeted out that, that uh, like, hashtag you're the fraud <laughs> regarding poker fraud alert. So I guess, I guess she doesn't like poker fraud alert anymore. But Well, the good news is she says tonight on Twitter it's going to be very – peaceful transition into Trump's second term in about 10 days. So. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I know. There's a lot, a lot of wackiness. But, yeah, it's. It, I, I was going to tell you about the ed- editing process, um, and then, then you can bring up whatever you'd like to bring up as our final discussion topics here. But uh, I edit this show for listenability. So what I do is if there's like some kind of fail where I'm trying to get something working and it's not working, I'm not going to put the archive listener through listening to five minutes of me trying to get it working. Or when I take a break in the middle of the show and play the Eric Bensamokin ad, what I do is I loop it a bunch of times while I'm doing what I'm doing. And uh, that would be very frustrating to listen to. I, I apologize. The live listeners have to hear it. But um, I, I know you don't want to hear the same ad five times in a row, so of course I edit that out. And I, I edit it, I'll make little notes that I, I, I misspoke with something, or I gave some wrong information, or whatever. So I'll clean it up to where I usually don't record anything new. Usually what I do is I just edit out stuff I don't want in there anymore. That's usually just me misspeaking, or me hesitating, or me screwing up something, or me having some kind of technical fail, uh, stuff like that. So w- with a show that's over six hours typically... That's a lot of material to go through. I don't listen to every word, but I, I, I use a uh, a tool to go through it where I can tell where there's like unnecessary pauses and a lot of stuff like that. And I go through my notes of what to go back and edit. So it always takes it takes a good deal of time. You'd be surprised. Uh, so this delays me putting up, and sometimes I don't want to take all the time to do this right after I've done a very long show. So. I'll take a break, I'll go to sleep, whatever it is, and I'll wake up and, and, and I'll try to get around to doing it soon. So that's why there's a delay. Now, the, the complaint is, I have two complaints about this. The complaint is, number one, it takes too long to get up there. And the complaint is, some people like all this stuff. They like the fail. They like, they like the frustrating moments. They, they like, the, they don't mind the, the pauses and stuff like that. And I, I just think it makes the show sound better to make it cleaner. It's not going to sound perfectly produced when it's just me doing it. And when it's a very long show, it's a lot. It's a lot easy to edit a very tight and great sounding show if it's half an hour. If it's six hours, unless you have a huge team, you're not going to be able to do that. So th- that's what I do. And if if you want to comment on it, if you want to message me whether you you prefer the show to get up faster with some problems, or if you like the edited version better then let me know. And, and by the way, it's not just even removing things. Like sometimes I'll go through it and I'll notice something is very low. The sound is very low. I'm playing something that barely came through. So then I can I can amplify it on the editor where you know, if I didn't edit it, that wouldn't happen. So there's a lot of things that are kind of fail that occur during a live show that by the time you get to the archives sound good. So that that's what I do. I started doing it sometime last year and I just have been doing it every week. So that's, that's what's been going on. So anyway, Brandon, what's going on with you? Uh, not a whole lot, buddy. I'm uh, just waiting for uh, the world to get back to normal. I mean, it's just like this is uh, this alternate universe we're all living in. It's crazy. Just everything. Just crazy. Crazy. Um, 
let's see. I'm excited. There's some uh, NFL today. I know that's your least favorite sport. But listen, I got to tell you, the NBA is starting up again with this, all this nonsense. So Yeah, they are. It's, it's bothersome. I'm getting sick of it. No, listen, listen, for real. I have not watched a single game this year. I've watched little bits and pieces in the beginning, and then they started up with this nonsense, and I'm, I'm, I'm not watching it. I'm not I'm just done with basketball again. I just don't even care. I honestly don't. I, I mean, if I want to hear LeBron's opinions on all this and that, and, 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 and you know, then I might as well just watch the news. You know, you, you watch. I watch at least with me. I watch sports to get away from all that. Yeah, I do too. I th- that's what I've said and too. It's it's you know like watching Lester Holt, but on a basketball court. Uh, I, what I do is I, I put this stuff at the end of this show because I know some people don't want to hear politics on this show. So I say I'll just if I'm going to do it, I'll put it at the end. So if you don't want to hear it. Then you can turn it off, but I, I, I try not, not to make. It's not a black or white thing. It's just, it's just as I explained it. I just it's supposed to be an escape, and it's not. And it's just, it's they're crammed it down your throat again. And I got to hear that fucking. Oh my God, Kylie Irving is making thirty-eight million a year. Doesn't want to play because he's upset about what happened in Washington. You know, let me ask you something. If you had a job, if I had a job at a casino or, or whatever a grocery store, and we just decide we don't want to go to work. Okay, because we're upset about what happened in D.C., they might very well fire us for cause. And I don't even think we'd have any recourse. No, he wouldn't. No, no, it's ridiculous. Did you see that? Yes. They're saying that he was upset about what happened in Washington and he doesn't mean that paid 30. If I was the owner of that team, uh, I know it's I think it's it's a Chinese gentleman that bought it from the Russian guy. No, it's an Asian gentleman. But if I was an owner of if I was the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, I would fine him. I mean, it's just you're paying him 38 million a year. Like it's just it's 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 I don't know it, it, it drives me crazy. So not watching basketball. Uh, football's winding down, but like I said, I know that's not a sport that you really care. I never really understood that about you. Most guys our age, that's like their favorite sport. I, I, just, I, I just I just I just couldn't I just couldn't get that into it. Uh, I I can watch individual games and then I, and I can enjoy them. I just never got that into it. I was just more yeah. of a, a baseball and NBA guy my whole life. Yeah. Well, so it's winding down. Then there's a, uh, I'm sure you don't know this either. There's a college football playoff. The final game is Monday between Alabama and Ohio State. So that will be the end of college football. No, I've heard, I've heard about that. I just don't, I don't follow that closely, but I, I know the major right. things going on. So other than that, um, you know, just watching sports, kind of, you know, for guys like me, it gets a little depressing this time of year because, you know, football is your favorite sport, then you don't have it for, six seven seven months eight months um other than that doing a lot of the online thing i still haven't played any poker live at all um i know you haven't obviously but no i haven't ventured out i'm not even going into casinos for free play all that all that's kind of dried up now but i I will tell you it's pretty funny uh i did go when was this well it was right before correction i left on christmas day so the week before Christmas, I got I got a uh, email. This is just to tell people how bad it is out here in Vegas. You know, in terms of just trying to get people in in rooms and, and fill up these these you know hotels, and resorts. I got an email around uh, maybe the eighteenth, nineteenth of seventeenth. I don't know of December from the Cosmopolitan. And you know, those that don't know, the Cosmopolitan is a beautiful hotel. That is on Las Vegas Boulevard. It's between basically it's on the same side of the street between the Bellagio and Aria. 
Um, it was built in the end of 2010 is when it opened up, right around New Year's. And anyway, I used to play there uh, 10 years ago when they had this Limit Hold'em bot, which I know you did too, because I was the one that told you about it. And I think it lasted, how long was it there for? Maybe a year and a half? Two years? Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. Okay, so from about like 2011, like early on in 11 to maybe 2013, I played there and the bot, you know, comped and stuff like that. So it was, it was all around worth it, you know, getting food, you get rooms. So then they yanked it out. I don't remember if they yanked it or if they just stopped comping on it, you know, one or the other, but it, it just was deemed unplayable. So I stopped going there, you know, because everything else there, it's very nice. You know, the restaurants are nice and, you know, it's, it's like this – you know, when it was built, you know, for the first five years, it was the must-see place, the the it place, all the young, pretty people, celebrities. Like, you go there on a Friday, Saturday night, you'd see the most gorgeous women, the most gorgeous men. Everyone's dressed up nice. Well, not not you know what? I have to I have to say, not always the men. A lot of times, it's really pretty girls with like guys who are like sixty. But uh, it, well, yeah, but it, it it seemed like it could have been. It very well could have just been like a club in L.A. or something, like a hot yeah. spot. It was such a just a trendy place. But anyhow, you know, it's overpriced and stuff. But you know, that's what all of them are. But you know, the restaurants good. So, but anyhow, once they took that out, there was nothing to play. Like you know, the blackjack game slots. Nothing was you know just like going and playing at Caesars or any other high end casino. Nothing you know EV to do. So I literally stopped, and I don't think I'd been there since around 2013 it's been a good six seven years since i've even stepped foot in there i might have gone there once over the years to meet someone to eat there that was staying there something like that but i hadn't played well that's so, the, yeah that's the, that's the main reason i've gone in the last several years is, is just going to meet people for things yeah i i definitely hadn't played there since 2013 at the latest i might have been there maybe two or three times now that i'm thinking about it there was a restaurant there called milos it's a really nice really good seafood greek fish place that i've gone a couple of times but anyhow so uh out of the blue again about uh mid-december they send me an offer for three free nights anytime in one of their wraparound oh it gives me a choice of the different kind of rooms i want but you know the nicest one nicest room they offered me for free three nights uh no resort fee just you know, totally comped, no play requirements, was this wraparound terrace suite. The room's like 1,500 square feet, but the real key is there's a balcony that literally encompasses the whole entire room, from like the bedroom all around to the living room. The balcony itself is probably like 800 square feet. It's massive. You could fit easily 30 or 40 people on it. Um, it was cold, so, you know, th- that wasn't my main motivation. But anyhow, so I end up booking it. And it's really, really funny. You know, what I ended up doing is I booked it and I literally quarantined inside there for four days, three nights. And I played online poker. I streamed. I got caught up on the movie. I was by myself. I didn't have anyone with me. Got caught up on, you know, movies and TV shows I wanted to watch. Uh, played a lot of online poker and uh, just kind of kept to myself. And I, you know, basically the same thing I do at home, but it was nice. And I, I put on my jacket at night and sit out there with my laptop or with a book or something and just look at the, the you know, cause it's literally almost a 360 degree, uh, patio, you know, terrace. So you could literally like go to the part and look at the Blasio fountains or look at the mountains or look at the strip. So anyway, I did that and I really, really liked it. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. It was total peace and serenity and 
Um, it was a ghost town there. Like I, I think twice a day I would venture out. Like I'd go out early in the morning, like five o'clock to go to Starbucks and get a coffee and come back to my room. And then, you know, I'd go down at night and, you know, get some food and bring it back to my room. I didn't eat in any restaurants or anything like that, but it was just dead. I mean, it, it wasn't crowded again. You know, it's normally not right before Christmas, but I mean, it was real bad. You know, half the table games weren't even open at night, but anyhow, it, it, the, the room was gorgeous. Uh, I did that and I, you know, just got to relax. And uh, I noticed this new technology that I hadn't seen before. I know not much of a big deal, but I just, I was kind of impressed. So what they have there now in the rooms or on the TVs, they actually have apps where you can sign into your Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, and there's other stuff too, and watch it on the TVs versus like having to like, you know, stream on your laptop or on your phone. So in other words, you're in a hotel and, you know, there's a 65, 70 inch TV in the living room. You want to log into Netflix and just watch it on the big screen TV. There's this basically, it was like, a social media app. I think that's actually what it was called. It said social media. You click on it with the remote and it gives you every, you know, all these, I think Apple TV was the only one that wasn't there, but all these different uh, streaming things. And, and, you know, like I said, YouTube and Google that you could sign in and do your thing with. So that was kind of cool. You don't have to watch it on a laptop. I just put on Netflix. I was watching some shows, but anyhow, the point really is, uh, besides that I had a really good time. It was just really relaxing was that it was just strange that, you know, for them to go that deep in their playbook, quote unquote, to find me, to offer me something with the hopes that I would go there and, you know, I was going to play, which, you know, I'm just being honest. I did not You know, I, I, you know, I gave them, I spent money on food. I spent money on other things there at the hotel, but I didn't gamble at all. Um, but, you know, for them to even just think, okay, here's someone they have to know hasn't played in seven years and so on and so <laughs> forth. You know, I mean, let's just kind of throw, you know, darts at, at, you know, a dartboard and hope this guy comes in and maybe fires some money, um, you know. But it just, that's how bad it is, that they're really, you know, bottom barrel. So, you know, I can only imagine people that have played there recently, you know, even if you're a $25, $50 blackjack player, or, you know, medium-sized slot player, you know, you probably could get, you know, the run of run of the whole place there. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. doing that for, so anyhow, that's, other than that, you know, like I said, that's really it. I mean, I know that's not even that interesting, but uh, I guess I will say to people that, that are listening, uh, in the next couple months, you know, of course, it, it's at your risk and, and peril and if you feel comfortable with it. But, you know, if you get the vaccine or if you feel comfortable enough to travel and do the whole you know, protocol with masks and all that, uh, you, you know, you might want to inquire places that you that you don't think you'd ever be able to get comp rooms at. You know, don't be so sure. You know, if you if you've played before at the Win or the Encore, but they've never given you free rooms, or even the Cosmo or Venetian, whatever, maybe Blasio, definitely worth you know not just closing the door on it and thinking that you have no shot to to get you know a free room, to get uh, you know highly discounted room upgrades, whatever it is, and you know either call a host if you have one. If not, you can always call and ask for one. Any host on duty, or if not, a lot of these places uh, they have a casino marketing department that you can just ask for. And what they do is that's kind of like for the range of people that play decent, but they're not quite to the level where they require a host or don't want a host. You can call casino marketing and you know they'll be able to tell you or give you rooms or make decisions or, or if they feel your play, ju- your play justifies it, you know, they can put you in touch with a host. But I've been telling a lot of people that, that, you know, 
think that you know they can't. They're that desperate now. Yeah, it's actually good advice because the people who just kind of given up on trying to get comps based upon uh, 2018, 2019, they just couldn't. It's a different situation right now, and and you should give it a try. You should call even if you have to have any offers. You can call up and, and give it a shot, and, and and see if they and if they say no, they say no. You know, sure, no, yeah, right, no harm, no harm, no foul. But you know, you probably have another six months or so to to do this before things start maybe picking up a bit. I mean, it was bizarre. I didn't go anywhere for New Year's Eve, of course, but I did look online, and some of the rates they were just I, I was shocked. I mean, they were. You could basically have stayed at any mid to close to high end places for less than two hundred dollars a night if if you tried hard enough. You know, on New Year's Eve. Oh yeah, I saw that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which is like unfathomable. I mean, you couldn't stay at at a place like the Orleans or the Gold Coast even for you know those prices in years past. So, but again, you know, all of that is balancing the fact that yeah, there's still this you know pandemic and so. What I've been doing now, when I have gone out, and I don't go out a lot, you know, I go out way more than you, but still not a lot. Um, what I'm doing now, when I do have to leave, I've been doing this for a few months. Not only am I wearing, obviously, the, the a mask, and I'm not, you know, I'm not wearing a cloth mask. I'm wearing the blue. I don't know what do you call those masks? You know, the hospital mask, the blue, you know, the blue and white ones. Oh, uh, it's just it's like a, it's, it's a medical mask. You just say medical. Yes, mask. yeah, or it just it's kind of a form of a cloth mask. Even it's not cloth. Okay, so I, I wear one of those, obviously, and then when I, you know, have to go into a grocery store or some kind of appointment, where, you know, where I have to be near someone, uh, like I had to go to Home Depot, for instance, the other day, the refrigerator. So I'm, I'm wearing the mask, and I'm also putting on one of those, I bought a couple of those plastic face shields that, you know, like they're like little glasses that, you know, you put them through your ears, but it kind of covers your whole face in plastic. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I'm wearing both of those, and I'm not saying that, you know, that's... But it does give me a sense of a little bit more security. And I always carry, you know, a thing of sanitizer with me, and I'm constantly – I must do my hands, you know, 20, 30 times a day someday. I mean, I'm OCD anyhow about cleanliness. And- well, I'll, I'll tell you this, though. You're not uh, – I'll tell you two things. First of all, the, the hand sanitizing is probably not doing very much. It's almost all going to be through the air that's uh, that's infecting you. Second, there's somebody else here on with us. I, I've thrown someone else on the line. Is it Trader Ruski? I would say to double up on the blue masks. Oh, there he is. Hey, yo, buddy. What's happening, fellas? Uh, Trader Ruski, are you double dipping tonight? Did you call earlier, then go to sleep while you did a whole <laughs> show, and then you're back on now and he's still on? Is that what what's going on here? The front and the end. The bookends of the show. So <laughs> the bookends of the show, yeah. That's what he's been that's doing. Funny. Yep. Yeah. That's funny. And I talk with my trader, Ruski. So, you know, in case people don't know, sometimes they like to know the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. Uh, trader Ruski is not only one of the co-hosts on here. He's one of my closest personal friends now, thanks to the fraud show. So we've been uh, talking a handful of times at least uh, every week now since football season started because we went in business together this year. We did a bunch of fantasy leagues. So he took his fantasy leagues and he incorporated me in them. I took mine, incorporated him, and we had all these other things. So we're actually, as of yesterday, Trader Ruski and I are 20-handed or so left in this massive, massive NFL Survivor League that started back in uh, the first week of September. Druff, uh, do you know what a Survivor League is? Um, I, I think uh, you told me, but I forgot. So I guess I don't anymore. So okay, so it's so it's the NFL, 
I could be uh, actually anything, but it's most commonly in the NFL. And the way it works is starts week one of the NFL season, and you have to pick one team per week to just win. Not spread, okay, just win, but even if it, you can't tie, which in the NFL regular season there can be ties. So you got to win, but the caveat is that you can only pick each team once. So, you know, we take the best team, team that won 15-1, Kansas City Chiefs. We take them in week one. We can't pick them again for the regular season. So that's where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because you can't pick a team twice, and then especially in the beginning, you don't really know, like, there's always teams that are supposed to be good but aren't, or always teams that are supposed to be bad but are but are good or medium. So, but anyhow, we're still alive. We're, we're still alive and knew it. There was 20-something, 22 players left after the regular season still. That's how many were in this thing. And I think there was, Trader Risky, what were they, 600, 700, 800? How many originally were in? Yeah, just I think just under 700, I think. Okay, so now we're down to, like, the final 21 or 22 and yesterday we ended up, after much discussion, we decided to take um, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against on the road against Washington, and we won by eight points. So there are going to be uh, eight teams left next week. And what is it, 17,000? If we win this, it's 17,000 each? Is that what it is, 34? Yeah, thir- yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's something like that, $34,000 total, you know, for the, for – you know, one person, but since we're splitting it. So it's a nice little sweat. But just to give you some perspective, the uh, Circa, uh, and by the way, you can't miss, you know, say you forget to put in an entry or whatever, you know, miss the deadline, you're eliminated, you know, no matter what it is. But just to give some perspective, the Circa, which is this brand spanking new resort that opened up downtown about uh, early in October, it opened up, and now they just started uh, opening. They just opened right before New Year's. The casino, oh, I'm sorry, the hotel portion of it, which I, I obviously I haven't been to, but I I did see the uh, casino portion, specifically the sports book. And this place is just brilliant. It's like literally, if you took a if you took a Borgata or Borgata, oh yeah, Borgata. If you took a Bellagio or Aria and just smacked that, put it in the middle of downtown Vegas, that's what you'd have here. I mean, this is a five star. Just sparkling, shiny, brand new, state of the art, you know, casino. And you, you, you go there and, you know, you're in there, someone drops you off and, and, you know, you don't, they blindfold you. You wouldn't think you're downtown. You know, you think you're somewhere on the strip. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Now, whether, you know, how feasible it's going to be financially over the long run, with, especially with what's happened and the fact it's downtown, I don't know. But it's definitely the kind of place that if you're not a casino hopper and you demand, to go to, you know, seven, ten different casinos all the time. If you're the kind of person, which some people are, that, you know, you go to, you stay at the Bellagio, you stay at the Aria, and you eat at all the Aria restaurants, you gamble at the Aria, you go, you know, go to the Aria uh, to get massages, or your wife gets her nails done, whatever, then, you know, you'd love this place, because it's all-inclusive. You wouldn't need to go anywhere else. You, you know, everything you would want is there. You know, it's insane swimming pools, and, you know, just tons of restaurants. I mean, it, it's really, really nice. So, specifically the sports book, it's the nicest sports book in the world. It's not even close. They literally, the sports book looks like a small soccer stadium where like their levels like that you sit at and it, it just, it, it's massive. It's gorgeous. So anyhow, they had a bunch of sports contests to promote their opening. And one of them was, uh, you know, they had to pick the pros contest, which is the same thing as the, uh, 
famous Westgate one, which in fact was kind of made some news in the poker world because uh, who was it? The, the two poker pros that, that ended up uh, finishing second at it. Oh, that that was uh, Mark Regrich and my favorite David ODB Baker. Yeah, that's right. So they ended up funny enough winning the Westgate one, and then they finished second at the Circa, which is yeah, I saw that. You might not ever see again. I mean, that's pretty pretty strong. You know, that's really really strong. So, but anyhow, so besides all that, the Circa had a Survivor contest, the same one that Trader Ruski and I are in, which we didn't enter. But just to tell you, if we would have entered it, um. We would have chopped seventy thousand each. That's a thousand dollars. The one that Trader Ruski and I are in is, is much less, but the one that was at Circa was a thousand dollar buy-in, so it would have been five hundred each for Trader Ruski and I. But we would have made it to the last week in which this contest chops at the end. The contest Trader Ruski and I are in. There's no chopping. You keep playing through even the playoffs if there's still more than one team left. But the one at the Circa ends, ended up chopping with, oh. I don't remember. Ten people, I think, were left at the end of week seventeen, and they each got seventy thousand dollars. Or I'm sorry, it was like one hundred forty thousand dollars. They ended up getting, so it would have been seventy thousand each. And everything's the same. You know, same rules. You just pick a team. So it's just kind of funny, you know, if we would have decided to go five hundred each because we did the Westgate contest this year, him and I, and we didn't do well in that, um, which is just picking the spreads. You have five teams. You get uh, a week. You have to pick the spreads, and that's the one that ODB and uh, Who'd you say it was, Matt? Who? Uh, no, Mark Gregorich. Oh, Mark Gregorich. Yeah, that, that's the, the one they were in. We were in that one too, but we just we really had a, a miserable season with with the spread against the spread. But uh, yeah, so we're still in that, and that's that's been fun. And you know, Trader Ruski and I do our talks, and uh, you know, outside of that, uh, you know, just um, listen. I don't know what you all are doing, but I'm starting to get. You know, I know Trader Ruski still works, so he's going out and stuff. I'm just starting to get bored. You know, it's just, it's hard. I, you know, the thing is, I can't watch TV like the rest of, of people I know can. Like, I can't watch 10, 12 hours of TV. I just can't. Like, I just get bored and I start looking at the clock. I start playing with my phone. You know, my attention span isn't that great that I can just watch hour after hour after hour, you know, of television. So, anyhow, I'm, you know, kind of running out of things to do. I'm getting just a little stir crazy and looking forward to, I guess, getting back to normal, hopefully, uh, you know, by the summertime, I think. You know, what, do you, what do you all think? What's a what's a real realistic goal? Not not to say that we won't have masks and all these other things still going on, but just where things start getting a little bit back to normal, where people are kind of coming and going more freely. Do you think the summer is a, a, a realistic goal or not even? Uh, you know, uh, I, I think somewhat. Once you get uh, everybody vaccinated who wants to be, then we will have a big improvement. And then, as I was saying earlier in the show, if the vaccine's working out, if there aren't many side effects and it seems to be working and nobody... A big key is if almost nobody who takes it gets a major version of COVID that like seriously hospitalizes them, then that will be very encouraging. If, if it's not just a matter of not getting symptoms for 95% of the people, but if you find it where hardly anyone is getting a severe version of it, then that will be really encouraging for people to take, especially if they see that others are not getting sick from the vaccine. So uh, th- there's a lot that we're going to have to wait to see how it plays out before we even can predict this. Something I was thinking of is, let's say I take the vaccine, let's say they give it to me in like May or April, okay, and I do both doses, 
And let's say, you know, of course, by then we'll have a lot more frame of reference because there'll be a whole lot of people who have taken it months ago. And let's say by the time I take it, it's already well known that nobody seems to be getting a severe version of COVID and that most people who take it are not getting symptoms at all. So I can be pretty confident that I can do whatever I want. And even if I run bad and I'm at that 5% who who gets symptoms, they're not going to be terrible symptoms. So at that point, I'm not going to be very worried about it. So the problem is they may still be requiring masks, especially since not everybody is taking the vaccine or want to take the vaccine. So um, if the World Series of Poker is running normally in the summer, let's say it's even delayed a little bit, but uh, running sometime in the summer and then running like it used to in 2019, but you have to wear a mask while you play, will I play? Will I sit there for all those hours every day with a mask on? And right now I'm leaning towards no. It just seems so unpleasant. Not even fear of getting it. I I couldn't do it. Yeah. Somebody even offered to put me in that I I would just not a not a twelve, fourteen hour day. That's what I'm saying. Like it just seems like it's awful. No. I wouldn't enjoy it. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. What about you, Trederiski? Could you do twelve, fourteen hours playing cars with a mask on? No, hell no. I mean, you know, maybe end of summer next year i you know maybe or this year but um i don't know i think it's pretty much all of 2021 yeah so that's that's what i'm worried about is that i i think that even if i feel like i'm not afraid of the virus because of the vaccine i think i'm going to say i'm going to pass on this just because of the mask requirement so until a mask requirement is dropped and i was also thinking what if they never drop it what if we can never get rid of covid completely and even though there's a much reduced chance of getting it, if if everyone's going to have to wear a mask in these situations, in these mass group situations, that may be the end of me playing live poker for the most part, except maybe some cash where I can do it for a relatively short time where I can leave once I get sick of the mask. But but the tournament where you're kind of trapped there until they say you're done for the day or until you bust, that is something that won't be appealing anymore. Yeah. So that could be yeah, a very different I, thing. I, oh, I don't think that's, I don't. I mean, I hope not, but I don't think that's likely. That this would just go on for, you know, three, five, ten years. I think eventually, somewhat in the distant future, it, it, you know. Because wouldn't, wouldn't, if nothing else, wouldn't herd immunity just be built up? Not not point? if it mutates enough. If it mutates enough, we may never be done with it. How did the, 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 the last great pandemic in the 1920s, how did that eventually? It, it burnt out. Sometimes they do. We have a much more recent example of swine flu in 2009 just burnt out so it could burn out yeah but it also could be like the flu which is not well it's gonna be very interesting yeah i I didn't think about it along those lines but i don't know you know it's funny like i know some people that could do it that would still do it like i mean you know my friend Jeannie, she played in the tournament uh at bally's bally's had this this mixed game series uh end of december you know horse and and, and triple draw and stud study you know decent 500 dollar buy-in thousand dollar buy-ins you know it was a, i think it was a circuit event and you know i don't think it was quite as long the out the daily hours as world series but it's close close maybe, maybe it was i know the mixed games which is all she played started at four o'clock and they were playing till about two three in the morning with like an hour 90 minute dinner break so i guess that's yeah it's pretty close and she did it, and she didn't complain, and she had a great time. And 
she she finished third in one of them for you know pretty decent cash. So I don't know. I couldn't. I mean, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't enjoy it. It would distract from my enjoyment, and I eventually would just get to the point where I'd be like, I would rather just bust and go home. I just yeah. I, I, I think I wouldn't want to. I just wouldn't want to sit there for that. You know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen hours. But you know, she's in her sixties and she had no problem. So there probably would be a demand for you know some people would some people would do it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's it's interesting. You know, and then the other thing is, I don't even know. Do you think even when all this comes back, how good of the number is going to be? Like, how many people are just going to just decide specifically those that have to travel, whether it's, you know, another country or another part of the U.S. that they're not going to bother coming? And how many people maybe are, are just even put off by the, I don't know, the, what's the term I'm looking for? Just that the World Series, because of what they did with several main event winners and, and $50 bracelets, that is just not prestigious enough, which, in you know, one form or another doesn't either motivate people or dissuades people from even wanting to play or just, oh, the hell with it. What am I even doing? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I have better, you know, well, I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know. Yeah, it can happen. I, I know. Well, look, I can tell you, you know, I'm not into it as nearly as much as I was when I was younger, but even now reflecting at it, like it seems to me, I, I feel like it's lost luster. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it isn't what it was to me. You know, not just because I, I'm just not in that same that same person I was, but it just it doesn't feel as spe- You know what I mean? It just doesn't feel as I don't know. Like you know, when you know there are fifty dollar bracelets out there, it just doesn't seem that that special. It just doesn't seem that historical or, or that. I mean, do you kind of agree? Well, yeah, that part yeah, that part is bothersome. Agree, I, I I hate those tight those uh, those very low buy in bracelets. I'm very against them. So anyway, uh, the I, I want to mention something that's yeah. uh, separate from all this. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys a question too. I, th- I think I know the answer for you, Brandon, but for Trader Risky, I don't know. I am getting a colonoscopy in less than two weeks. And I've uh, never had one. Yeah, I was gonna, I, yeah, I figured you hadn't because you're a little bit younger than me. And uh, Trader Ruski, have you ever had a colonoscopy? You're a little bit older. This year, uh, actually, I was going to get one early this year, and I mean last year, and then COVID. So I'm I'm kind of waiting for this year. To okay, so that was that was my story. Now, do you, Trader Ruski, do you have any in your family? Was there any family history of either colon cancer or any polyps that were found in uh, relatives? My brother has Crohn's. I know, yeah. So I know that's uh, an increased risk having Crohn's, but but if he wasn't found with uh, polyps, then that's. Uh, do you know if he was found polyps there in exams? He wasn't. Okay, he wasn't. then then it sounds like your risk isn't. I mean, now that you're over fifty, it's always an elevated risk, so you need to do it. But um, as far as getting one before fifty, since you didn't have the elevated risk, it's not as big of a deal. I have an elevated risk. Yeah, on my father's side, it's it's not good. My grandmother died on that side of colon cancer, and my father probably would have if they didn't find a polyp in when he was fifty five that looked like it was like a very close to going cancerous, like very close. So he'd probably have been gone a long time ago if he didn't get that colonoscopy. And I'm only six years younger now than when that was found. So this is gonna be my first one. I just like you, I was gonna get one last year early, and then the. the uh, COVID hit, and that was the end of that. In fact, it wasn't even legal to get it done because it was considered elective surgery. So anyway, I I have my first one in less than two weeks, 
And uh, I, I was going to be forced to take that awful COVID test that goes way up your nose. That uh, and I'm, that's the next question, uh, Brandon. Have you ever had that awful COVID test that goes way up your nose? I, I you know, I haven't had any COVID test. I have not I've either. Had one taken. What about you, Trader Risky? If you had also, a COVID test, also hold on, real fast, just to answer your question as well. Knock on wood, but I'm very, very fortunate in that there's no history of cancer in either side of my uh, parents' grandparents or great grandparents. Oh wow! Uh, no prostate. No, I mean I. Don't have, I mean, Jesus, I don't want to jinx myself, but I don't have any close relative. I'm even talking aunts, uncles, cousins that have died of cancer. No, I, I, so, I, I do. So, yeah. I mean, I know that doesn't, that doesn't exonerate me or, you know, but I'm just saying, like, at least you know, that kind of, you know what I'm saying? A no, it's a good sign. It's a very hereditary, yeah. the cancers. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, both my grandparents lived to like their, you know, I just, it's funny, I just lost my last grandparent uh, last year. And it wasn't due to cancer. I just lost my last grandparent, 90. Can you believe I, I, at my age, I still have a grandparent alive until last year. Last one, and it wasn't COVID or anything, lived till 90, almost 96. Oh, three three of my four grandparents were dead 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so Trader Risky, so. have you ever uh, had a COVID test? I have not. Okay. Well, that answers that. I have not either. But they were requiring it to get the colonoscopy, and it was that one way up your nose. And that's the one that, that hurts and that just really feels shitty. And I was really dreading that, that I just did not want to get that terrible COVID test. And they just changed it. I got the good news that they just changed it in January to where you don't have to do the terrible one. You can do one of the easy ones that doesn't hurt at all and isn't bothersome. So that, that that's some good news with it. But I am going to have to do the prep where you get the uh, the watery diarrhea all day. That's like guaranteed from the prep, and then you have to have like a liquid diet that whole day too. You can't eat any solid food, and uh, so that, that's that's not going to be fun. And to be honest, I'm not looking forward. The part that bothers me the most is not the, you know like the diarrhea doesn't even bother me. I don't. I'm not going to enjoy it, but it's uh, that's not what I'm really dreading. I just hate being put out. I don't want to be put out. But I'm going to, but I hate the idea of being put out to have it done. I don't like general anesthesia. I, I, and the funny thing is a lot of people, I, I'm having them use propofol, which a lot of people enjoy. A lot of people actually like the experience of being put out with propofol. So they, the sleep feels good. It's, it's a, a euphoric feeling. You feel very relaxed. Like, oh, I don't care. I don't want it. I'm going to do it. But I, I, I'm not, I, that's the part I, I, that's one of the things I'm really dreading, and I also I'm kind of like afraid I'm going to wake up and they're going to say, "Hey, guess what? You have stage one colon cancer." So, which often you can have without any symptoms. So that's like a little. When that's over, I'll be very relieved. But that's coming up uh, fairly soon. And uh, when is this that you're going? In less than two weeks. So that's uh, there may not be radio that week, depending upon uh, how I feel. I think there will be, but. Depending on how I feel, uh, next week it'll be radio for sure. But the week after that, it's in question. But the, the only the good news I got is I don't have to do that terrible COVID test. That's that's the only good news. And yeah. hopefully this this will go okay. And hopefully, like, I, I, I by the way, I can see you, Brandon. You're you're on video. Do you know this? Oh <laughs> no, I don't care. You, you, you look beautiful. So thank you. <laughs> 
he's waving to me here. Anyway, uh, I really am not looking forward to this, but I got to get it done. I would feel really stupid if I put this off any further. I should have gotten this done a while ago because I do have a family history of it, and I'm almost 49. So I should have done this when I was 45. I'm years late on this. So uh, if if I were to put this off further and then get colon cancer, which is fully preventable because I didn't do this, I would really feel like an immense moron. In fact, I'll feel like an immense moron if they do find I already have it. But I, I think I probably don't. I think it's... Uh, I, I think probably, at worst, they're going to just find polyps that are not cancers or precancerous. But who knows? You know, I could run bad here. Hopefully I don't. And if, if they find, like, precancerous polyps, the good news is I don't have cancer. But the bad news is I'll have to come back within a few years. And I'll know that if I don't really keep on schedule getting this done, that I could get colon cancer. So yeah, I, then I'll have to really be careful with it like my dad was. Uh, yeah. On my mom's side, there's no colon cancer whatsoever. And she's never she's had colonoscopy. She's never had a polyp ever. So I hope I inherited that from her. It's very hereditary. I hope I inherited her side, and not my dad's side, which is a bad side for this. So. Well, just keep a positive uh, train of thought in your head. Is most likely you're going to be fine. Just try not to psych yourself out and just get too worried over it. Um. I also I don't want to like half sleep. I don't want to be like partially out of it because I, I can't stand being in a phase like that. I need them to like to put me to like a clean sleep where I just fall asleep and don't notice or feel anything, and then they just wake me up and it feels like a short nap. That's well, what I want. Do what most then do what most people do and listen to your show. Hey. you're you're calling into the show here. What does that say? Do you want to go to sleep? No, I, I just woke up. So. Yeah, you just woke yeah. up, so you won't fall asleep. No, it, it's it's something I'm really like. I, I I'm getting closer and closer, and go, okay, here it comes, here it comes. But I, I think probably when the whole thing's done, I'll say, oh, this is nothing. Oh, another crappy thing is the propofol. Sometimes it doesn't happen to everybody, but some people, not even that small of a percentage, feel this tremendous, super painful burning as it goes in. I'm not sure why, but that's a common side effect of it. Now, nobody in my family has had that, so I don't know if it's hereditary. Hopefully it is, because then I won't feel it. But uh, that is a common side effect where they actually warn you you may feel a lot of burning. And I've seen reviews of it that there's like really bad burning sometimes. Now, it's, just, it's short, and you fall asleep right after that, but still. like Picture like a very short but very painful burning sensation. Right. So that I'm worried about too, and like there's a lot of the crappy things. At least I don't have to worry about the COVID thing anymore. I was like dreading, oh, I don't want that terrible COVID test, and then... They gave me the good news that I'm not going to need that. Because I was like, I emailed them asking, like, is there any alternative to this? And like, oh, no, we don't do it that way anymore. We just changed that in January. So that's good. But, yeah, it's, it's coming up, and uh, I will find out what the story is. And Do you find out right after? Sort of. They wake you up. If there was nothing seen in there, they tell you, and that's the best result. If there is polyps in there, they will have cut them out already by the time you're woken out. Uh, woken up. And then they will tell you what they have seen from their experience of the polyp. So they'll say, well, this looks like a benign polyp. It's, it, we're going to send it for testing, but it's probably okay. Uh, then they, there will be precancerous-looking polyps that probably aren't cancerous, and, but they look like they're on the way to it, and they, they test those to make sure they're not already cancerous. So then you have to sweat it out and wait till you get the results. And then there's ones that actually look cancerous, or they will see actually... Uh, indications of colon cancer 
and give you the bad news when you wake up that you have colon cancer. So uh, now if you have stage one colon cancer, then that's treatable and often they can stop it. In fact, I know somebody who lives in Vegas, not, not a poker player, but I know somebody in Vegas who at 44, during a checkup, his doctor said, hey, I see some signs of colon cancer just from a regular checkup and then you got a colonoscopy and yeah, he had stage one colon cancer, but they, they, they cut it out and it didn't seem to spread. So he's now like 50 and he's okay. But, uh, so it's, it's not a death sentence if you get stage one. Now, if you, if you have a later stage, you're in big trouble. You're probably going to die. Uh, it would be very unlikely for me to have a later stage because I'd feel something by now. There would, so I, I, and I'd have symptoms like it would be very unlikely for me to do that like, at a really late stage, but, uh, I think I don't want to find out I'm stage one or something. And I, the reason I worry about this a little bit is because six years older than I am now, my dad was super close to a stage one colon cancer. Super close. They they told him that it was a it was a polyp which looked really really bad that looked like about as close to being cancerous as as it could be without being cancerous. So they they cut it out, and that was the end of that. And now he just keeps going back, and they they get rid of it every few years. But uh, I think last time he was clean, actually didn't have any. But the whole concept of colon cancer is that it has to start with these polyps, and these polyps grow slowly, and then they go from from benign to cancerous very slowly. So it's it's a thing where if you get it at the intervals they tell you to get it, you won't get colon cancer because they they will catch them and cut them out before they can do any damage. So they, as long as you get going early enough, which I didn't, because of the family history. If I, if I didn't have a family history, it'd be fine to do the first one at 49, but... See, I, that's what I always thought. It was 50 was the age that you're supposed to, but I guess that makes sense. That's that's if you don't have the history, then. Is that correct? Yeah, they've actually modified it a little bit to say that if you don't have... A, that you should do 45 and up, and that uh, if you have a family history in your early 40s. But I, I don't agree with that. I It is so unlikely... It does happen, but it is very unlikely to get it before 45, even having any polyps under before 45. And there is a small risk to the procedure that they can perforate your colon. There's the, there is a risk to it. It's not risk-free. So I think the risk-reward just isn't there before 45, If you are, no matter what your history is. But I do think if you have a history around 45, you should do it. 44, okay, yeah, something like that. But I, I, people get it 41, 42. I think that's kind of pointless. Uh, but if you, if you don't have a family history... They say 45, 50 is probably okay, but I, I was given the family history, I'm a little late on this one at 49. I'm almost, I'm, I'm not quite 49, I'm very close to 49. So that's essentially what I am, and hopefully it will not have been too late, and then I will do it whatever interval I'm told to do it, and provided I don't have anything yet, then that will not be my cause of death is colon cancer. So I, I, I think about Benjamin too. You know, I, I want to live a long time for him, and I'm already thirty-eight and a half years older than him. So he's even worried about the colonoscopy, about like anything happening to me. And I, and I said, oh, I'll, "I'll call you right when it's over and tell you I'm okay." Does he? He knows what that is. I, I told him about it. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's what's coming up for me. Very fun. I am taking a small COVID risk by going to do this. And the only reason I'm not waiting another few months is because uh, a blood test 
showed that I had mild anemia, which is sometimes a sign that there are polyps there. When you suddenly get anemia out of nowhere, that often means there's polyps. So, that I say, uh-oh, I better do this soon. Now, I didn't have any anemia in March, so at least that's a sign that if there is a polyp, it's probably very new. Hmm. In, in which case, if it is new, then it's not going to be cancerous. It can't go that fast. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they wake me up and say they cut out some polyps. That's not going to be a surprise at all. So anyway, I decided not to, just in case I don't want to wait until April or May. Those could be critical months, you know? So sure. I will I will take the small chance that I catch COVID in there. It's not like there's going to be a ton of people. It's a, it's a small clinic. I'm going to go in the morning before most other people are there. And, uh, you know, so I just have to hope I don't catch it. And it, it's it's kind of a math problem too with COVID. You know, it's 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 how much risk you take total. Like one thing that's risky, it's it's not likely to get you. Kind of like when I had to get a root canal in November. That was a risk, but I had to do it. So I look at this the same way. Careful with everything else, and uh, I'll kind of know about the COVID about a week afterwards because that's about how long it takes to develop. So if a week after the colonoscopy, if I'm not having complications from that and I'm not having COVID, I'm in great shape. So that that is my January. That's how I'm beginning 2021. It's been almost 30 years. Is there we have a chance. On- is there wait? Sorry, dropped. Is there a chance that they're not going to do it just because they may say wait till things cool out there? Uh, it, it's interesting you ask that. Uh, they have in certain counties, including where I'm getting this done. Once again, made elective surgeries illegal. However, they it's not all elective surgeries anymore. It's only elective surgeries in a hospital, and apparently uh, that doesn't apply to where I'm doing it. It is possible that they could shut that down too, but there was a lot of backlash about the denial of elective surgeries because some of those are important. Elective sounds like something you're just choosing for uh, for vanity, like the cosmetic surgery. But it's, it's often not that. Often elective surgery is things that are not urgent to do right at this moment, but that there is a risk in waiting, like, like the colonoscopy. I'm not doing this colonoscopy for fun or, or for my looks. I'm doing this to, to catch any polyps there before they turn cancerous or, or to see if there is any colon cancer and, and stop it before it develops further. So Waiting a few months probably isn't going to make a difference, but it could. It could be a critical few months there. So um, it's, it's not trivial to tell people to just wait on, quote, elective surgery. So if they banned it completely, I think there would be a backlash. That already happened last year, and there were a lot of people angry about this, and it does cost lives overall. So I, I don't think this will be canceled. I think I probably would have heard about this by now if they were considering it, but there's a, there's a chance it could be stopped. But I, th- I think it's going to happen. I think I'm going to do it. But I, I am, uh, I'm going through right, with it. So do you already have a date and everything booked, or you? Don't oh, know? I have everything. It's in fact, I, and I've bought the. Uh, there's actually two kinds of prep. I'm going to give you guys a tip about colonoscopies, even though I've never had one. I'll give you a tip about the prep for colonoscopies. Uh, a lot of times in medicine, you are told to do something that is hard. And there is an easy way that is just as effective, and they tell you to do the hard way. Why? It's not because they're sadistic. It's because sometimes it's just easier for them, or the or the chance of you screwing up is is uh, is lower. Or 
It doesn't apply in this case, but sometimes the easier way requires them to have more expensive equipment. They don't want to do it. So I've seen things in medicine where sometimes what seems like the only way to do something that's very painful or very difficult or whatever, you don't have to do it that way. Sometimes there's a much easier way that you don't have to put yourself through a lot of crap. So with colonoscopy prep, there are various ways you can do it that are all effective. And uh, one they like to give people is called SUPREP, which is uh, a very, very salty, awful-tasting solution that people despise. That people Sometimes you'll ask people, what was the worst part of the colonoscopy? They'll say the prep. And they're not talking about the diarrhea. They're talking about getting that liquid down because the taste is just so awful. And I was kind of preparing myself. I'm going to have to do that. And then I found out from one of my relatives who also who's already done a colonoscopy, I found out that you don't have to do the SUPREP, that there is what's known as a Miralax prep, which some doctors will suggest anyway and some won't. I actually did not. Mine tried to push me to the SUPREP. And the Miralax prep is much more pleasant because Miralax is, you get it over the counter, and it does not have a taste. So what you do is you dump it into Gatorade, because I guess it makes you lose electrolytes, so you need to replace it with a Gatorade. So you dump the Miralax into the Gatorade, and you drink the Gatorade. It tastes just like Gatorade, because it is Gatorade with powder that has no taste, and it works just as well. So why anyone would do that stupid Suprep, I have no idea. And I even read it's not any less effective than Miralax. In fact, there's even one study saying it's better. So the only downside to the Miralax compared to the Suprep is you have to drink a lot of Gatorade. Like, the amount of liquid you have to drink is a lot more. So if you're not good at getting a lot of liquid down at once, if usually when you take a drink, you drink, like, four ounces and you're done, you're going to have a hard time with a Gatorade one. If you can chug down big gulps, as I can, uh, then you're not going to have a problem with this. Because it doesn't taste that, it's just Gatorade. And you just got to drink a lot of it. So provided you're okay with that... You can avoid that terrible-tasting soup prep, and it's just as good. You're not giving up anything. It's not going to be a worse prep. It's not going to be a less effective colonoscopy. It'll be the same result, just way easier. And most doctors don't tell you that. Most doctors say, okay, here's your prep. Had I just gone along with what I was told to do, then I would be taking the soup prep. They they gave me the soup prep, and I said, you know, I'd prefer the Miralax. Okay, we'll switch you. Okay, here's the Miralax. So so, so they're totally fine with it. So... like it's it's been established for like it's not like a new thing it's like for 20 years this has been the case but just a lot of people don't know so if you're going to get a colonoscopy which uh, uh, if you're if you're over 50 listening to the show which a lot of people here listening to this show you really should get one and second ask for the Miralax prep not the Suprep because the Suprep is terrible that's that's my tip to you that came from somebody else so at least uh, I won't have to go through the terrible tasting prep stuff and I won't have to uh, I won't have to go through that awful COVID test. That, that those are the good things. But uh, I I did hear complaints that it's you get very hungry the day that you can't eat anything that's solid, which I can totally see happening to me. And you have to go four hours without drinking anything at all, not even water before it, which isn't terrible, but you know it can be a little bothersome. So uh, I'll be happy when it's over. Yeah, and that's not pleasant at all. No, it's not. But that's it's one of these things that you kind of dread as it's coming up, and then it'll be passed. And you say, "Okay, good, I'm passed." Kind of like the root canal, November. I was just dreading, dreading, dreading. But I didn't have as long to wait for it, but I got through it. Okay, okay, it's done, good. And we're past it. 
So anyway, that's all. That's all I got for you guys here. Thank you, Trader Ruski and uh, and Brandon for joining. Unless you got anything else you'd like to bring up. Uh, no, I. I'm I'm good. Let me throw in a go go uh, Chicago Bears because Brandon didn't complete that. Uh, oh yeah, I go think ahead. two people had Buffalo yesterday. We were one of nine that took Tampa Bay, and and I was we were sweating it there for a minute, and then uh, <coughs> another eleven have the choice to this today. So we're assuming we're all going to take uh, New Orleans. Talking about he's talking about the survivor. Yeah, yeah, I, I figured. Yeah, so good luck with that. I hope you win. So you want you want the Bears to just win outright tomorrow, basically? Yeah, today. But yeah, today. Correct. Oh yeah, today. It's today now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, All righty. Well, uh, I, I guess that's it. I guess that's it for the show. Uh, we, we've been on Saturday a lot lately. Every time we come to Friday, I go. It just seems like so soon. I don't have as much to talk about and. I am kind of gr- glad I waited that extra day because I got that uh, Perlot Friedman topic out of it that wouldn't have been here otherwise. The the bombshell accusations against him from, from his ex. That was oh, I'm not uh, listening to the archives. You can listen I, to the archives. It's, it's in the forum if you want to find it. It's uh, one of just clips. Yeah, and it's, like basic, it's basically. The, wait, hold on, Perlot Perlot Friedman's uh, girl who only likes to date black men. They met over the phone, so she thought he was a black guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's Trader Ruski's version of, of events but yeah uh, it, it, it's pretty interesting you t- take a look at the thread I already went over it on the show so I won't rehash it but you can the, the thread is, but what's the name of the thread it, it's called Prahlad Freeman's wife practicing avoidance just go to the very end of oh, the thread I've seen that thread okay but go to the very end you'll see you'll see some pretty uh, pretty serious accusations against him by this uh, ex-wife of his and I don't know if it's true or not true, but it's it's pretty pretty explosive stuff. So had I done the show yesterday, I would not have had this yet. This would have been part of next week's show. But here here she was nice enough to do it on Saturday, knowing the show is on Saturday. And uh, I appreciate that, even though I don't think she knows the show exists, but she did the right thing anyway, as far as the timing. So anyway, uh, that's it. I, I just don't have much more. The show's been on for a while. We've been on for uh, over seven hours. I think that's good enough. And I'll maybe get into the archives fast, maybe not. And and guys, let me know about the sound quality. Let me know how this sounded compared to last week and how it co- sounded compared to two weeks ago when I had the older computer running. As long as I can be close to the sound quality of the other computer two weeks ago, I will consider it a success with this external sound card. You sound great over here. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I yeah, hope so. so. You when you play this uh, All in the Family song, are we going to hear it? Um, probably not. I think that's a Skype problem. Oh. Yeah. Well, what can I do? You know, it's a, yeah, All I need is 2008 technology back. I need it for Skype. I need it for sound cards. I, I, I need it to take a step back. I don't need it to get better. I need it to return to what it once was. And we just, we just keep yeah. getting worse for things for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. They, they just, uh, progress is actually regressive. When it comes to this type of technology, it's very sad. It's very sad. Sad. Like, I mean, sometimes sometimes things get worse over time. Like, I have an alarm clock I still use that was made in 1980. I got it 41 years ago. I got it at the beginning of 1980, and I still use it. 
It has not broken. It's been in use almost every single day. It's not even like it was away in storage for a while. It's been on every, almost every single day since 1980. And it still works. You're not going to buy anything now that's going to work for 40 years. I mean, come on. Why did Brandon hang up? We just lost Brandon. Oh, you're coming back. Okay. What happened here? Like we got like two more minutes. Why is he hanging up? It said I was removed by another participant. Well, I I think Trader Ruski is trying to kick you off. Trader Ruski, would, why would you do that to your buddy? Do, do I? I wouldn't know how to do that if I had to. <laughs> okay. He, how could he even take me off? Uh, I, I'm just kidding. I don't think he did it, but I didn't do it either. I wasn't even touching the computer. Oh. I just it, you just disappeared. I thought you hung up on me. I was like, no, wait, Brandon, we, we got like a minute left. Don't, don't. You're talking about Skype from 2008, and then it says, well, fuck you then, motherfucker. That's, I think so. I think it, I think it was uh, telling me, don't talk shit, or I'm going to make life even harder for you. Jesus. I don't need, I don't need Microsoft. Oh, I want to mention, speaking of making life harder, you know, Microsoft owns Skype. Well, Flight Simulator, I mentioned this last week, this thing about, or did I? I don't know if I mentioned it last week. Um, Benjamin tells me, I wake up and Benjamin tells me, that it's asking him to insert a disk. It's asking him to insert a disk in Flight Simulator. And I'm going, what? A disk? We downloaded this. What does it mean, a disk? What is this, 1995? So I could not get that message to go away. And it gives you no further information. Just insert disk, continue or quit. If you continue, it just pops the message back. You quit, it quits. So I had to Google this. There's a million different answers. Like no, I, it, it was so hard to figure out it took a tremendous amount of work to get Flight Simulator working again, and it was just a—it was a bug. It was a bug that they never fixed there. And uh, and then the other day, it, it happened again in a different form where it wouldn't start up. So it, it's such a fail. Microsoft fails with everything they do, e- even a, a pretty well-made game like like the new Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. Even that to, to have to have it actually tell me insert disk in something that downloads off the internet. What the hell? And then give you no more information. And it, it, what that what that really meant is was having trouble accessing the account that we purchased it from. So instead of saying we can't log into your your uh, Microsoft Xbox account, it's it's telling me insert disk. Like what the hell is that supposed to mean? And then it's not an easy fix either. It was a very difficult fix that someone who wasn't technical would not have been able to do. So it's it, what a fail. Everything Microsoft touches, they screw up. Well, listen, I'm, I know you're you're not. Uh on that on that boat yet, but I've, I'm on the Apple boat, you know, more or less, and I, I I enjoy it. I think it's a much better product. I find Apple I too controlling. That's probably not going to be for you, but I listen. I went and I got one of these uh, these A1 processor MacBook Pros, and this is insane. If you saw one of these laptops and you got to play with it and use it and saw the speed of it, you would you would stop with. Microsoft and Windows-based laptops forever. If you saw how fast this is and you saw what the battery life in these things were, it is just beyond anything you could ever fathom. It's ridiculous. So this laptop I have, and this is, it's a basic, cheap MacBook, MacBook Pro. Or not cheap, but it's a bottom-level one. Um, and the battery life on it is about 18 to 20 hours, depending wow. on what I'm doing with it. 18 to 20 hours. And it is just blazing, blazing fast. You wake it up after a sleep, and it just pops up like gangbusters. Like, I mean, it's it just everything, just brilliantly fast. So, uh, Trader Ruski, have you seen any of these? Have you played with one yet? These new A1 chip uh, MacBooks? Hmm. 
No, I mean, I got an iMac. I got a new iMac in December. And then brand new one. I don't know if it's using that chip or not. I'll be checked. No, it's not. It's only for... Mine's an iMac. I bought it in December. Oh, how do you not know that, though, if it has that or not? That's like I mean, the, I just well, told my IT person to give me the best one they have. I mean, you know, I didn't yeah. know what chip it is. Well, anyhow, Druff, I mean, for me at least, and I know you have an iPhone, the fact that everything is just seamless, seamlessly connected now, my iPhone and... and my laptop, my iPad, everything's just transferred fast. It, it's a no-brainer. I have one one last Microsoft Windows-based laptop here, and once it goes, and I'm I'm done. I won't be buying another one. Well, I I find Apple products too controlling. And like the only reason I tolerate it with my iPhone is because I can jailbreak it and take control that way. I just I I always say I don't like machines controlling me. I like controlling them. Sure. That's I'm very big on that. I've always been very big on that. So anyway, I'm glad you're enjoying it though. And I, I wonder if it could actually run radio. I wonder if it had a has a possibility. I, I I bet it's not able to do that with what we need to do. I think I, I bet it's missing the stereo mix. I bet I, I wonder if there's even the yeah. There's no there's no stereo mix in it. And I wonder if there's any right any now. broadcast uh, software that's made for it or anything like that. So, I don't know. I, I've never looked into the Mac side of things of uh, doing that. So well, like I said, it's brilliantly fast. The battery life's absolutely ridiculous, which you know that that's the most important thing to me. And now, this, I mean, not I'm not a shill or anything for Apple. Now they literally just re- released this prototype yesterday. This is just insane. Of a patent that Apple just applied for for a new MacBook or you know just their laptops, in which you can you'll be able to wirelessly charge an iPad and your iPhone on the laptop at the same time with this a one chip, you know, without, I mean, without cables, without, you know, like I said, wireless. Um, and it won't affect or barely even dent. They're saying the battery life of, of your laptop, if it wasn't even on charge. Anyhow, I, you know, like I said, the iPhone, the fact that I have the iPhone and, and use all that, it just, you know, I get the pros and the cons, you know, I don't like being controlled either, but the things that I do and what I use it for, that really isn't an issue, you know, like pr- privacy wise and other things I, you know, but I, I know there's certain things that you like to do that you do that, uh, you know, that are different for me. So it may affect you more than like, I've never jailbroken a phone before. I just, I've never had the need to, you know? Um, so I know that that's important to you. Correct. Correct. Hello. Anyone? Yeah. 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 You know, I was having trouble getting it off mute. Uh, Trader risky style. Huh. No, I, I, I yeah, was, no uh, problem. Yeah, I was having, I was listening to you. I just couldn't get it off mute. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's it is important to me, and that's why I haven't considered switching. Benjamin actually has a MacBook Pro from uh, quite some time ago that I got from a relative who didn't need it anymore, and Ben really enjoys it and actually said that uh, he is surprised how well it, it it performs given how old it is. So he, he, oh, wow. he he's impressed with that. I actually had to buy a new charger for it though because the charger was shot, so I did have to spend a little bit of money, but. Uh, but he, he's got he's got that, and he has a, a very good gaming PC now. That it's, it's the one I play on the flight simulator on. So nice, nice. All right. Well, everyone have a great day, and uh, I guess we'll all talk soon. Yes, we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, call me Brandon if you want to talk to call. Okay, I'll talk to you in a little bit too. All right. So that is. 
the end of our co-hosts, I just booted them off. They're going to complain otherwise. They're going to, oh, we can't hear you over this. Oh, we can't hear this. Like, I, I, I know it's coming, so I, I just I just cut them. Nothing against them. I just cut them because I, I don't want to hear the complaints. I don't want to go through this every week. Oh, we can't hear you. Oh, what's going on? Are you playing the song now? So it's a limitation with Skype. I wish they could hear me over when I'm talking over this song, but for whatever reason, they, it just won't let them. It's a Skype limitation. You know, every week, not every week, but certain weeks, like this week, I, I think I don't have enough material for this week. I mean, I started off talking about freaking Vanessa Cade, of all things, and asking for dates in poker. That was our top story. That shows you what a light news week it was. And somehow, we have it over a, a seven-hour show when it's all said and done. Last week was actually one of our shorter shows. It was over five and a half hours or so. Maybe it was 5.25, but it was around five and a half hours. It's actually one of our shorter shows last week, but we're back to over seven. So, uh, next week, Friday or Saturday, I'm thinking more likely Saturday. Week after that, I don't know. I don't know. I may have to skip it. Depends how I feel. I don't know how I'm going to feel after a colonoscopy because I've never had one. But if I don't feel good, I, I, I might skip the week and come back. So if, if I'm missing, yeah, I'll, I'll put it up on the Twitter, twitter.com slash alert. if I choose not to do it. I think I'll know pretty soon after the colonoscopy if I'll be up to doing radio that week. But by the time radio would be coming up, I will be done with the colonoscopy. So... I will make the decision. Okay, that is all. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We'll talk to you later. And, Shalom. Shalom.